We don't have much time here on this earth. We need to honor our life and our consciousness by doing big things. For the next hundred years, I want to do something that's going to make a major seismic shift in the world, in the consciousness. I want to put content out that enlightens people. New point of view. You start thinking. Next stage, empowerment. You can start moving. You can turn off the news. You can think differently. But then you might need help transforming. And that's where the academy is going to come in. I want you to change. I know you're probably not going to do it on your own. So I'm going to get you across that goal line, kicking and screaming. That's what London Real is about these days. In a hundred years now, a thousand years now, we'll look back to these days of savageness when we weren't treating each other right and our bodies right and all of these things. And we'll think, wow, look how much we've evolved. London Real, it's a place where I can go and I can put myself to the test. We're on a mission from God and so we're unstoppable because we know we are doing the right thing. show we have me yes every year I put myself in the guest chair of London Real and talk about the state of the Union the future of London Real I both love and hate this episode luckily I was able to have Roger Brooks the founder of American Real come from New York in order to interview me he's a recent graduate of our broadcast yourself course and he is one of the many reels from around the world that we've inspired that's doing incredible things. So I was so excited to have him there. And he put me on the spot and said, Brian, what's next? And I outlined my 100 year plan for London Real and also some of the specific things I want to do in the next five years, which are the 20 documentary films we're going to make, the 100,000 students that graduate from the London Real Academy. And he went even deeper. Some of my favorite guests, some of my morning routines, how I balance my work and life and the family, how I motivate our team, and of course, this is the very last interview that will happen in London Real Studios. We're shutting down the studios and going to our brand new London Real World Headquarters. So excited. So this is the last time you'll ever see that floor and see everything. But don't worry. The new space is even better than ever. And I'm super excited to show you that. It's what's going to help us scale and take us to the next level. So if you want to be inspired, if you ever wanted to create something that's yours, to create a mission or a movement or a team or a business, there's lots of gold in here. It's quite long. I think we spoke for over four hours. So there's lots of good stuff in there. And uh, I talk about everything I learned in the last six years and um, how I've been able to be so fortunate to build this thing called London Real with all of your support. So thank you so much for making this happen. And uh, hopefully you'll see me next year talking about the future from there. And the future inside London Real Academy is even brighter. Our brand new course, Speak to Inspire, is out now. We'll be closing it very soon. And I'll be taking a small group of people from around the world who want 
to accelerate their public speaking skills. This could be for the stage, for the boardroom with clients or in a social situation. Anytime when you need to magnify your message to get people moving in the right direction. And I've learned from some of the greats, from Dan Pena to Ido Portal to Simon Sinek. These people know how to speak to inspire and I'm gonna be teaching you how to do it. But more importantly, I'm gonna be holding you accountable to do the work so you will be a better person, a better speaker, a better communicator, and a better person that can really move the world the way that you want them to. So join us on this. It's an incredible time. Speak to inspire. And now I leave you with me. Sit down and plug in with Roger Brooks and Brian Rose, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to American Real. This is Roger Brooks, broadcasting from the London Real Studios in London, England. Today, my very special guest is Brian Rose, founder and host of London Real. Originally from California, you hold a mechanical engineering degree from MIT, then worked on Wall Street as a trader before moving to England some 13 years ago. After much success as a banker, you had an epiphany before relinquishing the corporate life followed by the passion to create London Real. Brian, I am honored to be sitting in your marvelous chair. And before we get started, I want to thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I am a living testimonial of your hard work. And welcome to my show from your studio. <laughs> thank you so much, Roger. It's a pleasure being on the American Real version of London Real. And, uh, you know, for people that don't know much about you, first of all, this is the very first time we've officially met, uh, which actually isn't very fair because we probably met years and years ago when you were watching episodes of London Real. And even a few months ago when uh, I started teaching our Broadcast Yourself course to you. And, uh, and so I feel like I know you really well. Oh, the feeling is mutual. And, you know, you've done amazing work with your show. And, um, you know, every year I decide to put myself in this hot seat uh, and let myself be on the firing line, and I choose someone to do it. Um, it started off first with Sully Brakes, the spoken word artist. That was four years ago, I think. Then it was Olive from New York Reel after that. And the last year was Alexander Ziri, our head of product. And this year we were like, who, who could it be? Everyone on my team ran the other way when I said, who wants to, to actually sit down and have a conversation with me? And um, I think I was meditating one morning, and it was like, Roger, Roger's the guy. And uh, you know, we had 60 some people from around the world taking our Broadcast Yourself course, which is inside London Real Academy. We teach them how to create a world-class podcast from scratch. And you were just doing amazing work. You have an incredible video studio. 
but really you have the ethos that is a lot like the London Real ethos. You know, you're putting out great content because it needs to be out there. Your tagline is everyone has a story and um, you know, you really put heart and soul into every one of your episodes and you do it for the right reasons. You know, it's not about Roger, it's about the bigger picture and I think that makes you unique and super powerful. And um, uh, when you, I first heard there was an American Real, I thought, I said, you can't do that. I always said, someone one time said I want to do Ireland Real and Australia Real and I, my policy early on, ever since I was on the Joe Rogan Experience five years ago when I put out the offer, anybody can start their own Real, I had a policy, no continents or countries. Give me a city. And uh, so I always said no to Ireland Real and all these other ones. But when I heard the American Real, I was like, Roger, you can't do that. Um, but once I saw what you were doing and the, what you put into your shows, it's okay by me. Thank you. So uh, great having you here. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. And look, my first time to London, and wow, what an incredible city. The vibe here, I mean, I, I can't think. It, it's, it, it's between New York and something else, but it's so unique and, and marvelous. It's a um, special city. You know, I love this city so much, I named my show after it. Yeah. And uh, there's something about me and the city that click. They, they just click. You know, uh, I'm from San Diego, grew up on the beach, but I never really was a surfer. Um, I went to New York City. I was on Wall Street. I, w I, was in, I was there trying to do my best, but New York City always kicked my butt on a regular basis. I just couldn't figure it out. But when I came to London in 97, I had success. When I came back in 02, I had success. I was always able to figure it out over here, maybe because I was the immigrant, I was the American hustler. Mm -hmm. And something about me and this city, they, they just mesh. Uh, and, uh, and so why fight it? I just was like, this is the place I want to be. And literally when I went to create this show six years ago, I was always fascinated by these companies that had used London in their name. The London School of Sound, where I learned how to be a DJ. The London Sleep Institute. The London this. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to call my show London something. And uh, I'm so glad I did. And London Real is the essence of what we do here. And it's such a powerful name. London's such a powerful brand. I'd like to think we represent it very, very well. And um, yeah, I'm so glad you feel the vibes of my city. This city's amazing. Uh, when I got here in 97, it wasn't as amazing. The food wasn't as good. It wasn't as multicultural. But now, honestly, it's almost like a child that's growing up. Like I got here when London was about 10. Still figuring things out. Didn't really know what was going on. Now London's in its teens and early 20s and it's maturing, it's a force. And in the next 10 years, if not now, this is the greatest city in the world. No doubt. I'll put it against New York City any day of the week and any other major city. It's truly international. You can walk down the street, you can hear Russian, Chinese, you can see a woman walking in a full hijab down the street, no problem. And uh, people really embrace the internationalness of this, of this place. And it's the center of commerce, the center of you know, uh, uh, finance, center of government, center of media for pretty much, you know, all of Europe. Right. And uh, I love it, man. I'm not going anywhere. So what ultimately attracted you to move here? You know, it was necessity. Um, so I got here in 97. I was uh, in my 20s. I think I was, you know, I was probably 26 or 27, I guess it would have been. And um, look, I was in Wall Street. I was young. I was single. I was hanging out with all my Wall Street buddies. We were going out every single night of the week. I think when I moved to Wall Street, uh, back from Chicago, I went out with my good friend 28 nights in a row and we were all about the bucks. We would love Gordon Gecko. We would literally leave the bar sometimes at one or two in the morning to go home and watch Wall Street. Like that's how obsessed we were. We did that probably 50 times. And so for us, 
you could have offered me a job on the third moon of Saturn. And if it paid me enough money, I would have taken it. So when someone said, you want to go to London? I was like, yeah, sh show me the money. And so that's why I came originally, because it was about a business opportunity and I would have gone anywhere. Um, which in retrospect, I look back at that guy and I'm like, come on, Brian. Maybe it shouldn't have been about you, but when, you know, when you're young, maybe that's okay. And it brought me here, so that was okay. So that's why I came. I remember July 5th, 1997, I landed. I think Tony Blair had just won the election. I was in some hotel that looked funny and smelled funny, and the room service had like bacon with all this fat on it, and I didn't know where I was. I knew nobody here. I was very lonely in the beginning. It was hard to be here. But, um, but uh, you know, uh, I, it grew on me slowly. I could see why. Well, uh, you mentioned Wall Street, and I, and I do want to talk about that a little bit. But okay. first, uh, I'm just curious, was, was the experience there like the Wolf of Wall Street? Were you Leonardo DiCaprio? <laughs> <laughs> so the Wolf of Wall Street is, look, Scorsese is an amazing director, yeah. and Leonardo is a great actor. But I didn't like the movie, because that movie depicts kind of like a bucket shop selling penny stocks that was barely in Manhattan. It started off, I think, in the movie in Queens, and then they kind of moved in. And they're selling shares on the phone to people that really don't know what the hell they're doing. So that was kind of like a bucket shop, right? What I was doing was I was in a major global institution on the phone, you know, creating derivative transactions between some of the biggest players in the world. So it was just a different level. It was kind of a more grown-up level. Um, there was a lot more money involved, and it was just like for the big boys. Mm -hmm. So when I see that, I kind of laugh, and I'm like, all right. But for me, it doesn't. I don't know that reality. I kind of know a little more of the Gordon Gecko reality, although he was an M&A guy. He was a churn and burn guy from the 80s and 90s, and I was a derivatives guy from, I guess, the later 90s. So it was different, but being on Wall Street for me was just absolutely amazing. I was like a kid in a candy shop. Um, you know, I'd gone to MIT to get an engineering degree, and I just fell out of love with engineering. I worked for Ford Motor Company one summer, and, and at first, you know, my first car was a Ford Mustang. I was 16 years old. I bought it for $1,200. I saved all summer. I worked on it. I used to have, um, you know, dirt underneath my nails at all times to where my stepmother would like say, I'm not serving you dinner unless you wash your fingers. I would work on that car all the time. So when I went to MIT and I got a job there my first summer, it was like mm. I died and went to heaven. But I looked around after two months and I said, look at these guys. They're 50. They're probably, you know, they're, they're, they're just not going anywhere. You know, and they were, I don't know, for me, uh, they were making $50,000 a year and they're there and they're happy and there's 120,000 engineers in Dearborn, Michigan and I don't want to be one of them. And so I just got a little bit jaded of the professional side of engineering. I love science. I love engineering. I love thermodynamics and dynamics. I love all that. But as a job, for me, it just didn't seem to scale. And so finance was interesting to me. My grandpa, Benedict, was a horse trader, a very good businessman. My grandpa, Rose, was a, a farmer who built a great farm and a great business, so it's in my blood, maybe. And um, finance is fascinating when you're an engineer because you can plot these things and price options and trade them. And it's for me, I was like a kid in a candy shop. So at my fraternity, the Wall Street Journal would show up every morning on the door. It was weird. A lot of the guys thought I was strange, but I was reading the Wall Street Journal, which was really boring to read back then. And um, I went to Wall Street, got a job at Bankers Trust as a derivatives trader, lived in the East Village, and it was, I was just living this dream. And I was on this trading floor with like 300 people on it. It was like the size of a football field. No walls, screaming people. They gave me two of these black phones. One was connected to the Chicago Board of Trade. One was connected to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Others corrected to U.S. Treasury 
bond salesmen and they were like, go. And they literally, they let me start buying and selling things on like day three. It was crazy. And um, it was amazing. Uh, and I loved it. Um, so that was my, my Wall Street experience. <laughs> Talk about pressure, right? Um, that must have really prepared you um, for the pressure of today. Very much so. Like, so when that's happening and someone's screaming over your back and says, I need you to price this five-year swap to these dates. It's Fujitomo Bank is on the line. They got four other banks on the line. What's the price? And I'm sitting there plugging all these things. and I'm literally calculating this on a spreadsheet. And I have to quote a number like 4.7432. And that's a percentage rate. And I have to know that that means there's uh, 3360, assuming 30 days in a month and 360 days in a year, even though there's not. And I have to be know that that's paying quarterly, not annually, because that can screw it up. And if I'm off by one number, one number, that could be like $100,000 down. But if I'm off by another number, it could be $2 million down. And guess what? If I'm wrong in their favor, I'll get the deal. And so you learn really quickly how to deal with pressure and also how to prioritize. Mm -hmm. It's like, is this important right now? No, that's not important. Is this important? And you just try to focus and breathe. And then just that says so a lot of that going on. And as a young guy... You know, people are yelling at, a lot, at you a lot. So it's a great place to, to learn how to be calm. So when big problems happen here, I'd like to think that I can just kind of, okay, what do we have to do to solve the problem? Because every time, every minute you panic, the market goes the other way and you're losing more money. So sometimes you have to just do that. And sometimes you have to take decisive action and cut your losses. Another thing Wall Street taught me, don't be emotional about stock. Don't be emotional about business. Don't be emotional about guests. You know, sometimes you have to just cut your losses, right. move on to the next. Right. So yeah, it was great in that sense. Cool. Yeah. So Brian, if you can, take us back to Southern California when you were growing up. Uh, I know you mentioned uh, your grandpa was a farmer, but what were the early days like for you? What were your interests? Um, what was it like growing up in SoCal? No, great question. I mean, people always say, why are you in London? I come from San Diego, California, even Pacific Beach, and my mom lives in La Jolla, which is some of the most beautiful places in the world. I think it's the most temperate, city in america like year round i think it has the best climate bar none you know it's there's no humidity right. uh, i don't remember it snowing ever um and so people always ask me why am i not there so it's a great question but also it doesn't have history and culture that i and also i think i love the urban experience as, as well that's why i went to school in boston and so look growing up was was great it was amazing i uh I lived in a very quiet, you know, residential area in San Diego. My dad was an engineer. My mom was a, a former school teacher, but she stayed at home. I have a brother and a sister. So really good upbringing. Like, you know, it was a clean upbringing. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't, I didn't see anything weird or bad until I got to college, really. And uh, I think there's something good about that. You know, I never saw any, I never saw like a drug addict on the corner or I never saw weird stuff. It was just like a kind of a clean upbringing. I think that was good. Both of my parents came from strong family backgrounds. Arizona, born and raised, creating farms from nothing. You know, when I went to visit my grandma before she died, she drove me by a field and she said, You're, this is where your grandpa and I had our first farm. And she said, he spent two years pulling the stumps out of the ground before he planted the crops. And I was just like, okay, that's, that's what I come from. Yeah. It's all, and, and so in my family, it was always, nobody ever complained. Like there's no complaining on a farm. You just get to it. So I think I had a lot of really good values from my dad and my mom, um, and uh, they still impress me to this day. Uh, they and they do it by example. They don't necessarily uh, tell me what to do. So look, great childhood. When I was seven, they got divorced. I think it really rocked my world as a young man. I think I directed my anger towards that, 
um, and it's not fair on them by, by any means, but it definitely affected me. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I got very jaded with nuclear families, uh, and I think I, I was told at that point that I was on my own in this world, and I needed to be very self-reliant. And I think I took that to the nth degree mm -hmm. um, in my life, but if, uh, as I look back now, I think it had a lot to do with it. And in my ayahuasca experiences from a few years ago, I went back and confronted that kind of hurt boy and um, kind of told him he needs to open up a bit more. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's something I have to remind myself of constantly. Open up to people. Um, let them into your heart, which means they can hurt you. But that's the only way you're going to have these amazing connections and human relationships, which is what I think life is actually all about. It's about connecting. It's about helping each other. It's about realizing we're all into this in this together. Um, and so I always have to remind myself to just open my heart a little bit because my old tendency was to close it off. It's Brian against the world and he's going to be in here and you can't hurt him. So um, I think that's a, that experience definitely changed me. Yes. Uh, but yeah, that's San Diego in a nutshell. I wanted to get the hell out of there as soon as I could. And I went literally as far away as possible to MIT in Boston. It's like a four and a half hour flight. <laughs> so yeah. I could have gone to Maine, right. but that was about as far as I could go. Right. So then uh, you, you go through school, you, you go to Wall Street, we're going to fast forward a little bit, and then you're at Richard Branson's um, chalet in, in Switzerland. Tell us about the epiphany. Yeah, so you're making a reference to my TED talk, uh, which I start off and say, you know, uh, there I was at Richard Branson's chalet. It's in a town called Verbier in Switzerland. Um, and if you've never been to Europe or Switzerland, you know, it's a... It's a beautiful country. Uh, there's just mountains everywhere. My brother actually lives there now with my nieces and nephews. And, and, uh, and it's, it's just stunning. It's gorgeous. And every year I would go with my company here in London called ICAP, uh, which has now moved on to NEX. I think they merged. But it was a, a huge interdealer broker. And all of my big clients we would take there. So Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, all of the big names, Citibank, you name it. Every bank you've ever heard of, uh, we would take for our big ski-do, right? And it's, you know, all expensive paid. You know, we take everyone there and it's just like an amazing time. And we go every year. And so I started my TED Talk talking about, there I am, Richard Branson's chalet, après ski. I think we just gone helicopter skiing, right? We're hanging out. There's the hot tub. We're drinking champagne. We're planning our night. What, what restaurant we're going to go to? There's two clubs there. You either go to the farm club or you go to the other club in Verbier. We're like, where are we going to go, guys? And I, I'm looking around and I realize... You know, I'm surrounded by all these people and I feel so alone inside, you know, because these weren't my friends. I didn't feel connected to them. I didn't feel connected to my work. I was just banking money for Brian. And I had gotten to the end of that rope and I realized that, that every three months I got paid a bonus and every three months I didn't feel happier. And I had finally realized, wait a second, there's no correlation here. And I had told myself for 40 years there was a correlation. When you get rich, you'll be happy and you win at the game of life. That's what I was taught in my mind, maybe from the American media, or maybe that was my own twisted version of it. But that's what I was taught. And I have a horrible habit, as you can see with London Real, of not giving up, right? So I will take something to the grave sometimes, to my detriment. And it's got me through some hard times at London Real. But it also, I think I stayed too long in the city of London, maybe five years too long. And I kept beating my head against the wall, waiting for that payout of, where's my happiness? And that was an epiphany. I looked around, and this is a dream moment for most people, right? I mean, you're, you're in this beautiful place. Sure. You know, you're financially secure. 
I have a LinkedIn profile that makes me look like the greatest guy in the world. You know, you look at my pictures on my Facebook and I'm driving around in Lamborghinis and I'm flying here and flying there and yet I'm surrounded in the room with these, these traders and they're not bad guys, but I have no connection with them. I have no connection with my work. Therefore, I have no connection with myself and I have no connection with really any other human being in the world. Maybe my girlfriend. That's about it. But I don't even love myself and I'm not contributing to humanity. And I was just like, this is horrible. And a friend of mine texted me and he said, how's the ski? And I wrote back and I said, I've never been surrounded by so many people and felt so alone. And um, yeah, that was just, that was one of the signs that I actually listened to. Mm. And it was a matter of months, I think, that I walked out of the job and just left it all behind. And I was actually there about a week ago. The CEO invited me to come really? for a boardroom dinner and I was there with a member of parliament. I was there with one of the high, high ranking generals. I was there with one of the high, uh, highest guys on, in the Financial Times. And he puts together these like meeting of the minds. And uh, I don't know why he invited me, but I was there. And it was really weird, Roger, because I had to walk into this place that I spent nine years. And it was, it was weird. But when I left that day, I didn't miss it. I was so glad I got out of there, you know. So, yeah. Hope that answers your question. No, it, it does. It <laughs> does. Um, and, and I guess, what, uh, what lessons did you learn from those days? Um, you know, it, it's a great question. And, and, and when I left Wall Street, when I left the city of mm -hmm. London, which is what we call Wall Street here, city is the square mile where it used to be the walled city of London. You can see the walls as you walk yeah. around. London Wall is right down the street okay. here. You might have seen it. Yeah. And uh, that's where most of the financial district is. So if you say he's a city boy, that's the bankers kind of guys. And so when I left this, that area, I, I just, I think I took all of that um, disappointment and letdown from money and I turned it the other way. And I said, I don't want anything to do with money. And I ran straight away from it. And I said, bankers are horrible people and capitalists are horrible people and I'm just gonna grow my facial hair and I'm gonna wear my cargo pants and I'm gonna do something different. And I think I went probably too far. And um, because when I look back, I learned a lot of valuable lessons from these places. And now I tell guys, look, if you wanna go spend some years in banking, go for it. It'll show you how to be a professional. It'll show you how to hustle. It'll show you how to really work with high level people. And I think the banking industry, for the most part, does great things. Efficient capital markets build the world. I really believe that. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a lot of people that just wanna to, want to make money. But I think there's a lot of opportunities. So I, I do am very grateful for what it did. It also gave me a base of capital that I could use to sure. build London Real. Yeah. So London Real with its ayahuasca and its Bruce Lipton's of the world and its Edo Portals, all of that is being financed by the greatest banks in the world. So thank you, Goldman Sachs. Thank you, JP Morgan, for financing uh, our research in psychedelics, our research in the fact that the body is the mind, you know, our research in exploring human beings. Because without that, I couldn't have built London Real. So in retrospect, as Steve Jobs said, when you look back, you can connect all the dots. And going forward, I couldn't connect them, right? Why am I here? But it really gave me a beautiful thing, and I really respect the, the people that employed me, and I worked for the same company for nine years, and Michael Spencer, the CEO, he ran and still runs an amazing company and I'm thankful for him, but no longer do my values align with theirs, so I would never go back. Um, but uh, yeah. Now let's talk about the journey of London Real. I think that's a nice segue into how it all began, um, the hard work, the team, everything that you did to build what it is today. You know, this is a strange time right now, Roger. You caught us at like the perfect time. 
um, because we are approaching our six-year anniversary. I think that episode was published October something, uh, 2011. It was like 11th or 21st, I can't remember. It was in the same room, just about 10 feet to our left. And um, that was episode number one. There was no lighting. There was two cameras, maybe three. There was no script. We didn't know what was going on. But I knew it should be on video. That was the one thing I knew. And oh. Well, because I always love making videos, Roger. And if you look back when I was 10 years old, yeah. I've got these crazy videos. My mom, she had divorced from my dad and she had become a saleswoman and she was pretty good at it. And one Christmas, she brought home a video camera. And it was the old kind where you had to actually... VHS. Yeah, the VHS and you had the VHS <laughs> tape thing that you had to have slung across your shoulder and then you had the thing. And I used to go around and we would take it to my grandpa's ranch and we would make these shoot em out films with me and my cousins and... If you look back, I'm like the director, and I'm telling people what to do. I'm a little micromanaging bastard, just like I am today. And uh, my whole crew will tell you that's true here. And I'm like, all right, can you do this? Can you do this? And I was trying to make movies. I had no training. So it's funny how I'm coming back to the things I loved doing as a kid. Um, and then when I was a trader, every year here, or when I was a broker here in London, every year, in order to make it through the year of boredom and hate with my job, I would choose something new to do. And so about two years before I left the city, I took a film school course, part-time, and I made a short film. Martial arts film, it's online. I think it's amazing. Not everyone agrees, Mariana's in it. Um, I save her, it's very Bruce Lee. Um, and so I, I learned a good amount about film. I learned more than I thought. I learned about blocking, directing, editing. So it was a really good base. And I'd also plays, played with YouTube a little bit, even 10 years ago. I think I was in, uh, a video of me riding an elephant in Africa on YouTube from like 07. So I knew the platform and I just knew in my heart that a, that a podcast, which I think I created at the time, needed to have video for a connection. So that was super important. So yeah, you've caught me six years later in the same room and in two weeks, this studio is gone. I'm gonna leave a lot of memories behind. This room right here, um, I don't believe in energy, but I do believe in energy. And there's so much energy in this room, Roger. I mean, you've felt it by watching the shows, but this is the same room that Elliot Hulse jumped up, down, jumped up and down and said, we communicate with our bodies. Right. This is the same room where, you know, uh, Chris Eubank got up and started shadow boxing. I thought he was going to punch me in the ribs and break my ribs. This is the same room where I had the epic conversation with Dorian Yates. This is the same room where I had two epic conversations with Ido Portal that led to our film go with him. I mean, I've had 400 conversations. Something great has happened here and it's super special. Um, and so uh, this, is, this is a point where we're moving into our brand new world headquarters and um, we're expanding. Uh, the academy's expanding. So it's this weird point you caught me where I'm looking back, which I rarely do, and also looking forward you know, to the next 100 years, which I'll talk about later. Um, but I think I probably didn't answer your question. You probably wanted to know about the genesis maybe. I do. So, you know, I told you, I, I, I had that epiphany in, in Switzerland, mm -hmm. and I walked out of the city, you know, months later, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I remember I was scared that day I walked out, um, but I had to go. I just knew I had to go, and I didn't know what I was going to do next, um, and I spent six months screwing around, not knowing what to do. I knew I didn't want to do certain things. I could have gone into technology, but I remember I told my dad, I said, Dad, I don't want to go back to my high school graduation and tell people about my billion dollar tech IPO. I just don't care. I'm not that guy anymore. Mm -hmm. So what do I want to do? I don't know. 
And um, I was listening to Joe Rogan, and you know, he had this video podcast, right? And I was watching these conversations, and I remember just feeling, wow, there are these three guys having these real conversations, and the end of it would go, and he'd play his tune, and I'd be like, wow, I just felt so whole and complete. And I joked to my dad, I said, Dad, you should start a podcast. And he said, what are you talking about? And I think that was the seed. And so, you know, on, on October six years ago, I uh, decided that I would start broadcasting. And uh, I was having these long walks in London at the time with my jujitsu instructor. And uh, he was the only other guy like me that was unemployed. And uh, we were having these great conversations. And I, I just, obviously, the stars were aligning. And I thought, you know what, let's do this. Mm-hmm. And so we, I just pulled the trigger. And when I get a project in my teeth, look out, because I am relentless. I am obsessive, and that's what happened with London Real. And so six years ago, that happened, Roger. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. Yeah. Oh, I could see that, and I saw that really well the last eight weeks. Uh, It's been uh, quite a journey. For, for myself and the others in the class that, that we went through that. Yeah, because you've, you've, so you've seen inside the London Real Academy, and so you know the Broadcast Yourself course is what you're talking about. Yes. Eight weeks ago, you started the course with about 60-some people. About 20 of them are here in London for graduation this weekend. And so you've seen what it's like to be inside the Academy, which didn't exist until two and a half years ago, and to see when we teach something how, how hard we go. And it's eight weeks, it's intense, it's 16 hours of live calls, there's video modules, there's homework, there's nowhere to hide. Some people can't take it, but the people that get through it, they become just almost supercharged. And like you were the one of the ones that, you were already doing amazing work on your own, and we can talk about later, later, but you probably felt the people that make it through, they get just hopefully catapulted out the other side, they feel energy, they're part of the family now. I'm, I'm going to know you the rest of my life, I believe. Absolutely. And so, yeah, that's that experience that you had a part of. So you can kind of see inside, and you can see the team. The team we have here, cool. I would put this team up against any company in the world. I tell you time and time again, this team impresses me beyond anything, and my expectations are high. In fact, when we launch a product or we launch a documentary film, what impresses me the most are the way my team behaves. And that's what I tell them the next day. I'm like, what impressed me more than the Edo Portal documentary was you. What impressed me more than the Broadcast Yourself course or our recent Business Accelerator launch was the way the team puts, the, puts in the work and they go the extra mile. I'm just, I'm just really impressed. And that's so important. You cannot do your job without that team behind you. And uh, we both know that. Yeah, I did this solo for three or four years, three mm-hmm. years probably. And my dad, I remember, told me one time, I guess I'm making a lot of references to my dad and my mom. Um, and he said, Brian, because he's, he's an entrepreneur, he's a startup guy, a tech guy. He said, the most work that one person can do is the work of two people, if you stretch it. Mm-hmm. And what he was saying was, if you really want to scale your idea and scale your organization and affect more people, let alone make more money, that's a whole other side effect. Mm-hmm. You need a team. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you need to learn how to manage them. I never managed people in the city. I didn't have to. Right. To make a lot of money, you don't have to do that in the city. And I always stayed away from it because I didn't like it. It was fearful for me. London Real, I was forced to embrace this role as a team leader. And it's hard and it's rewarding mm-hmm. and I'm learning and I love it. Great. Let's talk about your, your core mission. Is your mission different today than when you started? And if so, how? Very much so. You know, 
I had a mission when we started. If you look back, I actually have a mission statement that we wrote out and it sounds kind of funny and putting the BBC out of business and we reject the status quo, we reject mainstream media. And I never liked the mission statement, but when I look back at it now, I could see where we were going. Mm -hmm. You know, we wanted to put out media with people having real conversations about real things and no longer have a three minute, you know, video on channel four that gets someone to say a sound bite. You know, we want to, to really have these conversations. I didn't know why. And I, I've realized, though, that you need this long-form conversation because it's the ultimate original form of education, storytelling. Yes. That's how we learn. We learn by hearing about Brian's journey, Dorian's journey, Ido's journey, Dan Pena's journey. And if you, you understand the story, it locks into your brain. And the Bible knew this, right? Yes. How does the, how does the Bible teach you? Through story. story. And so it's the original form. It's not... YouTube, it's not 60 second Instagram videos. And so that's how you really teach the lessons, the core lessons. I call it the art of listening. If you Mm. sit down for one of my shows, what do you have to do? You have to check your ego at the door because I'm about to introduce you to uh, a scientist who says that DNA isn't what you thought it was. I'm about to introduce you to a guy who says you know nothing about how the body moves and I'm gonna teach you. I'm gonna sit you down with a guy who's 72 years old lives in a castle in Scotland and likes to yell and use four letter words. You have to put your ego in check because you have to go into their brain for the next 90 minutes or two hours. And you have to be willing to surrender your own judgment, your own preconceived notions and, and allow another human into your brain. It's very intimate. But by doing that, that's how you evolve. And um, that's honestly how a lot of psychedelics work as well. It allows you have to you have to let someone else in your brain for a while and accept another point of view. Mm-hmm. So that's what we were doing from the get-go, but I couldn't articulate it very well. Mm-hmm. Now I'm a little better at articulating. Come back in five years, hopefully I'll be a little bit better. But we were just trying to get this whole idea of art of listening, real connection, human stories, empathy, learning in a traditional way. Also rejecting the mainstream media, rejecting all the things that we've been told we have to think. Uh, laws, um, constructs of our society. Why do we have to do them? Why? Mm-hmm. Why are psychedelics illegal? Why is our government right? Why is privacy important? Why um, is human energy something we should talk about? All these things that have come up on London Real a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, why, why should we talk about those things? So that's what we were about from the beginning. I couldn't articulate it as well, but now I have a better vision of it. And so I think we are about this art of listening. And that's what I think any show, long form, is doing. Your show as well. And so for the next... 100 years, I have a mission. And the reason I'm choosing the 100 years is because I love the city of Barcelona. Have you ever been? Absolutely. Love it. Well, I went there originally, I think, four years ago, maybe six years ago with um, uh, my girls before the boys were born. So that's Mariana and my stepdaughter, Gabby. And we had a wonderful time. And there was this church called La Sagrada Familia. Beautiful. And it was built by Gaudí, which is one of their favorite architects in that city. And... When I learned more about it, I said, what's going on with this guy? He started building this church and it's it was, <laughs> it's still not finished. <laughs> right. And it, it's going to be finished in about a hundred years, I think. And he knew it would never be finished in his lifetime. And he was taking his sweet time to build it. Just so people know, and you should research this, he was man, he, he was able to build one wall of the four walls of the church in his lifetime, barely. And that was okay with him. And he always used to say, my investor is not in a rush. And he was referring to God. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily believe in God, but maybe I do, because my investor is not in a rush either. Mm-hmm. And so I'm on a 100-year plan here. And that way, London Real is beyond me and my lifetime. 
I'm out there to change the world through what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do anything else. I don't want to go back to the city. I want to keep doing what we're doing here. Now, it doesn't mean I want to keep having conversations with people in this studio every week. It expands. Mm -hmm. That's why we're doing documentary movies. That's why the London Real Academy is growing. And who knows what's going to happen a year from now. I always tell the guys and the women that, are, that work here, I don't want to recognize London Real 12 months from now. That's hard. Yeah. I don't want to even recognize it. To be honest, I don't recognize it now. I would have never thought we're moving into this new space. I would have never thought we would have had all, coming up on three documentary films. I would have never thought what we're doing inside the Academy. So that's what I want in the next year. But, uh, but for the next 100 years, I want to do something that's going to make a major seismic shift in the world, in the consciousness. I want to change people's lives, and I want to do three main things. I want to put content out that it enlightens people. Mm -hmm. When you first get your first touch point of London Real, let's be honest, it's probably on YouTube. It probably comes you out of the blue. You were searching something, and bam, all of a sudden you're watching Dorian Yates. All of a sudden you're watching Ido Portal. All of a sudden you're watching Dan Pena. And you get some information. And I call it being enlightened. Not educated. Education's boring. Enlightened. Because they say something and you're like, wow, how come I've never heard of that before? I've watched a thousand movies in my life. I went to MIT or Harvard. I've watched every single documentary film out there. But I missed that nugget mm -hmm. of someone saying something real to me in that chair. And people have told me that that's changed their lives. And I used to think that was nonsense, Roger. Yeah. But I've seen people in the streets that stopped me. I've probably been stopped by a thousand people in the streets. And they said, Brian, that episode with Dan Pena changed my life. And I say, thank you so much. I got to go. And they, they grab me and they're like, Brian, it changed my life. Mm -hmm. I made a major life decision because of you. And so I realized that first touch point is about enlightenment. That's when someone goes, wow, I never thought of that idea. But that was the first iteration of London Real. We did a lot of enlightening. And that's great. But I hate that then they went on to another YouTube video and another YouTube video. And then they went back to their same horrible, disempowering lives. So there's another step. And that is empowerment. When you watch a London Real episode, you hear someone say something. But it's not like a, a, a cute picture on Instagram that makes you think, yeah, that's really inspiring. I want you to feel empowered. And that's why at the end of the show I say, what are the lessons we can learn? What's the advice you give to your 20-year-old self? What action can people take right now and change their lives? Take some responsibility. Take extreme ownership, mm -hmm. as my good friend Jocko Willink would say, the Navy SEAL. And that's the second stage. We want people to be empowered. Make change in your life. And then comes the final stage, which is transformation. That is what we do inside London Real Academy. And you felt that over the last yes. eight weeks. And that's when we go all in. And I put my blood, sweat, and tears. It's personal for me. When I'm on those live calls, when I'm teaching those students, I, I want you to change. I want you to change the world. That's what we're doing here. And so that's when you transform. And it really is like going from you know that caterpillar into a butterfly. Like I want you to make change. I know you're probably not going to do it on your own. So I'm going to get you across that goal line, kicking and screaming, and I'm going to watch it happen right in front of our eyes. And so that's what London Real is about these days. First touch point, you get enlightened. New point of view. You start thinking. You talk to your friends about it. Okay, that's cool. Next stage, empowerment. You take some action. You can do all that on your own. You don't need our academy. You can do your morning routine. You can start moving. You can think differently. You can turn off the news. You can turn off you know, all mm -hmm. that mainstream media. You can start working on your relationships. You can start taking extreme ownership. But then you might need help transforming. Mm -hmm. Then you come to us. And that's where the academy is going to come in. And my goal for the next five years 
is to graduate 100,000 members from our academy. And that is the plan. And so we've got some work to do, but we're going to do it. And that means really change people's lives. Mm -hmm. Because you're going to go on and you're going to affect probably millions of people, Roger. Um, and, and hopefully you'll do it better through, through what we've helped Absolutely. you with. And then hopefully with even our further mentoring, you can do it as well. So that's where I see London Real in the next 100 years. Those three pillars of what we're doing here. And um, I just want to take them all to the next level. And I don't know where we're going. Uh, we're going to release 20 documentary films in the next five years. Like I said, we're going to graduate 100,000 members from the London Real Academy. We're going to continue to broadcast conversations like this. This is no longer a podcast. It stopped being a podcast a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know where else we're going. But I'm going to do things that feel right with the right people. Um, I constantly, you know, we, we constantly do projects with the right people. You were chosen today because you're the right person. You know, you weren't hired. You didn't apply. I chose Dorian Yates to be our first documentary film. We chose Ido Portal. You know, these are people that have good energy. You know, we don't exchange money with these people. They, they say, yes, Brian, let's do this. And um, I think that says a lot about us, you know, especially our last uh, documentary with Ido Portal. I mean, this is a notoriously private guy. Look for footage of Ido training in one of his facilities online. Guess what? You're not going to find it because the only place it exists is in our movie yeah. because he doesn't trust anyone. And so he opened us, he opened up his heart, he opened up his studio, we opened up his life for us because we built a relationship over three years of publishing his message, of keeping it by the books, of not doing any nonsense. And I, I really think that says a lot. And I had a lot of pressure putting this movie together. Ido brought his family to London. He had everyone there. He hadn't seen the movie yet. I mean, and, and this is his brand. This is his life. And he trusted, trusted us with his message. It meant so much to me and my director, Luis, and our entire team here at London Real. And after the show, I looked at Ido, and Ido's from Israel. And I don't know if you know people from Israel, but they are brutally frank. Sure. They will tell you if you smell bad. <laughs> they will tell you if something's not good. And he actually had some criticism for the Dorian movie. He was like, yeah, Brian, it was good, but it could have been better. And, um, and I respect that about Ido. And afterwards, everyone was waiting. What are you going to say, Ido? What are you going to say? And it was the next day uh, at the moving experience, because we did a two-day mm -hmm. moving experience. We were at lunch, and he looked at me and Luis, and he said, what are we doing next? Wow. And I did never expected him to say that. And that was a special moment for us. So, you know, I don't know where we're going, but we're going wherever, wherever we want and whatever feels right. And, um, and that's the future. So it's kind of known, but it's kind of unknown. And um, I'm, I'm so excited. You know, I've, I've, never, I've never been at a better point in my life than now. And I'm super grateful for that. I never take that for granted. And I know it could end or it could change or I could have hard times. And I know that will come, but, but I feel great. And I've, I'm grateful and I want to capture this moment. I want to be thankful to all the people that made it happen and I want to honor it and I want to double down on it mm. and just create more things and greater things and change more people's lives. So. Well, as you know, I, uh, from the beginning, have got my inspiration from the show. Uh, it's the reason that I wanted to start a podcast in the first place. Uh, I stumbled upon uh, an email that you had sent about the course and um, just very grateful that that it all came to be. Uh, but I me do too. And I, I mean, just as a little bit of context, sure. um, you know, the broadcast yourself course. People have been asking me for years to teach people how to create your own course. Mm. And of course, for me, the business model of London Real is a whole another story. But I just stumbled on it a few years ago because this was never a business. 
And I remember, I know a lot of entrepreneurs, and even years ago, they'd say, Brian, what's your business model? I'm like, this isn't a business. This is Brian expressing himself. This is Brian having therapy sessions, probably on camera, walking through his own insecurities and problems, getting over his own anxieties, but it was never a business. And so people said, why don't you teach us how to broadcast? And I was always too busy. And we had our Business Accelerator course, which you know is, is our most popular course ever, and I'm so proud of what we've done, but it took a while to get around to broadcast yourself. So that happened three months ago. You were one of the charter members, and you were on my team. And so yeah. I still remember our first live call. We, we do a live one-on-one call, yes. and we get on Facebook Live, and boom, I'm there. You're there. Roger Brooks, suit and tie, and behind you is the studio of American Real. And it's, it's legit, beautiful-looking studio with lighting that looks like inspired by ours. And you're like, Brian, I'm so excited to meet you. And I was like, Jesus, Roger, I'm excited to meet you. And you were so pumped up and so excited. And I was like, wow, you know, you've done some serious work. And um, yeah, you inspired me, Thank to be you. honest. And so it, honestly, I get inspired by my students and by people involved in London Real all the time. And you blew me away. And not only that, you went all in on the course as well, even though you, you were already broadcasting and you knew what you were doing. And you went all in anyways. So first of all, I just want to thank you for that. You were one of, of the shining lights of the course. You help other students. Um, and that's the other thing I do. I watch how people behave. And when, I, when I'm impressed by their behavior, I like to invest more in them. And so that's kind of what's going on here. And so it was a no-brainer when it was time to figure out who was going to do this. It was you. And um, so, yeah, that's some thank of the backstory. So. Now, do you remember what you said to me? I, uh, I recall we were on the face, Facebook Live call, and the studio was behind me. And I said, Brian, I... Apologize, but uh, I, I copied your set a little bit. I hope you don't mind. Do you remember what you said? I probably said uh, what I probably said. Good artist copy, great artist steal. That's right. Okay, I think Picasso said that. Yeah, once. I'm a firm believer of that. You know, well, all work is created from something that was already there, right? We just improve it, yeah. and everything is a meme. Right. You know, and so you should never get precious about your intellectual property in that sense. And that's what I respect about you that really helped me get to the next level. When I first uh, emailed, uh, you know, I'd sent an email to the general email and Julian responded. And he said, by all means, use the name. I said, Can't, how, do I, how do I get the rights to the real brand? He says, you have the rights. I mean, that, that says a lot. And I knew then that this was different. You know, I went on the Joe Rogan experience, you know, so that was about a year and a year and a few months into doing London Real. And it was honestly a dream come true. Uh, I don't know if it's the same as how you feel being here. I don't know if it's at that level. Probably not that level. But still, it for is. me, it was inspired by Joe, and I went there. And and in, even in that one year and three months, you know, the old greedy banker Brian Rose knew his character was transforming. And I said on Joe, it was probably the only intelligent thing I said on that show, because I don't think we did a great job. But in the end, I said, Joe, this has changed my life. I'm a better person. And if anyone out there is listening and you want to change your life by broadcasting, and you want to start your own reel in your own city, then go ahead and do it. And on the back of that, you know, we had New York Reel and Vancouver Reel and all these other reels. There's probably been 30 or 40 or 50 that have started. Not many have kept going. That's why I have respect to you. Vancouver Reel just celebrated their 100th episode. Awesome. They were here for that. Love those guys. Respect to those guys. All of in New York is still doing great work, and there's a bunch of others, definitely. But you know, a year after that, people said, Brian, what's your franchise model? You can charge people with a name. You can sell them, blah, blah, blah. But that's not what new media is all about. Mm -hmm. This is the new media age. We don't play the old reindeer games that old media plays. That means you BBC and you New York Times and you Fox News and all this bullshit. 
where you say, we're copyrighted. You can't take that. You can't use that. Well, I don't believe in that. Yeah. And so, and, and so th this is the age of collaboration. This is the age of having people on, of encouraging them. At, there's no competition in this space. You know, go back to what we teach in the Business Accelerator. A thousand true fans. Find your micro niche. Find that, those people that want more of you and give them more. You could take another American from San Diego who went to MIT and went to Wall Street and put him in London and he would never create anything like London Real. Right. So why am I worried about that? I love competition. Helps me step up my game. You brought coffee cups today that are better than my coffee cups. <laughs> so now Julian is busy right now stepping up our coffee cup game. So we welcome that. And yeah. so yeah, all I say is put out a show with good energy and I have no problem endorsing you with the real name. That's what I say. And so, and so, you know, as soon as we saw what you were doing, again, I had a little issue with you taking the entire country, Roger, but um, I can't deny that you're doing great things. And Thank so, you. yeah, for us, it's not about the franchise. I would just rather people be putting great content out there, and I want to empower that mm -hmm. at all times. And you've seen what people have done in this course and how it's transformed them. Yeah. That's what's amazing to me. I knew this course was going to be great. I knew it was going to be big. Some people did great things. Some people got on ranked on iTunes right away, new and noteworthy, number 11 in the financial department of one of the podcasts. That's great, but also the transformation of themselves, having conversations with real humans. People were like, wow, I love this, Brian. And, and I know you've experienced something different. Your life has changed in the last three or four months since you've been broadcasting hardcore on American Real. It has changed completely. Can you describe that to people? I... The best way I could describe it is I feel myself for the first time. I've always uh, enjoyed my work. I've always given it my all. Um, I respect my superiors. But I never felt like it was my own. So for the first time, being able to, from inception to publishing, put a piece of content out to the world, which by the way, you helped me get it out sooner than I would have because we're perfectionists and we want to you know, wait till everything's perfect. But for the first time, I could say, I'm, I'm proud of what I do. I love what I do. And this course helped me get there. I wouldn't have been able to do it alone. Maybe at a, at a smaller level, but not to the level where I feel I am today. Well, you're kind of in this family and community of broadcasters now. And then you can also, you can see the ethos behind the scenes that creates London Real. And so it's probably some things I say on those live calls where it's just like, you know, maybe the copy steal thing. Maybe we publish every week no matter what. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to publish. Perfection is paralysis. All these little things that we say that I think, you know, helps you just move along a bit faster. But your feeling what I felt and what I continue to feel with London Real is that you're putting, you're doing something great for the world. You own it and it feels great. Yeah. You're, you're making people happy. You're telling great stories. And I'm telling you, the knock-on effects of putting out good energy in the world, you will get a 10x return. Yeah. And I can't explain this with my degree from MIT. I can explain conservation of momentum. I can explain E equals MC squared. But I cannot explain, <laughs> Roger, how when you put out good energy and vibrations in the world and help other humans, that it comes back to you tenfold. And yet, as an engineer, I can observe it in the laboratory. When I'm publishing content, when I create London Real, when I post episodes for free, not asking for anything in return, my relationships get better, my yes. health gets better, my diet gets better, my, my life gets better, business opportunities come my way. 
documentary movies come my way. Amazing team members come here and, 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 and work with us. So <laughs> as a scientist, I cannot deny these changes. So there's something going on here. And I think as humans, we don't understand everything that goes around us. Yeah. And so there's something here. That's why I believe everyone should broadcast in some capacity. And if you can start, right. do it. And of course, you've gone all in, Roger. And I've got a funny feeling that's what you normally do. <laughs> and so I try. again, I love what you're doing. I can't wait to see where you're going to be in six months or a year. Thank you. So um, one question I had for you that I'm, I'm experiencing now, and that is, and I didn't really think about that this would even happen, but I'm seeing an amazing response and shift from the guest. Like I never really, I, I knew I wanted to put out good content to enlighten people. That was my initial thought as well. Um, but I'm receiving a response from the guest that is just incredible. It's, it's uplifting them, you know, Nine out of ten of them have said, this is the best interview I've ever had. I mean, is that the same for you? Yeah, and I saw you post. I know you had that musician, and she mm-hmm. came in, and uh, you know she wrote yes. back, and thank you so much. Yes. You know, Greenberg. I got a phone call when I was in Bulgaria, and it was about, it was the day we released our episode with Chris Eubank, right? And Chris Eubank, famous world-class boxer, also slightly misunderstood and misrepresented in the press as a bit of a weirdo and that kind of thing. We put this episode about him out, and it was this beautiful piece getting into his soul, and we put clips out, and, and Luis did some beautiful montages for us, and he called us up, and, and I was like in Bulgaria, and I was traveling to go see Mariana's parents, and I said, hello, and he said, Brian, I saw the episode, and it's absolutely amazing. I mean, this is a hardcore boxer, right? right? And um, I said, thank you, Chris, really appreciate it. I was about to hang up, and he said, no, Brian. He said, no one's ever done something like this for me. He said, I've been doing media for years, but this is different. And I really appreciate it. And I was, oh, this is Chris Eubank. Yeah. Come on. You, you know, he doesn't have to say that to me. And so I know exactly what you mean. Because these people haven't really had a piece like this done about them, done with so much care, mm-hmm. where you really care about how they're represented to the world. And that's what I always felt. When you come on London Real, whether I like you or dislike you, whether you come in here and are mean to me or not, it's my job to represent the best version of you to the world. And I feel a seriously personal responsibility to where I get, you know, my ulcers in my stomach unless I can do a very, very good job. I feel like I owe it to you. And I just don't think people have that experience with media, point Mm. blank. I think they go to a mainstream outlet, they get what they want, they spin what they want, they stick a title that gets clicks, and then the musician or the baseball player or the senator says, well, that's not actually what I said, and okay, thanks, but eh. Mm. Whereas when they see something you put out, it's a piece of long-form content that really embodies who they are. It's been done with love and care, and they really appreciate it. And I'll say one more thing. That long conversation you have with them is like a therapy session. And probably no one has really cared enough and had that type of conversation with them in a long, Mm -hmm. long time. And I'll say one more thing. When the cameras are on and the microphones are on, it's like a conversation on steroids. Like I could have my best buddy in here, and one of my best friends is coming from New York City, Next week, we used to, you know, rage Wall Street together, and we're going to have dinner, but it's not going to be the same conversation as if he was in that chair. Right. Because we, he's in that chair, I can say, Dev, um, what was the worst moment of your life? And he's going to answer me. Mm-hmm. When I ask him that at dinner, he's going to say, come on, Brian, can we have another drink? Right. And so there's something special that happens in these chairs when you turn the lights on, and you can have real conversations, and everyone knows it's, it's, you're playing for keeps. Mm-hmm. And something special. And I'm telling you, Roger, you're going to feel this too. After doing this for a while, 
you don't want to have conversations except when they're on air. Right. Because that's when you have real human connection. Yeah. You know, and that's when you can get the good stuff. Yeah. And I'm telling you, when guys want to hang out at the pub and watch the game, you're like, what are we doing here, guys? This is not a connection. This is a wasting time. Yeah. So it's an occupational hazard. Right, right. <laughs> so, but just to finish, I'm not surprised you're getting that feedback from the guests. And um, that's a good sign you're doing something right. And it's a great way to build long-term relationships. Um, a good friend of mine says, I don't invest in businesses. I invest in people. Mm. And that's what we're doing at London Real. I've invested in 400 people over the last six years. These are long-term investments. We spend a lot of time and money investing in these people. And that's because we believe they're worth investing in. Everyone that comes on London Real, I believe they're worth an investment. That's seven days of our bandwidth here, our promotion. That's all of our time. That's of our effort. That's of our energy. Mm -hmm. And that's just like an investment in a company. You know, What's that worth? Is it worth $10,000? Is it worth $100,000? Is it priceless? I don't know, but we're investing. And you can see things come back on that. You know, guests come back to town. Steve Maxwell, every year he comes to London Real. At the end of the episode, we book his slot in for the next year. I kid you not. Wow. September 9th, we'll see you September 10th. That's a Friday. I'll see you then, 4 o'clock. He's come back four years in That's a row. fantastic. And so same kind of relationship with Dorian Yates, Ido mm-hmm. Portal, Dan Pena, all these other people. And so, Great yeah. relationships are built. And that's what life is all about. Yeah. They say your your net worth is your network. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, if net worth is important, and I think it is in order to have the capital to spread your message, then it really is your network. So invest in people. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's, and put their time, put your time into them. That's how you raise your kids. That's right. You put your time in there. So uh, I'm not surprised you're getting that reaction. Thanks. Um, so you talked earlier about the art of listening. Yeah. I call it the power of listening. Mm. And uh, I remember when I was uh, a teenager in particular, played a lot of baseball, and my father always told me, he said, uh, you're a good listener. He said, and that's, that's a good trait. You need to continue to be a good re- listener the rest of your life. I've noticed you are a great listener. Even when we're on our live calls, if people are talking to you, you're listening. A lot of people don't listen today. I go to these corporate meetings, there's people on their phones. There's people, I mean, it's so distracting. There's no respect. Um, you know, and, and, and if you're sitting in front of the client, what are you going to do? You can't say anything. Um, where did you develop the skill of being a great listener? It's a great question. Um, and, um, you know, thank you for that comment. Um, big pet peeve of mine is, is mobile phones out. You know, I won't tolerate it with anybody, really. Like, I, you know, I just won't tolerate it. Um, it's super disrespectful in my opinion. I mean, you might as well be having a conversation with someone else in front of me because that's what you're doing. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that if someone's in the room with you, then they should get all of your attention and be focused on your attention. So, you know, listening is, is a crucial component of doing what we do. You know, I need to listen to the guest. I would argue sometimes I've been on the opposite side of that. I've, I've faulted too much in the listening. For the first two years of London Real, I didn't even say much about me. I think I was shy. I wanted to be about the guest. You know, when the guest is here, I, again, want to I wanna represent the best version of that guest to the world. And by that, I don't mean the most rosy version. I want to ask them hard questions. I want them to confess about mistakes they made. But in my opinion, that's the best version of them to the world. I want to ask them a hard question and see them answer it with, you know, with, uh, with panache. That's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And so I think listening is, is really important for that. Um, on the courses, you know, I'm trying to get in someone's head to find out 
where they are in their journey of resistance, and so I can kind of break them through that piece of resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as myself with listening, I don't know. I don't know. I think for me, teachers have always been really important for me. So when I go to learn something from a teacher, I never bring my own baggage. I never project my own ego. When I go into a martial arts studio, when I go to Dan Pena's castle, I shut the F up and I don't project my ego. I don't project anything because I'm there to get as much information as I can and I'm there to respect them. My martial arts teachers in the past, I would pay them for the services, but that was incidental. I would pay them with my attention and my work and my ethic because that's how I think you repay a martial arts instructor or some other mentor. You pay them with execution, respect, attention, and listening. And money might come later, mm-hmm. but that's just, that's an incidental. So um, I don't know where it comes from, but I think it's really, really important to do that listening. On the same point, some people just listen. And so I think for people like you and me, we have to get out of our comfort zones and make sure that we assimilate our mission and talk about it. Mm-hmm. And that's what's super important. And that's what I'm gonna wanna see you do in the next year to be able to reiterate that mission of American Real. Because if you don't talk about it constantly, people won't get it. And one of my affirmations every single morning is, we are constantly telling our story over and over again. And that's one thing we always try to do here at London Real. We try to tell where we came from, where we're going, and we wanna just continually remind people what we're about. Because I think it's important to do that as well as listening. So um, that's my point to you, and it's a reminder to myself that I can't always sit there and listen because then we're just a collection of conversations. London Real needs to stand for something. It needs to stand for change. It needs to give people more than the enlightenment, gives them the empowerment by example from me and by our students, and then it needs to transform them through actual hard work in the field, you know, through really down in the trenches like we do it on our courses, live calls, getting in people's faces, calling them out, the stuff that's uncomfortable. That's how we teach, you know, in a real raw format, as you know. Yeah. And that's how we get results, big 10x results. You also alienate some people, but that's how we think we're going to make some big change. So, Right. And um, you, you had talked about earlier the um, independent media, which, which were in that business. Yeah. Um, and you also talked, you touched on global consciousness. Can you expand on that? I mean, I know what you... Uh, what you mean when you say that, but I don't know if the average listener really understands what that means. Let me explain. So global consciousness is a, uh, a very, what is the right word? Crunchy, maybe hippie, airy-fairy term, right? Global consciousness. If you had told Brian the banker the, the phrase global consciousness, he would have you know, probably smacked you in the face, right. uh, double leg takedown, choke you out, and then throw a couple hundred dollar bills on your face and uh, pop a bottle of Cristal. <laughs> it's probably what he would have done. Um, but once I started broadcasting and started interviewing people and listening to people, really listening to people, I started, I think, having empathy with other humans. Get inside their head, see their perspective. It's not how you think everything is. Maybe there's things out there that are not how you think they are. And I think doing that over and over again allowed me to just open up and see, see humans for what we really are. And the more people I speak to that are at a really advanced level of consciousness, and I'm talking about people like Dorian Yates and people like Ido Portal, and even grumpy, old, nasty, $50 billion men like Dan Pena, they really are saying the same thing, as in, we don't have much time here on this earth. We need to honor our life and our consciousness by doing big things, that we have to look out for each other. You know, we really are 
all one in some way. And it sounds crazy. And from an individual capitalistic kid that was raised in California telling me that I'm responsible for some, you know, seven-year-old girl in Indonesia or for some kid in Rwanda, I would be like, what are you talking about? But the more I get inside people's heads and realize what makes us happy as humans, what connects us, I, I realize that we all have some type of consciousness that's together. And so I believe that what I'm doing here, I know that what I'm doing here is affecting that. Mm. And um, I actually started meditating before I left the city. I started doing something called transcendental meditation. Mm -hmm. Now, you can do whatever meditation you like. I started with TM. I don't do it anymore. But it's a practice that makes you meditate 20 minutes twice a day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are some very famous people that do it. I think the Maharaja is the one that did it. And, um, uh, and so that put that practice into place. And that was one of the things that helped me leave the city. And they have something called the Maharaja effect. And they reckon that if 1% of the world's population meditated, that it would change the human race. Because when you walked into a city and 1% of the people were meditating, everyone would feel a certain amount of ease. And then they would be at ease. And then they would treat people well. And other people would treat other people well. And it would have this knock-on effect. And I think we're doing the same thing here at London Real. Mm -hmm. Because we're opening up these conversations, these stories of people who are doing good work in the world, who have failed at life, gone through hard times, persevered, have come back and are contributing ideas. You might not agree with all of them. They might be wrong, whatever that means, but they are doing their best to take humanity to the next level. And I think every single one of those conversations that we broadcast that gets consumed changes that global consciousness. And I think we just need that 1% effect. Right. Call it the London real effect. And we, we, we can really change the world. And I know that term sounds silly, and we use that term in, in my voiceover in the Ido Portal movie. And I was, I was laughing with our director, Luis, about it. And at the very end, um, you know, I said, I know how we can change the world. And it starts by moving our own bodies. And it's just one of the many tenets of London Real, moving your body. That's one of the main things we talk about on the show. By doing that, you get in touch with your own consciousness. You show people that we all are the same. We have these bodies. And so I feel like every single thing we do here and that we broadcast changes the consciousness potentially of the world. And we're doing it one guest at a time, one listener at a time, one viewer at a time. But we only have to get to like 1%. We're actually not far off right. because that's 70 million people. We've got about 50 million views. So we're not far off from getting that 1% effect. Now, that's to the enlightenment. Now I get to got to get these people to be empowered. That's going to take maybe another 20 or 30 years. And then we got to get them to transform. And that might take 100 years. Right. But that's okay. It's going to keep going on after I die, and uh, this will just keep progressing forward and be continuing to build. And other people will pick up the torch and do what they can to bring global consciousness forward, like you, because it's in your own interest, because mm -hmm. it feels good. You know when you're doing something right as a human. You know when you're doing something wrong. When you're banking the cash in the city, and you're driving in the Lambos, and you're drinking yourself to death alone in a 2,000-square-foot apartment with no furniture you know you're doing something wrong. Right. <laughs> when you get hugs from guests at the end of a show, and I want my hug at the end of this show, and, you know, fighters, killers like Nigel Benn are crying for two minutes at two and a half hours into the show, and people are writing me saying, Brian, you changed my life, and people are going through our academy courses and getting London Real tattoos on their bodies, I think we're doing something right. And you don't need a rocket scientist to tell you that. You don't need an IPO 
You don't need me banging on the NASDAQ exchange for me to say I'm doing something right. It feels right. So you're going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep doing it. And hopefully anybody who picks up that torch of independent media is going to keep doing it. And maybe it doesn't mean broadcasting. Maybe it just means helping someone out. Maybe it means lend a helping hand to someone who's not a blood relative. Maybe it means, you know, giving someone a hug. Maybe it means, I don't know, just trying to be more conscious, more human, more understanding, more forgiving. Um, that's what, that's what we're doing here. And that's what I think I mean by global consciousness. Yeah, so no, I've gone completely the other way. That's wonderful. It's wonderful because the, 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 the folks I associate with, and I've had to elevate my peer group over the last, say, five to 10 years, are all on this same wavelength. I tend to find people wherever I go that are on the same wavelength. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, something I, major is happening. There's a major shift happening in the world for the good. A huge shift. And again, I've said this before, 2011, London Real was created. It could not have happened five years earlier. YouTube didn't exist. Five years later, the space would have been very crowded. It would have been this. Mm -hmm. My memes would have been affected by other people's memes. It happened at the right place at the right time. This is the birth of new media. When I started, iTunes had probably 20,000 podcasts. Now it's got millions. millions. This is the time to do it. And it's never too late. It's not too late to start podcasting. It's not too late to start broadcasting. People think, oh, it's already too late. Everyone and their mother's got a, a podcast. Not true. Come on one of my courses. We'll show you how we do it. Right. We create quality content that is that is evergreen. People want to watch it and view it for a hundred years. I truly believe the content we create here on London Real is going to be watched a hundred years, a thousand years from now. I it's in my deep in my soul I know that's true. Yeah. People will be watching that Ido Portal documentary a thousand years from now. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, and so, yeah, that's very, that's very true what you said. And I always go back to that quote by Eleanor Roosevelt, and I think I'm going to absolutely ruin it. But she said there's three types of people. Some people talk about things. Some people talk about people. And other people talk about ideas. These days, with the things that I'm doing in my life and with broadcasting and everything, I only hang out with that last category. And this is a great test for anyone that's listening or if you find, let's think about those top 10 friends you have. And if you don't know who your top 10 friends are, look at your phone. Who are the people you allow into your life via, say, text messages or Facebook messages? What are the last 10 people? Those are probably the people you spend the most time with. What are the conversations you have with them? Do you talk about the football game? Do you talk about Trump? Do you talk about um, money? Do you talk about this stuff? Okay. Do you talk about other people? your friends or this, or again, people in the news or this or that or that actress, or do you talk about ideas, movements, transformational things, goals in life, higher evolutions? That's where you're at in this world. And I like being on the top end of that spectrum. And I only hang out with people like that. Whenever I'm with someone that starts talking about dumb shit, (laughs) I just politely excuse myself. Whenever I'm in in the thing that starts talking about someone else, I just politely move on. I, I like. I feel like I don't have enough time on this world. I want to talk about. I want to talk about big things like we talk about right now. Yeah. And um, those are the people I hang out with. So um, yeah, again, it's a great way to test yourself and and uh, try actually talking about ideas. You'll find you feel good as well because you're mm. not talking about kind of things that don't matter. That's right. And that's why I don't like the mainstream media. If you look at even the New Negative. York Times, which I think is one of the better versions of the mainstream media. The front page is all there to scare you and get you involved in things that don't have anything to do with you. You know, the hurricanes hit, and I feel for the people there, 
but I'm not going to use your tragedy to entertain myself today. I'm right. better than that. Right. I'm not going to use Trump's latest stupid idiotic comment to entertain myself. I need to focus on my knitting, which means let me focus on London Real, my students, our media, my family, my friends. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's what I'm concerned with. You talked about meditation. You also mentioned affirmations. Uh, would love to have a little bit of insight into Brian Rose and some of the things you do on a daily basis to prepare for your day. You're a busy guy. I see it. I've spent a lot of time, you know, on the peripheral uh, with you the last couple of months. You're busy, How, and you have a family and the staff. How are you preparing mentally each and every day? Great question. Um, and I was just thinking my life has changed so much, you know, in the last six or seven years. You know, back when I was, you know, a city broker, I didn't have a routine. My routine was to wake up in the morning and say, not again. <laughs> really? Wow. And then I would roll out of bed. I would try to avoid wearing a suit because I was so sick of it. I actually dress be much better now than I used to in the city. That makes no sense, does it? I would drag myself to work. I would maybe get to the gym and then I would start drinking at night because I didn't want to be who I was. And that was my only escape, really. And that's the only way I knew to get out of that world for a little while to give me some peace. And I would rinse and repeat over and over again. That was my old routine. Not so good. Um, I ended up getting a martial arts practice and I can train and I had some good parts of that, but I didn't really have a morning routine. My current routine is an aggregation of the very best that have sat in this chair. And I realized this about a year ago. And that's when we created our Life Accelerator course. And those are the 18 high-performance habits of the best guests that have ever sat wow. in this chair. And I had adopted them into my life, and I didn't even know it. Dressing for success, Dan Pena. Um, daily movement, Ido Portal. Yeah. Extreme ownership, Jocko Willink. Meditation, lots of my guests. And relationships, Esther Perel. All these things, I was doing exactly that. Uh, getting things done, David Allen, the book. Um, goes on and on and on. And so now I have this, I, I think I listed them for you, my daily routine. And it's, it's, it seems like a lot of things. Yeah. But for me, every day I need to be a high performance person. Every day. There's no Fridays off here. There's not even Saturday where I can afford to waste a few hours. There just isn't enough time. I need to be on. I need to be expanding. I need to be investing. You know, to the outside world, London Real seems like a juggernaut. And some people said, even in the early days, I don't know how you do it. First of all, I love to make it look easy. You'll never hear me complain about how hard we work around here. Because for, in my opinion, a professional makes it look easy. An amateur makes it look hard. Or an amateur tells you how hard they're working and how hard their life is. A professional, like Conor McGregor, knocks the guy out in the first round. He doesn't tell you how hard he trains or the fact that he had a staph infection and he was actually sick and his left finger was broken. He knocks him out. And when he has a loss, he takes it. That's a professional. Mm -hmm. And that's the way we try to act around here. Um, but in order to put out the, the volume that we do, everything is, you know, everything is hardcore. And the team is the same way as well. We have a stand-up morning meeting every meeting, every morning. We all do movement practice every day. We all have a maker mode where we lock in. We have deadlines. We take everything very seriously around here. Guests get the red carpet treatment. Um, everything is by the book. We have amazing people working on new product, working on films, and so all that's happening. So I feel like I need to be on every day. Now, in the early days, it was just Brian in the studio, right? right? I was tinkering away. I was editing every episode. I was creating every trailer. I was booking every guest. I was doing the logo on Facebook. I mean, I was doing everything. 
And I think that was good because now I know how it all works. I know how hard it is. I also know when it can be done better. And sometimes I remind everybody here that I used to do it better and we need to get, we need to up our game. And so I've found all of these routines that I do now. And so in the morning, first of all, I got to get my sleep. Sleep is crucial. And I've never met anyone that slacks on sleep. Okay. Actually, Jocko says he doesn't sleep that much and maybe Jocko can get away with it. But everyone else I've ever interviewed has their sleep. Even Dan Pena gets his sleep. And I try to get my seven or maybe even eight hours. That's crucial. Luckily, I have the most wonderful woman in the world named Mariana who raises our two sons and keeps them from waking me up at night. Wow. She is the one that jumps on the grenade and she is old school. She is, you know, Eastern Bloc Bulgarian. And in Bulgaria, there is no complaining. It's against the law. And so she doesn't complain. And when that, those boys are born, she's like, I got this. And so she has been the one that's probably kept London Real performing so high in the last 16 months because my boy Caden is a bandit, right? And my new boy Damon, you know, <laughs> they're, they're on. And so she really makes sure I get that sleep and she handles everything at home. Uh, and I'll get back to her later. She also supports me 100% on London Real and always has, even when it wasn't a business, even when it was driving me crazy. She was always supportive. So, and again, starts with sleep. After that, I wake up, meditation. I, I, I'm disciplined about it. I wake up, brush my teeth, back in bed, 20 minutes of meditation. Every single morning without fail. Because when Brian doesn't meditate, Brian goes back to the old Brian. Brian gets cynical. Brian gets self-destructive. Brian gets mean and not nice to people and not thinking of the bigger picture. I don't like that guy. Nobody likes that guy. And guess what? Every day, I pay my insurance premium so Brian doesn't come back. Meditation is one of those payments. Can you talk a little bit about what you do with your meditation? Yeah, so again, I was raised on TM, which means quite simply, 20 minutes twice a day. You can have a mantra, which is a single world that you repeat to yourself to get yourself in the zone. I've been doing it now for seven years, so I'm pretty good. So I close my eyes. Um, I actually have these, um, these uh, soundproof um, headphones that I put on, like the guys that jackhammer the streets with. Right. You can get them on Amazon. I think I have them in our Life Accelerator course. I have links and I put some shades over my eyes. So I'm just totally in my own zone. I use a mantra if I have to, but I don't really. And I just go deep and I go into no thought. Just I try to quiet that monkey mind. Again, phone is on airplane mode. So I'm a no big believer of that. That way my subconscious isn't even thinking there might be an email there. Now, maybe I should keep it out of my room, but I'm okay. Airplane mode. So I wake up in the morning. I don't have media for the first hour of my day. I wake up. I get my meditation in, and again, that's what I do. 20 minutes, it's like paying the bills. Uh, sometimes I can go longer. If I have time on the weekend, I go longer. I don't do a morning, an evening course. I probably should, but I don't miss my meditation, ever. Even when Mariana was going into labor to, to deliver Damon, I meditated before we went to the hospital. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Baby, I'm sorry. And her mom was in town, right? And she's old school Bulgarian. And apparently in Bulgaria, they, they put you in the hospital even three days before you go into labor. And so for her mom, it was inconceivable that we were going to take a taxi to the hospital. And so it was like seven in the morning and um, she's downstairs and I'm upstairs meditating and Mariana is like about to go to the hospital and grandma's down there going, what is he doing upstairs? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I still meditated even before then. So sorry, baby. But that was just, again, that practice that I did. So again, super important to just get that out of the way. Right. I think it's very important to daily meditate. However you do it is great, mm -hmm. but get your time in. Just try to go to zero thought. Don't beat yourself up about it. If you start thinking about that uh, person at work that's bothering you or the girlfriend or you got to go shopping, it's, again, meditating 20 minutes is the goal, not 
to go quiet, not to become the Buddha, not to have a revelation of, of your purpose in the world. It's just to quiet the mind. So just do it. If you do it for two weeks in a row, two months in a row, two years in a, in a row, your life will transform. Your life will transform. All high-performance people have some type of meditation or mindfulness routine. And what about the affirmations? So, boom, affirmations. Dan Pena, the $50 billion man, when I was up there at the castle, it's, it's like he said that I do affirmations. And I thought, here's this guy who yells a lot and wears a three-piece suit and has a castle, and he's doing affirmations, which is something I thought a bunch of crunchy people in Berkeley would do. And my, my, my sister lives in San Francisco, so nothing against the beautiful people in Berkeley. But it seems like a very hippie thing to look in the mirror and say, I love Brian and all that stuff. But I was like, Dan Pena's doing it. There must be some science or some engineering here. And Dan said, I have 17 affirmations, one for every goal in my life and one for every member of the family and then a couple others. And he said, I do them every morning and every night. And for me, that was a light bulb moment. And when I came back, I wrote them all down and I have them all on my iPhone now and I took it to the next level. So every morning as I walk from my house to the tube, I say them out loud. And when someone walks by me, I try to say them louder. And now I've got builders that think I'm probably funny and old ladies. And I say I'm right when people go by me, you know, and I say, you know, and I just bold out these huge, bold affirmations, you know, London Real is doing this. We are transforming people's lives. We have 100,000 members in our academy. I am saying my future goals as if they are certain right now. We're the greatest new media and transformation company in the world. We are um, excited about our 100,000 graduates of our London Real Academy. We are, you know, all these things as if they are true. You know, and, and I say that out loud and I'm telling you, even when I say them, I feel better. It empowers me and, and I believe it's a huge game changer. And I think if you're not doing your affirmations every day, start doing them now. Don't think about it. Do them now and say them out loud every day. And I've been doing them for about a year now and it's, it's really changed my life. Uh, but for people that really don't know what they are, can you just give a, a quick Yeah, overview? so again, just that brief as well. So say you have goals. First of all, if you haven't written down your one-year goals or even your 30-day goals or your five-year goals, I think you're also doing yourself a disservice. So, you know, take some time right now, pause the video or whatever, and just pull out a sheet and write them down. Maybe in four categories, like, you know, relationships, health, you know, wealth, and maybe just general happiness, you know, and just write what 30-day goal and a five-year goal. What do you aspire to? Where are you going? You know, that way you don't get into this routine like I used to have in the banking world where, one goal was increase my net worth, and that's all I had, and I'd had nothing else greater. So put those in, and then you wake up in the morning, do your affirmations as if they already happened. I am excited to be 70 kilos and have an eight-pack washboard ab uh, that looks in the mirror and laughs every day and takes 400 Instagram photos. I am so proud to be happily married and have a, a, a five-member family that are crushing it every day. You might be single. I'm excited to be the CEO of a million dollar business. You might be a solopreneur that just started. Um, all of those things you say as if they are true today. You can, you basically trick your brain into believing they are true and then you act as if during the day. And so when, when someone asks you, uh, would you like to have a meeting to talk about this JV partnership? You don't think, oh my gosh, I'm not ready for that. You think, I'm the CEO of a million dollar company. Of course, let's do that now. And it affects the way you behave. It really does. The brain is a pliable, instrument. People don't realize this. The brain is this crazy, you know, uh, pliable instrument that goes wherever it's taken and you can program it literally every single day. And if you don't, someone else will program yes. it for you, aka mainstream media, society, watching people and doing memes around you. And you will do exactly what they do, even though you think you're living your life independently. Your life is being lived for you unless you take active work against it. 
So that's why you have to do your affirmations every day. And if you do them every day, I, I didn't love the movie The Secret because I think it's a little bit too much the other way. I don't believe you can just think of things and wish them in your life. But I think if you do your affirmations every day, things come to you. They really do. And I credit the birth of my son Caden and the birth of my son Damon to an affirmation. Because I'm telling you, if I hadn't have every day said, I am excited and proud of our very first child that Mariana and I have and our beautiful family that we have together. I said this through horrible miscarriages, through years of, of, of you know, us potentially giving up. And I always say, like, you know, it was hard, hard on Mariana, hard on me. And I'm telling you, every morning I said, I am proud of our family. And I'm telling you, I think that helped when I would see that look in her eye where she's thinking, are we going to stop trying? But in my mind, what are you talking about? We have the family. We have the family. Mm -hmm. We're just going to make it bigger and make it better. And so I believe things like that empower you and they open you up to possibilities and they keep you positive when things are hard. So big fan of affirmations. Get them down. Say them every day. Say them out loud. And I have people do this in our Life Accelerator. In our last class, people walked around in the public and filmed themselves and said them out loud and posted them. And it was amazing. There was a woman that was so shy, walking around the Tower of London, screaming out her affirmations. I am a strong, powerful woman who knows who she is and will not take anything from anyone else. Bam! Awesome. If you say them, and I I told her, why wouldn't you say something that's true out loud? Two plus two equals four. Why wouldn't you say that? then why wouldn't you say, London Real is the greatest new media and transformation company in the world. I am proud to have a billion views. I am proud to have affected the lives of 100,000 people through London Real Academy. I I am this person. Why wouldn't I say it out loud if it's true? So that's why I love people when they say it out loud. It also gets you over social constructs and all these other things that hold us back in in the world. So big fan of affirmations. You mentioned the movie Secret. Um, Earl Nightingale recorded something called The Strangest Secret back in the, I believe, the late 50s. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. No. Uh, but basically what he was saying is, is that your thoughts trigger action. Mm. So the same thing. And he, he did an experiment, and um, I've been listening to this now for about five years, and it really works. It really works. Um, this may sound crazy, but I knew I was going to be sitting here today. And I'm not saying that in an arrogant way. When I started the course, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I I, I treated this like a second full-time job. I have my day job. I work for a great company called Zipline Payments, and I work really hard at that. And we're we're trying to make, um, you know, uh, big progress in the industry. But this was my second full-time job, working for you and the other leaders within the course. But I said to myself, for the first time in my life, I'm not going to settle for anything less. I want to be there. So, again, it's just uh, reassurance that when you put your mind to something and really believe it and say it out loud and, and don't be afraid, don't be ashamed, I'm living proof. And I thank you for that. You're welcome. Our very first documentary film with Dorian Yates, six-time Mr. Olympia, Incredible human being, incredible athlete, incredible life. The first sentence in that film says, everything begins with a thought. And that's what he said about his whole life. Everything begins with a thought. And he visualized himself as Mr. Olympia with nothing, less than nothing, in a council flat, with, you know, a, you know, a home where his dad died, with nothing. And he visualized himself. Everything begins with a thought. 
I'm going to be Mr. Olympia. And that vision is going to get me out of this place. And that belief in that vision. And so I couldn't agree with you more. Everything begins with a thought. And then you nurture those thoughts. And you can bring anything into fruition. Right. And, uh, and so I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> but it's obviously coming true. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned um, the miscarriages. Miscarriage, Mariana. Not easy to go through. Uh, my wife and I, Sabrina, we know uh, several people have gone through this. I've never experienced it myself. But um, would you mind just sharing a little bit about about that? And again, uh, how your positive attitude got you to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So um, first of all, I'm speaking of, of Mariana, the love of my life. She hates it when I say that. Um, and uh, we've been together... I think eight years. I probably should know longer. Um, the, that short film that we made just came up on, on uh, Facebook, and I think it was seven years, maybe eight years ago. Okay. So we were together longer than that. Um, and I met her when I was, you know, selfish Brian, in the city, never going to get married, never going to have a family, right? Because that's ridiculous. That's what stupid people do. Uh, that's where I was. And I remember we celebrated New Year's Eve right here in Hoxton Square, which isn't far from here. And um, we went out that night and watched the fireworks. And I said, did you make a wish? And she said, yes. And I said, what was it? And she said, well, I can't tell you. I was like, come on, tell me. And she said, two boys and one girl. And I thought she looked across the, the park and saw two boys and one girl. I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, that's what I wished for us, that we would have two boys and one girl. And I was such backward Brian then, that I laughed out loud. I couldn't even conceive of having a single child with anyone, let alone a pet, let alone any level of commitment or opening my heart up to any kind of human like that. But she said it because that was her vision. Yeah, Talk about affirmations and visions. <laughs> she had one, right. you know, and I, I honestly thought it was comical and I didn't think about it again. But that's where she was at the time. And as I progressed in life and I got more connected with who I was and broadcast London Real and did more and more of this stuff and, you know, had my ayahuasca ceremonies, which just, in my opinion, is just a continued uh, exploration of my consciousness and humanity and things like that. I made a decision to move in with her and her stepdaughter, Gabri Gabriella, and adopted her and we went into this home and I started doing things like, what am I doing? This is crazy. This is not like the old Brian at all. And I was opening my heart up to people that could hurt me. And people hurt me in the past, and I got reminded you can't trust humans. They're going to hurt you again, Brian, just like when you were seven and just like when you were 17. And, um, and I let him in my life, and we got a cat, and I'm like, what's going on here? And finally, we decided to have a family, you know? And I thought it was going to be, it would take me a week to get her pregnant uh, because I had never tried in my life, right? And, and so I thought it was going to be super easy, and we realized it wasn't, you know? It was like going to take a lot of time. And, um, and it took time, you know, it took uh, years. And, you know, things went well, and then we had, we had failures. You know, we had a, a pretty bad miscarriage, actually a, a few days before I, I went to Dan Pena's castle wow. about three years ago. And to be honest, it was the perfect excuse not to go. Perfect excuse. Now, you want to talk about resistance? It's a term I use on all of our courses to people. Mm -hmm. uh, when people don't want to do things, they say, I, I have resistance, you know. I have um, something stopping me from doing this that's very important, mm -hmm. right? And um, 
And people always use that as a reason to quit, yeah? Um, and you can come in any form. Like my computer isn't turning on. My father died. My legs got blown off in Afghanistan. Everyone's got a reason not to do something, right? Sometimes it's, it's raining outside. But what this is is resistance. It's you giving yourself a chance to cop out in life. And so I think I knew that even at the time. And even though I didn't want to go to that castle and I thought it was going to be a, a challenging and I knew it was and Mariana's having this issue and everything and, and yet, you know, I still went even though that was happening. And we faced this hard time, you know, and we just did it together. And I think we knew that we were just going to keep going and keep fighting. And so we just went back to the drawing board and we went to go see the doctors and we went to what can we do now? And let's get some medication that thins the blood and doesn't have the clotting and let's do this and let's do this and let's do this. And so, and she is an amazing woman, you know, she supported me from the get go when it come to London Real. She never once questioned my dedication to this insane idea of me not working for years and years and years and coming into the studio, putting out videos when nobody watched. It's easy to look at London Real now and say, oh yeah, Brian, you know, we've just had the, the, the biggest launch ever in our business accelerator, our biggest and greatest class ever. We're moving to a new building. Our third documentary film comes out in a month. You know, this is nearly 400 broadcasts. You know, everything is firing. Four years ago, it looked like I was insane, mm -hmm. right? And mentally disturbed to keep doing this crazy, silly thing. She believed in me. And again, she is just someone who has a strong will. And between both of our wills, we just kept kept moving forward. And um, I can't believe what would have happened if, if we never had children. Um, this boy, Caden, is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my whole life. And I know how ridiculous that sounds. And I pick him up this morning, and I look at him, and I, it's just, he's just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Ever seen in my life. I'm so lucky to have this experience. I can't believe I almost missed this ride, Roger. Yeah. Uh, to be a human on this earth and not have children, oh my God. And I was so close. I mean, if it wasn't for Mariana, I'd still be in that 2,000 square foot apartment. I'd probably be, you know, liver failure right now from drinking myself to death. Still being, it's all about Brian and how come Brian isn't happy. But with between her and the London Real community and all these things, I've been shown a different way. And, um, and she stuck with me on that. And she stuck with me um, through building this family. And she could have quit. But I think between the two of us, we just kept going. And so... You know, look, I know a lot of people have problems out there and women and men, but, I, you know, with science the way it is today, sometimes it's just about the resolve, you know? Right. And, and who knows? Maybe we would have even adopted, but there's something really special about raising a child. And, um, and so then, for all of our sins, Damon came a year later. <laughs> so uh, at this rate, we're going to take a break. But, yeah, we had two in rapid-fire succession. That's incredible. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Yeah, we're, I'm really lucky and really blessed, and... And really vulnerable, you know. I've got yeah. these two young boys, and something could happen to them. And but that's my new reality. So I have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. It's one of my affirmations every every morning. You know, <laughs> I'm willing to get uncomfortable <laughs> in order to achieve the things in life. You know, I'm you know I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. It's a great quality. And so that's why I say every day, and it comes in my personal life. It comes in London Real Studios. It comes in everything we do. But um, yeah, it's 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 been transformational, and I just the reason I talk about those mis miscarriages, and I'm sure Mariana would rather I not. She's very private, and she's very old school. And like like you said, you know, she comes from a a part of the world that's just it's they do things differently, and I respect their culture tremendously. Um, and she has a wonderful family, wonderful parents who are super helpful. 
But um, the reason I talk about it is because I know other people are going through these situations. Yes. And also, we, it's something in society we don't talk about miscarriages. They happen all the time, but they're very hard to talk about because it's a big loss. It's a sensitive issue. And, um, and I know people are out there dealing with it. And I would just say persevere. Medical science is amazing. Not giving up is amazing. Try all sorts of new things and try different methods. And if not, there's adoption. And if not, there's mentoring. There's right. bringing people in your life. Yep. You know, I have an aunt who never had kids. We are her children. And, um, and it's just a shift in her mindset. But, um, but yeah, that's my journey so far. No more kids as of now. We'll see. And being each other's rock, right? Having that support uh, of, of one another. I think that's incredibly important. You gotta have to go, you have to go all in on the other person. I think yes. that's really important to do. And, yeah. and, um, she's gone all in on me and, and London Real. And she does amazing work raising for this family for me. Like, people are always like, Brian, why aren't you tired? Why aren't you cranky? Why aren't you this? It's because she is taking care of things at home in a huge mm-hmm. way. Not to mention cooking me amazing meals. <laughs> so right now, I'm, I'm building all the capital I need for the next year for Mariana to continue being amazing. So. Right. I think I've pumped her up enough. <laughs> Well, I think I definitely uh, met my match in you as far as um, level of commitment. Again, I, I mentioned that earlier. I see it. Um, one thing I was curious about, is there a certain time of day where you do unplug? I mean, are you, are you, do you say, okay, 8 o'clock, 7, whatever it is? Because that's what I've observed. I was just curious on that. Great question. So part of my routines that we haven't really talked about is my movement practice. Mm. So I move every day. And probably more because of Edo Portal now that I just know that in my head. I'm also much into movement of my body. I used to be into lifting weights. Breakdancing. Yeah, breakdancing. That's what I do now. So everybody knows around here, around 130, 145, I disappear and I go move. And for me, that is my time where I can reset my brain. I can unplug. I, can, I can't think about anything because I'm doing these highly taxing body weight moves and breakdancing is my, is my choice these days. And I, I do do lifting. I still swim. I do yoga. I do hill sprints regularly every week, but I also do at least three sessions of breakdancing, sometimes with an instructor, a lot of work on my own. An hour session, I go hard. And um, yeah, that's why I have a little bit of a cut on my forehead because of my windmill. Got me bleeding a couple days ago. But I love it. I love moving. I do believe the body is the mind, the way Elliot Hull said. I believe everything from our Ido Portal documentary is true. It, these are connected. It's not, you know, Descartian as he speaks of where everything is in your brain, which right. is kind of the way I was taught, kind of the way the world looks at things. Yeah. Um, for the longest time, my body was a, was, had one function, to carry my brain around from good time to good time to good time. That's all it was there for. And now I honor the body and I try to just give it, give it that time every day to make myself do it. And I love it. Um, my brain works better when I'm figuring these things out as well as also this level one movement that Ido Portal talks about, not level three. So I'm constantly figuring out new moves. I'm getting frustrated. Beginner's mind, I suck at things, and I try to make it, it you know, it's the art of, of making it not suck when it sucks, you right, know? Right. And so that's what I do, and that's really how I unplug every day. I come back, I'm in new spirit, I've got new ideas, and then I put in another so many hours. I try to get out of here. At a reasonable hour, 8.30, 9-ish, I try to get home. I try to have dinner with Mariana every night if I can. If she's still up, I try to see the, the boys harder. I usually see them in the morning when I wake up. Um, and then I try to get a little quiet time at night. But lately, not too much. But I try to limit the media when I get close to bed. Mm-hmm. You know, and then on once a week, I do a no-media walk. I go through Hempstead Heath. I do a hill sprint. Nice. And I jump in the lake. And I walk through nature. And I just unplug. And I just 
cherish the plant intelligence and the trees and I feel like I get spoken to somehow and that's when I make all my big decisions for the week. So do hill sprints till I want to throw up. I jump in the lake, which is a beautiful thing here uh, in Hempstead Heath. Um, and then I go on a no media walk. So no podcast, no music allowed. And I, I, I have a conversation with myself. All right, Brian, what do we have to think about this week? What are we avoiding? What are the hard decisions we have to make? Okay, business decisions, personal decisions, team decisions, vision decisions. And then I make them all then. And that's kind of my routine. And when I do all this stuff on a regular basis, I don't take a lot of vacations. Yeah. I, I love coming. I come in here alone on Saturdays. That's great. I had a fight with Mariana about eight months ago. I tell this story. And um, I, we had a fight about something. I don't fight with her very often. But I, 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 I slammed the door and walked out of the house at 11 o'clock at night. Came back at like 2 in the morning. Next morning, she come, wakes up. She's like, oh, I'm sorry. Last night. I was like, I was sorry too. She's like, where'd you go? And uh, she, I don't know where she thought I was going to go. Uh, the bar, the strip club. And I was like, I went to the studio. And this is where I go. This right. is where I go. This is where I, this is where I relax. This is where I plan my ideas. This is where I feel like I can do great work, create things. And so that's where I went. I went to the studio and then I went home. And uh, this place is like, it's a great place for me. You know, for me, London Real, it's like a, it's like my own crucible. That's what it is for me. It's a place where I can go and I can put myself to the test. I can throw myself in the deep end by saying, let's do a documentary film with Ido Portal and see if we can pull it off or fail. I can put myself into a, a live event with 175 London Reelers that have flown around from the world and see if I can do it. I can put myself in a live interview with my idol from CNN, Christian Amanpour, <laughs> right. a badass journalist with 35 years of experience on the ground in the Persian Gulf, on the ground in Rwanda, in Bosnia, you know, in the middle of hurricanes. You know, she's there in the chair and I'm live with her and I gotta deal with that pressure. That's the beauty of London Real. I have to get in front of an academy and teach. I got to take 135 incredible entrepreneurs from around the world through eight weeks and create businesses from nothing from their passions. That's a tall order, but we're going to do it. We're going to do it with style. You're coming with us and I can't wait. And I've got team leaders from around the world. We've got intellectual property we've been working on. We've got video modules. We've got workbooks. We got, and we're going to pull it off. And that's what London Real is for me. It's a way for me to push myself beyond the boundaries and also to hopefully create you know, game-changing media for the world. So. so it's incredible. And it sounds like you have really transformed your life over the last several years, right? From, from the old Brian to the new Brian. And, and, and again, I'm just elated to, to be with you and, and sharing this. Um, but... You know, can you can you tell us a little bit about that balance? Because there has to be a balance of, you know, aggressiveness, but you know, somewhat sometimes being passive. I mean, you just have this great balance about, and, and I'd like to get inside your mind a little bit of, of how you do that. How you know, do you ever get angry? Um, you know, I've never heard you yell. Um, can you talk about that balance a little bit? Yeah. First of all. I'm in a great point in my life when I look back at the old Brian. By no means am I some type of a Buddha. <laughs> right. By any means. By no means am I um, someone without flaws, someone sure. without things that I don't like about myself, someone without a lot of improvement. You know, five years from now, I, I'm really expecting a much better version of Brian Rose. Much better. And 10 years and 20 years, I'm expecting something, you know, more enlightened, more 
tolerant, more hardworking, more stoic. That's what I want. I want to go there. And so I still battle with that stuff. And I still battle with, you know, these two sides of me. And we've got a documentary film that's going to be exploring this a little bit in the next couple months, and you'll see it. Because you know, the old Brian was this city banker, Gordon Gecko. It's all about the bucks. It's all about what can we do to, you know, maximize this one number, which was my personal revenue. Then after that, you had the Brian that was all about not doing that and all about the message and enlightening and producing the media and that kind of thing, but nothing when it came to starting a business and going out there and getting big and all that stuff. And now we're coming back a little bit. And I'm like, okay, we have to build the business to help us transform the message. I, I, I wear a suit because it helps me get myself in the game, helps me lead, helps me tell myself every morning that I'm important and I need to represent everything that I stand for. And so, you know, I'm always dealing with these two sides of me. You know, I'm always thinking, okay, um, I want to open my courses to everyone in the world, right? But at the same time, I want to make sure that we ask for investment in those courses so we can take that money and build more stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to push my staff and my team here and myself to do more. But at the same time, it's like at some point, we're tapping out, Brian. Like we can't do the documentary and create the Broadcast Yourself course and do episodes every week and find a new space and do the live event. That's sometimes the weeks look like that here. And it's 10 of us going crazy and everyone's here on weekends and stay until 11 at night and it's, it's too much. Mm-hmm. So at some point I have to pull back because I have a tendency to go aggro and I have a tendency to be relentless and I'm really hard on myself. I'm my worst critic. I don't celebrate my wins. We have a joke around here called popping bottles. Uh, which is what uh, Julian likes to do. Julian's English. And uh, they like to pop a bottle over here in England when they celebrate things, right? Pop right. a bottle of champagne. I'm not good at that. I don't like to celebrate wins. Whenever we get a win, I wait about five minutes and I ask myself, how come it wasn't better? And what are we doing next time? And I have to enjoy those moments a little bit more, celebrate with the team, acknowledge their hard work. So I'm always battling that. I'm also try- always trying to be more stoic. I'm always trying to be more open-minded. I have guests that come in here, you know, uh, that I, I might not agree with them. A guest that I think, I don't think I want them on this show. You know, when I first hear of Bruce Lipton, he's like, oh, DNA uh, isn't what you think it is, that you can wish things out of your DNA. I'm like, wait a second, I think that's not true. So, and so, do I want him on here? I'm gonna ask him some hard questions. Now, once I have him on, I realize that was the right guest to have on the show, but sometimes I make the wrong calls on guests. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes like a Mantak Chia shows up who's gotten me massaging my belly organs, <laughs> right. and I'm like, this guy's out of his mind. But then I realize he's actually not. Mm-hmm. That guy's smart, mm-hmm. and he's got a lot to teach me about Eastern medicine, and I almost didn't have him on the show because I didn't think his ideas were, were, were the ones that I wanted to curate because I have a big responsibility here. When, when you're on London Real, I'm basically endorsing you. So I have to be very careful, and I, it's a responsibility I take seriously. So... But sometimes I, I'm too conservative, or sometimes I don't know. So I'm always making those mistakes. I gotta listen to my team members a lot more. They're saying, Brian, we have to go this way, you wanna go that way. Sometimes I'm always about building, 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 and sometimes you need to focus on like the quality of the content. I need to spend more time with my family. My boys are growing up like this. Um, I need to spend more time with Mariana. I'm here in this studio, you know, 12 hours a day. Um, maybe that's too much, Brian. And so these are things I'm grappling with, Roger. And, you know, when the boys get older, they're going to need some serious dad time, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. Relationships need, need face time. 
or as we say in jujitsu, mat time. You have to be there. Right. So these are the things I'm going to struggle with. Also, I have my own control issues. I need to, to get people on the team that I can relinquish control to and let them help me scale the message. I need to take more risks. I'm naturally conservative. One thing Dan Pena taught me, I'm an engineer. I was taught to build bridges and planes mm-hmm. that don't break and don't fall out of the sky. It means I'm not good with risk. So I have to push myself to take risk, like building a completely brand new London Real World headquarters that's costing more money than I care to talk about when, you know, when we don't have that money, but I'm investing the next hundred years. So these are the things I struggle with. Um, and I it always could be better. And I always want to be better. You know, I can be very stressed a lot of times. You know, I walk down the street and I'm thinking about a lot of things. Yeah. Is the new space going to be ready? Is our documentary film going to be amazing? It can't be, it can't be mediocre. Right. You know, is that episode going to be amazing? Is our academy going to be amazing? Is the business accelerator course going to be off the charts and make sure no man or woman is left behind? That's asks a lot. Mm-hmm. 135 people from around the world in like, I don't know, it's like 30, 39 different countries, 15 different time zones. I have to make sure they all get across the goal line. It makes me stressed out. Mm-hmm. I, some nights I have a hard time sleeping because I'm thinking about six different things. So I've got a long way to go. I need to be more stoic. I need to spend more time with my family. I need to uh, make sure my team, they feel great about what they do. I need to support them, empower them, make sure they're all getting a win out of this experience too, which I think they are. Um, so these are things that are on my mind. My physical practice could always be better. Um, you know, my, my, my diet, I take pretty strictly, but it could always be better. So, uh, look, I'm a work in progress. Um, <laughs> definitely. And again, you know, if you see me on a typical day here, I mean, it's, it's, there's work and there's stress mm-hmm. involved. I think that's necessary. Yeah. Have you found that, uh, you're more aware and more present these days again versus the, 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 the banker? Yeah. Look, I definitely think so. You know, I think also at the same point, you know, you're going to miss some of that as well. Mm-hmm. But I like, I think through the meditation, I think through a lot of the messages I get from the guests in here, because each guest for me is a mentor. Each guest for me is like having a degree, almost like a bachelor's sure. degree, because I learn from them right here in the flesh, right? I mean, you've seen me for 16 hours of live calls. You've seen countless number of London Real episodes, but being here with me now probably feels different, right? Yes. So when I'm across from Jocko Willink and he talks about extreme ownership, and this is a guy who is scary, proper scary guy, you take it on board. When Dan Pena is yelling, you take it on board. When Ido Portal moves in front of you, you take it on board. So I've got all of those lessons. So I, I take on those aspects of my personality. So that's, that's great. Um, so I'd like to think I'm more present in the moment. Um, sometimes I catch myself not though, you know, because mm-hmm. sometimes I catch myself thinking about the future so much that, you know, I'm sitting down with, you know, you know, Christiana Mumford on Tuesday and I, I'm stressed. Because I'm like, is the camera working? Is this working? Is it? You don't want to see me half an hour before an episode because I'm not nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm worried about all the things that could go wrong. I'm making sure my game is tight. I'm re- reciting my intro, making sure it all goes well. So look, I always want to be more present. Even during the episodes, I think I have a lot of work to do. I'm my biggest critic. I, don't, I still don't think I'm even purple belt when it comes to um, having conversations and being a good host. I think I can get many more levels. So I'm trying to get there and in many aspects of my life. So Yeah. And that's what I think I was talking about with that balance. You have a from what I observe, a good balance of being calm when you need to be calm, but giving it your all when when you need to. Yeah. Right. I think so. And now my week routine is pretty good. Like I said, that Saturday I really cherish it. I have my walk in nature. Mm-hmm. Nature's really important to me. 
Dennis McKenna helped me with that and just spending a lot of time there. There really is something therapeutic and even mildly psychedelic about being in nature and getting back to your roots and cleaning your brain. And so, I, and, I, and if without, without that Saturday, I'm actually not going to get it tomorrow because I'm going to be interviewing you in this chair and all of the graduates from the broadcast yourself. So I'll skip that day tomorrow and I will miss it because I, I'll, I'll, I won't get to clear my head. But graduation only happens once every few weeks and you guys are here, so we're the host. So it's all about you guys, but I will miss that day. And then Sunday, I get a little bit more of time away from the studio. Um, and that's my reset. And every now and then, I should probably take a little more of a vacation too. But yeah. I can go pretty long with that routine. That's good. No, and I've actually started taking some guests up to a nature preserve uh, where I live in, in upstate New York. And um, been doing two-part series, one in the studio, one at the nature preserve. And it's been incredible. I, mean, I, I love going by myself as well. But it's really neat to take a walk with a guest to get the senator or uh, someone like Edmund Cotton who teaches me breathing exercises while sitting on the on the bridge. Um, yeah, I love that about you. And I saw that piece you did with Edwin um, outside uh, before you had him in the studio. And I think there's something really special about the moving conversation. Yeah, for sure. And it's something we, we did for the first time, I think, maybe two, two and a half years ago. And that was when Ido Portal and I did you know, what we called a moving conversation, mm -hmm. which was Ido and me walking through the streets of London having this conversation. And it's an amazing piece. We were super proud of it. Again, we were terrified to do it. We had never done anything like this before. Everything could have gone wrong. But I asked him, I pitched Ido. I have to pitch every single week here at London. Mm -hmm. People think like it's easy for us. No, I pitch. You know, try to convince Ido to do something outside of his comfort zone. You have to pitch him. So, we're like, no, it's going to be great. We're going to get five camera guys. We're going to walk through London. Is there going to be a problem? No, not at all. What happens? We almost get arrested twice. <laughs> all these problems, issues, cameras, honking horns. But we did it, and the moving conversation was very different. And that's why, that's how that spurred the Dorian Yates film, the Ido Portal thing in Israel. And now we've done a lot more of these moving conversations. We had the one with Magnus Walker recently, one with Steve Maxwell coming out, one with Dennis McKenna in the park. It's a completely different game changer. So yeah, I think I love what you're doing with that, and you'll see London Real doing more of that as well. Great. Um, at the same time, by doing more of the moving conversations, we also realized the value of this studio. Mm -hmm. And there's something you can't get in a moving conversation. That point where you're two hours in, where the guest tells you something they would have never told you before, or they have an epiphany in their own, and they think, wow, I really need to do that with my life. You know, that therapeutic moment, think you only get in the studio mm -hmm. so we're going to continue doing both um, but yeah it's it's an important part it's part of our evolution so we, you've talked about Ido Portel a number of times now I love that documentary that happened actually I believe in the first week of, of the broadcast yourself course when that came out so it was great timing for me um, but Israel uh, I that's a place I want to go can you talk about your experience there um, what did it do for you what did it do for your Soul. <laughs> uh, great question. Um, I mean, first of all, people that don't know, um, it was our second documentary film. It's called Just Move, yes. and it features Ido Portal, who is a movement expert, I would say. It's hard to put a title on him. Uh, he trains some of the greatest movers in the world, including Conor McGregor, the current UFC champion and the guy that just fought Floyd Mayweather for you know the billion-dollar fight or however much it was, and one of the most watched fights in history. And to be one degree of separation from that fight is a very strange thing. Mm -hmm. You know, to be hanging out with the guy who's going to be training the guy 
in that fight weeks before is, is an amazing thing. And it's something I'm super grateful for. And I'm actually grateful to all the people watching London Real because it's because of them I kept this up and it's because of them I had the opportunity to do this. So I, I never get in my own head about that stuff. I never get egoic and thinking, look how badass I am. I mean, I'm here only because people tune in every week and also those people push me to be the best version of myself. Mm. So that's why I get these opportunities. But this came up. We started this relationship with Ido. Again, I think as we invest in people and we put these great pieces of content out about Ido. I, I interviewed him first three and change years ago, back before anyone had heard of him, back before he met Conor McGregor. We put that investment in and we put out a great piece of content, a great interview, if I do say so myself. I think after three years I can recognize that I'm okay at certain things. <laughs> My last year, I won't say anything's great. But it was a great piece of content we put out and we started this relationship with Ido, who can be um, very opinionated, very cagey, very single-minded. You know, he's all about his own IP and his own work and I love what he does. And he's an amazing individual. He is, I've said this before, I believe he is the smartest man in the world. He is an incredible mind. He is an incredible mover. He's an incredible human being. Mm. And if you enjoyed the documentary and you enjoyed my conversations with him, you have about one-tenth of Ito. If you spend time with him, you'll see that there is so much more. And he is knowledgeable about things that he just won't even talk about. He is so knowledgeable about nutrition, probably the most knowledgeable guy I've ever met. But he says, Brian, I still don't feel knowledgeable enough that I want to share my, my, my message. He said, movement. I think I can handle that. Nutrition, nutrition, he said, I think I need maybe study 20 more years, and then I will. That's how hardcore Ido is. Um, so it's great being around him. Again, a mentor to me by inspiration, to watch him talk, to watch him you know, move, to watch him carry himself. Uh, it's very special to be a part of that. And so for us, we did the moving conversation with him. That showed us we can get out of the studio. That showed us we can put, a, put together a 90-minute piece where you know, it keeps people's attention. And that's something that Luis and I worked on. We dropped it two years ago, I think. And it was a big move forward. It's been watched about half a million times. Very special piece. And that was big. A lot of pressure. Can we pull it off? One take, one shot, walking around the streets of London. Who knows what happens? Police officers come and stop you. You put rings on, on trees in royal parks. Apparently that's not legal. Um, but we made it through, and it's a great piece of work. What comes next? Documentary films. So... Dorian Yates comes along, we go down, fly down to Marbella, spend five days with him, doing everything with him, lifting weights, going on bike rides, smoking weed, you know? Uh, when I don't like smoking weed, I still did it, and got inside Dorian's head and made our first documentary film. I'm super proud of that. Did a premiere in London at BAFTA, right? The equivalent of the Oscars. It was amazing. One of the best nights of my life. Tons of pressure, tons of stress. Again, Dorian had never seen the film before. Flies here in front of the whole world, trust us to tell his message. It's awesome. Oh, so much pressure and so much trust. It's like, it's, I'm gonna start tearing up if I talk about it. So that was amazing. Shows us what we can do, but we always want better. So we pitch Ido, can we do it with you, Ido? Uh, and again, you have to go all in and you have to convince him this is the right thing to do. And I think he said no a few times and then he was like, okay. And I wanna do it in Israel. I've never been to Israel. I've heard about Israel. I've heard that's where everyone shoots each other, right? I've heard that's where everybody fights. That's where the things in the Bible oh, actually happened, right? That's where this stuff actually happened. Crazy. Let's go. Why not the first time I go to shoot a documentary movie with the greatest mover I've ever met in my life, if not one of the greatest human beings I've ever met in my life, with my team, my family, my guys, who I trust to tell this story and put a lot of pressure on us for five days. And I want to fly El Al, the national airline, just for the hell of it, because I've never been on there and I want to fly their airline. 
which is a whole nother experience. And um, that's what we did. And um, it was amazing. Um, to no surprise of myself, the people are, are amazing. They're just like you and me. They're wonderful, warm human beings. And guess what? That's what all humans are like. They're wonderful, warm people that at the end of the day, they want to be happy. They want to raise their kids. They want great things in the world. That's what humans all want. We get told a different story. Politics get involved. Countries get involved. People have hate talk and fight each other and blah, blah, blah. But whenever I get a bunch of humans in a room, I get positive energy. When we're doing the right things and talking about the right things, it always happens. And in Israel, it was the same thing, if not more. Amazing people, wonderful people, warm people, great atmosphere. Um, and then the Edo people on top of that. I mean, they're just, you know, his, his movers are incredible. Super grateful. Also, a lot of them had come to Ito's studio after they saw an episode of London Real. So people are coming up to me saying, thank you. You're the reason I'm here. And I'm like, again, I just try not to listen to that. I don't, I just, I can't even acknowledge that. I'm like, thank you. So it was amazing. He let us film. We moved. We walked along the beach. Everything went wrong. Everything didn't go wrong. I flew, I fly, try flying a drone in Israel, right? Think it's going to be shot down or you're going to get shot. But that didn't happen. So we did all this crazy. So I went to the Wailing Wall you know, and, and we filmed at the Wailing Wall and that was scary and terrifying and unauthorized and, you know, we thought they were going to take our cameras away, but we did it anyways and getting up at four in the morning to where we can have the perfect shot when the sun rises that you see in minute three of the movie and all the guys went and did that and just an amazing experience. We have an incredible team. Then to come back here and do the hard work of making it into a movie, which is, again, a completely soul-destroying experience. You know, uh, yeah, I felt like I got an ulcer you know, for at least six weeks, I was very, very, very stressed out and uncomfortable because I thought we weren't going to have a movie. And Ido's got his mother and father flying in from Israel to come to London to watch this movie. And, you know, six weeks out, I'm like, this is a piece of garbage. So we worked really hard <laughs> to make something that's, you know, that's worthy. Yeah. And we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. But what an amazing experience. And I had an amazing time there. Um, you know, one of our London reelers was on the ground there. Um, his name is, is Ken Kaminsky, and he was like our fixer there. He like set everything up, and he, he, he talked, you know, spoke Hebrew to everybody and paid for the parking and just made sure everything happened. He was our sixth member of the team, and he was a London Reeler that was an Academy member early on. And when I called him up, I said, dude, can you hook us up? He's like, I got you. And he just had our back. That's and awesome. at the end of it, I was like, okay, how much do I owe you for all the parking and all this stuff? He said, it's on me. And, and he came to London a couple days ago, and he said, Brian, you got to come back to Tel Aviv for real sometime to have a proper vacation. And I said, you know, I should. I said, but at the same time, what a way to see a town. Yeah. When you go in for five days, filming a documentary about one of the greatest guys in that town, and everybody comes together, like maybe it's that wonderful. is the best way to see a town. Yeah. So yeah, it was a special experience. I will say when I was posting vlogs from there and I put them on Facebook, I got all sorts of Middle East hate, people hmm. jumping on one side of the equation, and I never felt that before. Brian, how can you support this? Or blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I was like, I'm here to talk to Ito about movement. Right. And he lives in Israel, and I'm going to talk to someone in Israel. It, you know, and if I was going to talk to someone from another country, I would go and I would listen to them, and I would judge them as a human being. Do they contribute to the human experience? That's what my barometer is here at London Real, not your country that you're from or mm -hmm. your religion or your politics. That doesn't mean anything to me. So I was surprised to hear that. So we felt pressure when we put this movie out that we were going to get a lot of hate because I'm on the wailing wall. I'm wearing the, my yarmulke on my head because that's what you do out of respect sure. when you're there. Um, and I thought people were going to weigh in from all the sides and m myself and the whole team were waiting for it. 
the same time, we're in Israel. So let's not run away from it. You know, there's a point where Ido says, this is a place, it's a culture that started after the Holocaust. It's people from all these countries around the world coming to one place. We are surrounded by enemies. We played that in a test screening. People said, I'm offended by that. And I was like, well, I think even the people surrounding them would agree they're enemies. So we had to talk. It's real. It's London real. So we had to address these issues, and I was very comfortable with it. But actually, none of the hate ever came. And I believe it's because they watched the movie and they saw we were talking about the human experience. Mm -hmm. We were talking about the body movement as an essential part of your being. And I think they could see through all the politics. I don't remember seeing a single political comment, which shocked me because that's all we had when I posted my vlogs. But isn't that a great sign? Because that is exactly how we're going to change the world, how you're going to change the world, how I'm going to change the world, and, and everyone else that is part of this movement. Yes, amen to that. Yeah, and that's the kind of message I want to put out. Right. And even the Dorian Yates documentary, you got a guy who used to be 260 pounds of pure lean muscle, right? And I'm telling a story about him, and I told everybody here at the team, I said, I want the 73-year-old old lady in the very back of the theater to walk up to me after the movie and say, thank you, that meant a lot to me because it's a human story. It's not the story only if you're a male bodybuilder or were a fan of Dorian in the 90s. And we did that with Dorian and I, I think we did that with, with Ido. And, and I agree with you, that's what we're trying to do here. And also, I'll take that one step further. My job at London Real is to stick someone in this chair every week that could offend you, that could challenge you, that's gonna make you say, who is this girl posting uh, skimpy pictures of her doing yoga on her Instagram account, Keno McGregor. Who is this guy named Bruce Lipton who's saying that DNA isn't what scientists say it is? Who is this you know, person talking about illegal drugs? It's illegal, Brian. LSD is illegal in America. What are you saying, our government is wrong? I don't know, but let's listen to what he has to say. So that's my job, actually, to get you out of your comfort zone and to push the limit. And so I like offending London Reelers. I think it's my job a little bit to push the envelope. I don't wanna, I don't want to play to the choir every week. So like, and that's my job too, to push myself. Sometimes I'm uncomfortable with the guests. Um, you know, I had a, a cop in here in London who, had, who shot people. You know, he shot like three people in the line of duty. You know, and they were criminals and things like that. But I had to ask him, I said, you know, you have a history of shooting people. Um, you also have a history of being acquitted. But, I, but I'm glad we had that conversation with him because he told the story of a policeman that most people never saw. You know, at the end of the day, you can judge him, you can hate him, but he's living his, his truth as a human. And you probably can walk a couple days in his shoes and understand him a little bit better. Right. So that's what we're trying to do. So uh, Dorian Yates, Ido Portel, let's go into uh, opening night. The red carpet comes out, the lights dim. You're sitting there. Please explain the feeling. Well, first of all, we like to go big at London Real. So when the first film came out, Dorian Yates, I'm like, we have to have a red carpet premiere, right? Why wouldn't you? Right. So we pitched this to Dorian, fly in. We're going to you know, have everyone show up in suits and ties. Of course, we do it at BAFTA, you know, where, they, where they actually give their Academy Award equivalent right on Piccadilly in London. All the fanfare, open bar, champagne reception, you know, 300 guests. I mean, we go big. And um, I think that's just a little bit of flash and showmanship. And I think we like putting pressure on ourselves. And I think 
you know, we, we, we feel very confident in our content and we believe our messages are important. And I feel go big or go home, you know? Again, honor this moment you have as a human, you know? You should just do your absolute best every day. Right. Push yourself to the limits, you know, face the fear, go with the resistances, maybe offend some people with your art, but go, go push it. So that's what we decided to do. It was a ton of pressure. Um, you know, on something like that, we're working on the movie right up to the hour. You know, we're doing test screenings in the studio four weeks out, three weeks out, two weeks out. People are coming over here watching the movie, telling us how much it sucks, telling us how they don't understand that. We're recutting, we're re-editing, we're, it's just so much stress. Meanwhile, Dorian's coming to town, hasn't seen the movie. All his friends and family are coming. We're selling tickets to the premiere. People are paying hundreds of pounds to be there. The venue's there. I equate it to basically driving like a hot rod towards a brick wall and right when you're about 90 miles an hour, you put your foot on the pedal and you go up to like 150 miles an hour, just hoping the airbags are gonna work. So meanwhile, the, the movie's not done yet and I'm sending out invites and you know promoting BAFTA and trying to sell more tickets when I'm like, we don't even have anything yet. So it's tense. And when the lights go down, I'm just thinking, okay, first of all, I'm thinking, let the movie play correctly for the next 90 minutes. That's what I'm thinking. I'm also thinking, I'm very proud of this movie. I felt the same way with Ido and the same way with Dorian. The whole team, myself and Luis, we spent so much time on this that honestly, I'm proud of it. Even if they don't like it, I'm proud of it. So I kind of, I, I do kind of disassociate a little bit, you know? And then I try to enjoy the moment and I hold Mariana's hand really hard, really hard. That happened in both of them. And about 15 minutes in through Dorian and she had seen an earlier cut, she turned to me and she said, that's great. And I was like, okay, cool. That was good. But with Ido, with the, the lights went out, and again, it was madness beforehand. Much harder film to make, much more difficult. So many constraints Ido put on us. I'm not gonna move for you. That was a great constraint Ido put on us. Thank you, Ido. But it made us, it forced us to be better filmmakers. So we had to find a better way to tell his message. And, and I'll put that movie, I will put that head-to-head -head against any content that is made about Ido or since or in the future. I'll put our movie head-to-head -head against anything. I think it's going to be the best history will show. <laughs> so, but we had to do it with constraints and that was really hard. So we were working, 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 working up to that premiere. Again, his whole crew, he flies in. There's like 12 people from his movement practice. His, his dad, his mom, his sister was there. Um, all of these movers, all of these senior guests from London Real Press, everyone's in there. We've been doing four test screenings here at London Real Studios. We've been working countless hours, reworking the story, ripping it apart, rewriting it, redoing this, more voiceover. It's crazy. We get there, I'm in the same row as Ido, so I can look down and I can see Ido, which I thought was a good thing, but it was a bad thing because I'm watching the movie and Ido is stone-faced the whole time. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he doesn't like the movie. And I was just like, okay, just breathe, 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 breathe. But then I thought about halfway through, what is it like to watch a movie about yourself? And I felt, what was it like to be Ido? That must be weird with all these people here. He's actually a very humble guy, quiet guy, he doesn't like to celebrate himself, but that shows you how how he was willing to face his own resistance and come to a place where they were honoring him, which he probably thinks is an absolutely ridiculous thing to do. So look, a lot of pressure, um, some pride. Um, and then when it was over, just the people clapped, felt great, and then people felt good about it. And then Ido felt good about it afterwards. But at that moment, you gotta, you gotta have to let it go and just be there in the moment and just try to enjoy the movie. And, and sometimes that's the first time I watch it, actually. Because all the other times I'm just so critical. Yeah. But it's a special moment and each one is going to be special. And it uh, looks like we have 18 more to do. 
uh, in the next five years. Can't we'll wait. probably do more than that. But there'll be another one out this year. So that's something I'm super proud of. So this year, we'll have three documentary films. We'll continue broadcasting London Real. London Real Academy has four core products now. So I'm super proud of Life Accelerator, where we have our first London Real tattoos, the Business Accelerator, uh, which you're a part of now, the, the Broadcast Yourself, which I'm really proud of, amazing work that they've done, and our Public Speaking Accelerator is being launched in four weeks. So that's where we actually teach people everything I've learned from the people in this chair when it comes to actually how they speak to inspire other people. And it could be in this chair, it could be broadcasting, it could be on stage, it could be in a corporate boardroom, it could be in a team like London Real when I get up and stand up in the morning meeting every morning. How do you speak to inspire people? Because if you can't do that, you can have the greatest ideas in the world. Uh, even Dan Pena said, what's the most important trait in the people you work with? And he said, communication. If you can't speak about it intelligently and inspirationally, it's not worth it. Right. The most important 16 minutes of content I ever put out, and I've put out probably 500 hours of content on YouTube, maybe a thousand. The most important 16 minutes is my TED Talk because it's condensed into this piece where you understand who Brian Rose is, who London Real is, my struggles, and that is because communication is so important. So that's the next thing we're teaching, and, and uh, I'm super proud of what we've done this year. That's great. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk about something that you um, really discussed early on in our course, and that is um, being vulnerable, the importance of being vulnerable. I don't know if many people know what that means, um, I've tried to be more vulnerable over the last couple of years, and, I, and I've found that it helped tremendously. Um, so the, the question is twofold. How did you learn about that trait, and how important is it for us in general to be vulnerable? Yeah. Look, it's a great question. And when we created the London Real Academy, uh, I had to come up with the five rules of the London Real Academy. and. You know, if the truth be known, I pretty much made him up on the fly at one of our first webinars. And Julie and I were doing these were free webinars and we were just publishing. This is when the first academy came out. We didn't know why we were doing it, but we would do these one hour webinars and just teach anybody who showed up. And this was us just trying to build our business. And it was amazing. It was a lot of fun. Some people loved them. Some people didn't like them. It was great. But at one point I said, there's five rules in the London Real Academy. And I just said what came to my mind. And they were this. The first one is respect. I expect everyone in the academy to respect each other. I grew up in martial arts, you know, I'm a purple belt in jiu-jitsu, and one thing that we always do is we respect each other. Mm. I think it was N uh, Nelson Mandela that said, I can defeat my opponent without dishonoring him. And so in jiu-jitsu, I'll roll on the mat, I'll choke you unconscious, I'll almost break your arm, or you can beat me up too. And at the end of the day, I will thank you for bringing the best out in me, but I will respect you. So it was always important to have respect. So that was one rule. We respect each other at all times. Second rule was love. You know, I believe that you need to love what you do. We need, we need people with passion in this academy. And I also think that ultimately you have to love the person that's in that academy across the thing. So when you see the interactions in the Broadcast Yourself group and in the Business Accelerator, there's, it has to have love. And if you're not doing something out of love, I think you know it. And that doesn't mean I can't be critical and I can't say, Roger, on American Real, the lighting on your guest needs to be moved and the socks are too bright. Oh, I actually like your socks. And then this and this, but that's me loving you because I'm being critical. Um, but I think you have to have love in there. Love with each other and you have to love what you do. Bring that passion in there. 
Third rule is vulnerability. And I just came with that from the beginning. Unless you can come out inside the academy or in life and say, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at relationships. Um, I'm not good at knowing my priorities. I thought they were money. I'm not good at opening my heart to a new family. I'm not good with my drinking habit. <laughs> I'm not good um, with um, anything, you know, being a leader in the beginning. I wasn't a good leader at London Real. I was bad for years. All these things. If you can't tell people that, how can they help you? And so you have to be vulnerable and let it all out in the line and say, you know what, this is what happened. Also, if you want to educate people, I have to talk about my bad times, things I'm not proud of, things I screwed up on. And I screw up all the time. And I have in the past, many, many times. I've almost ruined my life. I've almost ended my life times. So I know how to screw up. And I think everyone does. But you have to talk about it. That's the only way we can get better. So vulnerability is super important. And you'll see... In the Business Accelerator right now, everyone's uploading their vlogs. 10 vlog and 10 day challenge, and it's crazy. Nobody wants to even get on the camera and publish their own thoughts. Mm. But they're being vulnerable. Just by doing that, you show that you're imperfect, that you look funny, that you talk funny. That's important. Let's get it out there so we can help you. So that's rule three, and I'll come back. The other two rules, in case people are wondering, is four, action and accountability. That's when we stop being fluffy, crunchy, feely uh, Californians, and we say, wait a second, I believe that enlightenment <laughs> comes through action. That That's where you get places in life. It builds self-esteem. That's what does it. Because you realize, I just did something. I think action's important. I think goals are important. Now, not for goals' sake. I think also being in the moment and being you is important. But I think accomplishing things is important. Mm-hmm. I think you need to know where you're going. You need to go try to get there. You need to try to get some. You need to try to know if you fail. If you don't fail, you need to say, I'm going to do the documentary movie. And I'm either going to fail or not. I'm going to do another one. Um, And that's important. So I believe in action and accountability. That's our big thing in the academy, as you know. That's our main biggest selling point. We hold you accountable to do what you say you're going to do in order to get the life that you want. That's it. And we've always been held accountable. The reason London Real exists to this day is because I was held accountable to publish an episode every Sunday, which was my commitment from day one. And without that commitment, I wouldn't be here. It was what we call a smart goal. (laughs) Yeah? It was specific, measurable, actionable, right. relatable to me, time sensitive. Episode every week. That's how London Real was created. One tiny smart goal. So don't tell me smart goals aren't important. <laughs> so action and accountability. Did you do what you say you're going to do? Very important. And the final rule of London Real Academy, I always forget this one, is fun. We got to have fun. And I forget sometimes. So this is fun. What we do here is fun. I forget. Sometimes I'm so caught up in our goals and that, la, 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 Brian's so serious because this episode got screwed up and... This person's coming over and it's got to be right Um, or it's not good enough that this is fun. This whole experience should be fun. Otherwise, what am I doing here? Like, it is wonderful. What we're doing here is cool as hell. I always tell all the team here, I'm like, I'm like, this is what you get when you come to London Real and you be on part of the team. We are going to do the coolest shit imaginable. You're going to be on the stage with me at the premiere and everybody comes on stage at the end of the premiere. The whole team comes up and we all take credit together. You're going to go to Israel with me and train with Ido Portal in his studio. You're going to go to Dorian Yates with me and smoke weed with him on the beach, right? You're going to do the things that are going to transform your life. You know, we are going to create this brand new space together that everybody helped design. We're going to take 135 Academy members through. These are going to become people that are your family. We're going to do this cool stuff. That's the real reward. And you're going to become better versions of yourself. So that's that's the ride I'm on. And that's what those rules are all about. And so vulnerability is right in the middle. And I think it's so crucial. 
And um, I think it was James Altucher that taught me that, one of my favorite guests here, an amazing guy, a great broadcaster, a very impressive businessman. You know, he really, he, when he puts his mind to it, he can create tons of wealth. Um, but if you read his stuff, every vlog and blog starts off with a major confession. Like, there I was in the gutter, puking on myself, right? Yeah. There I was, I blew a million dollars in a day. There I was, my second marriage was over. There I, he, every article starts off with a majorly self-deprecating moment, and you learn from that. So I, I like to think that I can be vulnerable, and I can show all these flaws about myself. At the same point, it's a, it's a balance. I'll be honest, Roger. Like I can't come in here to my morning meeting every morning and be vulnerable and say, guys, don't really want to be here today. Right. I couldn't sleep. And I, I don't really like you guys today. I, I, know, I know, it's actually not true, but like if I'm having a bad day, I'm, I'm the leader, and the leader, this was an old movie, an old quote from a submarine movie that Harvey Keitel was in, and he was the captain of the submarine, and there was a junior captain coming up the ranks, and he, 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 he was in a meeting when there was a lot of problems, and he said, I don't know what to do. And he pulled him aside, and he says, the captain always knows what to do. And so I take that seriously. So as the leader, I always know what to do, and everything is always fine, and everything is always a learning experience. We win or we learn, as Coach Kavanaugh would say, Conor McGregor's trainer. So I have to also be the face, and which means I'm dressed every day, because I don't know what's gonna happen today. I don't know who's gonna walk in. I don't know who I'm gonna meet on the street. I don't know what meeting I might have. It could be with a billionaire. You know, I've had billionaires come to my events. I've had, you know, huge media icons sit down there. I can teach a course. I don't know. I'm dressed for success. I'm slept. I'm meditated. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to invest. When we take a big hit and take one in the face, we, we take them all the time. We have failures around here all the time. You just don't hear about them that much. We fail all the time, which is the whole idea, which means we invested in something. It didn't pay off. We move on. So I have to be the face. So it's a fine line between vulnerability and being strong for the team. And again, I'm, I'm always balancing, Roger. That family time, work time, it's a balance, but um, it's important to be vulnerable. So it's a key part of the London Real Academy. Don't even bother coming to the academy unless you're willing to get vulnerable and tell us what you're not good at, because that's when we come alive. And London Realers love it when you're vulnerable, because they want to help. Mm -hmm. All my team leaders, they want to help. The rest of the people, let me help. You're having a problem, do this, let me give you a bit of advice, let me give you a little bit of, and you feel the energy in there, it's amazing. And, um, and so yeah, that's why we promote that. And what a team you have. Uh, I was so impressed with um, just the, the, the general help that every team leader would give on a regular, on a weekly basis, daily basis. Uh, you've really surrounded yourself with good people, and it's not easy to do. Um, I don't know if you've, you've gone through a lot of people here, um, but it seems like you've really attracted solid individuals. Yeah, we're super fortunate. We have an amazing team here. Again, it's a team, it's not staff. I mean, they are part of this journey with me. Uh, they really are, and I, my goal is for each one of them to become a key person of influence in their own right under the London Real umbrella if they choose. And of course, they can always choose to go on to other things, and I encourage them to. But if you want to be an award-winning filmmaker, you can do it at London Real. If you want to be an award-winning product person, or you know, uh, someone who gets up and, and does a TED Talk about how to book a great guest, you can do it here. So I want to empower them to become the best versions of themselves, and to give them all the resources they have, and to allow them to have access to these amazing celebrities, these amazing experiences, all that crazy stuff. So that's important. But also, leading a team, it's something I've learned. 
and I wasn't good at it. My first, our first few people here, I think I did a horrible job. I think I just didn't do it right. Remote people, I think getting people to work for you remotely, I don't like it. It's hard to do. You have to really be on your game to make sure they're part of the group and that you, you make sure you treat them right as well. So we spent a lot of time on company culture and now we're very disciplined about it. Again, back to Jocko Willink, discipline equals freedom. That's a mantra around here and extreme ownership. We really took a lot from Jocko being here that day. I, I wrote it all over the walls here. We teach it in our courses. Discipline equals freedom. What does that mean? That means that, you know, we're disciplined every day to just do all the things that are going to then give us that freedom to go off the reservation if we want to do it. So discipline. Every uh, four weeks here, you get a sit down, each individual sit down meetings. You do an evaluation form on me. What do you want that could be better? We have a bonus. You get a hundred pounds every month, discretionary bonus called a high performance, peak performance bonus. You can spend on whatever you want. You want to do it on personal training? You want to do it on uh, supplements for your body? You want to do it on a course you want to buy? It's up to you. We want you to get better. You want any other training? Give me the idea. We'll pay for it. Uh, we want to just promote all of these great feelings in here and get your input and in all those things. And so um, I'm very proud of our company culture. I'm very proud of our team. One of our business accelerator graduates, Lachlan, who was on this last course, who's also a broadcaster self-graduate, he pulled me aside at the graduation dinner, which is tomorrow night for you, and he said, Brian, you should do a company culture accelerator. He said, because everyone here is, is, you can tell they're, they're, they believe in the message. Okay. And that's super important because every touch point tells you everything. Okay. When you walk in the door, you can tell. You can tell if the camera guy doesn't want to be here, doesn't believe in the message. You can tell if Julian, our head of strategy, doesn't really want to be there. And we've been really blessed. And so that's like one of my big priorities. And I, I still have work to do. I, I constantly need to be listening to them constantly. My job is to make their life better. And I'm learning how to be that, but I really enjoy it. And um, as far as our team leaders for our academy courses, they're all around the world, former graduates. So for this course, we've got Chris Albert, our Marine in California. we got Lisa May, graduate who's in Portugal, who you interviewed for American Real yesterday. We've got Andrea Bordas, an amazing, you know, she's like in her early 20s. She's crushing it as an entrepreneur. She's great at YouTube, brings a whole other demographic. Like I said, Julian Bales, our head of strategy. You know, um, Alex Melia, a former graduate of many of our courses. These people, they honestly... They beg me to teach these courses because they love the vibe. Yeah. They're like, Brian, can I be on the next one? I'm like, I, actually, I've got other people that want to teach this course, but they love the vibe. And I mean, and that's a statement to them. So I'm so fortunate, but it's actually in demand to be an instructor. Alex was the community manager last time, and he was tired of it because he wanted his team that he could talk to and lead during the course. So I had to switch him out, and now Lisa's community manager. But I'm sure she's going to want her own team. Yeah. So look, I'm so fortunate to have all of that stuff. They bleed London Real. They bleed London Real. And that was one of the first advertisements we put out. Yeah. Do you bleed London Real? And that was, that was, that's how we got Julian as head of strategy. And yeah, I think you need that company culture. They say, so Zappos uh, is, a, is a company. Tony um, Shea. Tony Shea mm -hmm. and uh, Zappos, they started off selling shoes online. They were purchased by Amazon. Yeah. And um, he says that the customer experience is a lagging indicator of your company culture. And I agree with him. So if your company culture is amazing, the customer, which you are our customer as a consumer of our videos or as a, a buyer of our academy, you're going to know. And so that touch point with Chris Albert or Julian, that honestly wasn't, wasn't promised. In, in, uh, it's not on the tin that you get this. It's not on the tin that you know you get to come to graduation and we're paying for dinner or this, all this stuff. But like, it's stuff that we believe is the right thing to do. So that's, that's what we do. Great.
Thanks so, for noticing. <laughs> so I'd like to shift gears uh, quite a bit. Um, it's a topic that you've brought up uh, several times in over the course of uh, the eight weeks in, in some regard. And I wanted to tell you a little story. Um, and that is when I was about 17 years old, my cousin decided to play a trick on me and his younger brother was also my cousin. We were going to a concert and uh, they made some some sandwiches and little did I know he put something in that sandwich. He put some mushrooms in the sandwich. And I still recall that very well. I've never done any drugs in my life. Um, but it was a bad experience. I mean, I, it, it was a hallucination for about 12 hours, you know, seeing colors, not knowing what was going on, slow motion, crazy. I need to ask you, what is this psychedelics? I, I, and I beg your pardon, I'm not too familiar, but I really would, would like to have your insight and, and I guess the risks that are involved and, and the benefits. Great question. So psychedelics is something that we just started exploring early on in London Real. I think by episode five or 10, we were talking about ayahuasca, which is a plant medicine, um, probably falls into the psychedelic category. It's been being consumed in South America for I think 10,000 years. There's evidence, archeological evidence, and it's used as a plant medicine to allow you to do some internal healing to uh, really think about your life in different ways and have some education that won't happen on your own or it might take 20 years of meditation or psychotherapy to have some of these realizations. Um, I equate it to putting a mirror in front of your soul and you get to see the way that you've been treating other people and the way you've been treating yourself and the world and a lot of times it's not good news. And so it's sometimes a difficult experience. It destroys the ego and by Western standards, we try to build our ego and that feeling doesn't feel very good because you like your ego and your ego likes your ego. And so this is a way of kind of dissolving all of that in your brain. And that's what psychedelics do. Before I started London Real, I had probably had similar experiences to you. Ate a bunch of mushrooms in Amsterdam because someone told me it was the thing to do. Felt horribly uncomfortable. Hated it, hated it, hated it. Couldn't wait for it to end. Never wanted to do it again. A bad experience, which is what you probably had as well. Right. Now. That word bad is, it's all relative. You were basically learning at a rate that you were not accustomed to. You were also not in the correct set or setting, which is what they say. So in my ayahuasca ceremonies that have actually happened in this studio, and uh, I do have to remember that when I leave here because my, my second really big ayahuasca ceremony, I was right there on a sofa, and I was with my shaman, and she was singing these beautiful Icaros and I was alone and I had prepared mentally and I had done a diet for 10 days and I was prepared as much as I could have when I went in there and I was allowed to have that experience. I wasn't in the middle of a rock concert and I didn't know it was, I knew it was coming. And that's the proper set and setting you should have for any psychedelic experience. That being said, I do believe in infrequent high doses. It's the same as Terrence McKenna would prescribe who is the, uh, the now deceased brother of Dennis McKenna, who's become a good friend of mine. And I really love Dennis, and he's an amazing man, an amazing scientist, an amazing thought leader, and we've got uh, more stuff coming out with him soon. Um, and so when you go in for a psychedelic experience, you have to go big, and you have to be prepared to be uncomfortable, and you have to be prepared to learn some things about yourself, and it shouldn't be fun, and you should be a bit scared 
when you go in. If you're not, honestly, you're wasting your time because you're probably going to be told some bad news. You're probably going to be told, Brian, you're not uh, treating your family good enough. You're not treating your team good enough. You need to think about your content more and think about the people that watch that and try to work harder at making them happy. And it's probably giving me all these lessons that maybe I forgot to think about when I'm working on London Real, the brand. That's probably what it would tell me. And so there's lots of different ways to have these psychedelic experiences. There is ayahuasca, there's psilocybin mushrooms, there's LSD, there's a few others. Um, you can also simulate it, I think, through sweat lodges and other kinds of things. But it's something that humans have been doing to themselves for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and it's something we will continue to do to ourselves. Unfortunately, in the United States, it's illegal in many uh, with many substances because of a knock-on effect of what LSD happened. It's a lot of politics. It's a lot of fear. Um, humans have a lot of fear about themselves. They use this word drugs, which applies to a lot of things. We also hate ourselves because of our vices and we judge ourselves the same way that America struggles with, say, vices and pornography and the way that other countries don't. I think America has a kind of a very puritanism about it. Well, we don't admit that we are these animals that have these urges and needs and these other experiences. So that's maybe a rough idea of the psychedelic experience. So for me, it was important because those ayahuasca experiences allowed me to go deep inside myself and say, why does Brian behave the way he behaves? Well, I concluded that a lot of it came when I was seven and I was just, I don't know, I, I got to be a, a scared boy that wanted to build up walls around me so I wouldn't be hurt again by an event like a divorce. And I think it kept me familyless and pretty much solo for 40 years of my life. That's not healthy. And I wouldn't have learned that unless it was for that plant medicine. And I wouldn't have learned that unless I was willing to go to where that fear is and face the resistance of losing control for three or four hours. And there's, it's not nice sometimes. And sometimes it's beautiful. It's just very random. And so now I try to get myself into these psychedelic experiences so I can just do a reset and make sure I'm going in the right direction. Because Roger, I'd rather find out now than when I'm 80 years old or maybe 120 years old when I'm sitting on my deathbed and realize, it's too late. I made the wrong choices. Yeah. I'm, you're still a banker, Brian, why? You could have done London Real. Or you did London Real, but you went the wrong way, Brian. You, you, you got lost. And then, why? Or why didn't you spend time with Caden? You know, he's, he's, he's 30 now. You can't go back now. So it's hard and it's painful but I would rather get the lessons now and pay the price, which is what, four hours of a potentially discomfortable situation and get those revelations. Now, I could get them through the art of listening. I could get them through meditation. I could get them through physical practice. You will get those lessons anyways. But I believe you can get them quicker through these experiences. That being said, I'm not a fan of doing these frequently. Some people drink ayahuasca and they do it every weekend. Mm. They smoke DMT every weekend. I don't believe in that. I believe you get the information you come back to the real world where we all live, where you have to deal with your life, and then you meditate and you work on yourself. You make the changes to enact the things that you've learned with the plant medicines. And they do teach you things and tell you things. So um, that's my experiences with them, but to each his own. Sure. When you first take ayahuasca, you come back and you think everybody should take it. And you say, that'll fix your problems. I'm over that now, I don't project, but I don't shy away from it. These, 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 I'm not going to say the D word, these medicines should be legal. I envision a time sooner than you think in say 50 years where grandma can decide to take a vacation and she doesn't go to Maui. She goes into the country for a weekend and she goes to a spa and she gets given ayahuasca after she has her facial and her 
massage and she gets to have experience and go in the woods and she comes back three days later, a brand new person. We all should have access to this and doing it in an intelligent, controlled way. It's not a drug. That word is so misused. The war on drugs is a joke. Uh, it's a war on certain drugs. Mm -hmm. It's a war that's about money and capitalism. Right. And you know, how many London Real guests do you have to listen to till you realize what pharmaceutical companies are doing? And Bruce, I mean, wasn't Bruce Lipton? No, Mike, Michael Greger. I mean, prescription drugs, legal prescription drugs, kill over 100,000 people a year. Legal ones. Yeah. Um, don't get me started about anything else. And so people that can't entertain these other ideas, again, it's back to the mainstream media. What are you taught? It's a drug. It's illegal. And you don't do your due diligence. You don't look a little bit deeper and say, well, wait a second, who's telling me that? A politician? A policeman? Why do they know? And Graham Hancock here on this very show said, if you do not have sovereignty over your own consciousness, what do you have? I believe we have the, the right to make choices about our own consciousness. Now, if you want me to obey your laws, that's okay. I won't kill. I won't rob, I won't hurt someone, but I'm allowed to alter my own consciousness. Why not? Now, if I do those things when I'm altered, fine, then that's a crime. But altering my consciousness should not be a crime. Now, that being said, I don't believe uh, class A drugs like cocaine and ecstasy should be in the pharmacy. I think it's an excuse for a lot of people to consume those, and I think those drugs, they have their side effects, and I think they have some really dangerous long-term side effects. Unfortunately, those are a lot about pleasure, and as we know, pleasure does not result in happiness. A lot of times, it's the opposite. You have to really earn your happiness. So I think there's something about certain drugs being illegal, but I think plant medicines and probably cannabis to a certain extent, although I'm not a user of it, um, but I know a lot of people talk a lot about it, but obviously in the States, it's becoming legal, but that is more along the lines of a plant medicine. It opens your mind to new thoughts. That being said, that can be abused as well. And so can psychedelics. So again, set and setting. Don't take them at the rock concert. <laughs> take them in certain doses and take them for the right reasons. And if you don't want to take them, then don't. But, you know, they are, they are an amazing tool for sure. And when you say you receive the messages, how is that happening? So, you know, I had three ayahuasca ceremonies. So when I, I drink the medicine, sometimes I purge the medicine. But with ayahuasca, it's very specific. I get a message uh, from Mother Ayahuasca, which is kind of what you call this kind of entity. And with ayahuasca, it's quite clear. I was pretty much told there's these three things you have to work on. You know, you have to love these two girls in your life. They, they need you to love them. What the hell are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Move in with these girls. You know, give them a home. Give them a... Step your game up. Like, you know, and, you know, stop killing yourself. You know, you know, stop drinking yourself to death. What are you doing? It's, you know, and these are the clear things. You know, put this content out there. I had a great revelation in, in one of my um, psilocybin experiences where it said to me, Brian, you don't have to do London Real. Because every week I was like, I have to do another episode. I have to edit it. I have to do it again. You get to do London Real. <laughs> it's like stupid. They slap you on the side of the head. You know, it's like grandma takes you in the woodshed. She's bam. Snap out of it. Realize what you have. You get to do London Real. Who cares if they pay you for it? Who cares if anyone watches it? Who cares if the guests thank you for it? That's not why we're doing this. You get to do it. So look at it that way. That was a great lesson. So ayahuasca is very good about giving you specific lessons. Psilocybin, less so, although I get it, but it's less about specific lessons, and I don't have any experience. Uh, I smoked DMT once. The most watched episode of London Real in its history is my DMT before and after. It's over a million views for a single episode. 
Um, yeah, and so that's a crazy thing, but I've only done that once, but it was a great plant medicine as well. So look, um, I talk about them. If these things are calling you, explore them further. Mm -hmm. If they are not, don't. Mm -hmm. I always meet people and they say, yeah, I've been thinking about ayahuasca. Well, it's calling you. It called me as well. It took me 18 months before I heard the word ayahuasca by Aubrey Marcus, the CEO of Onnit on the Joe Rogan Experience, to where I did it. 18 months. I did my research. I did my due diligence. And then I took a big deep breath and I jumped off the deep end. And, uh, and that's what I think people should do. Research it. Check it out. But sometimes you got to do it and just go see. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're probably not going to die. You might be uncomfortable for three hours. But I mean, again, you know, sometimes, again, if I could tell you, you could spend three hours of your life that might be uncomfortable, that might be painful, horrible, out of your control, but they would save you 30 years of bad decisions. Who wouldn't? But the thing is, most people wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, again, you know, what is, what is pain? What is uncomfort, you know, discomfort? I, I, now these days, as a teacher in London Real Academy, when I see uh, things that are uncomfortable situations, I just think, what can I learn here? Right. I'm learning something. Whenever I, I tell people, whenever you're uncomfortable and frustrated, you're building intellectual property. <laughs> you yeah, are. It's true. You know, you're learning how to do something better. And so embrace it. Embrace that discomfort. Embrace that horrible social situation. Embrace that pit in your stomach when you have to get up and speak. Embrace that horrible vlog you just posted. Everyone said you suck. Guess what? Your next one's going to be better. Mm -hmm. Embrace all of that stuff and then learn from it and move on. So. Yeah. So um, back to London Real a little bit. Um, I know you're a big fight fan. Uh, we used to have Muhammad Ali back behind my left shoulder. Yes. Um, when you prepare for these interviews, conversations every week, is it a big event for you every week? Is that Most the definitely. feeling? Huge, huge. And I still get, you know, anxious and stressed out before guests come on. It's a, it's a huge deal for me. I feel like kind of the host with the most. When you come over here, I want all the touch points to be important. The outreach is important. You know, as you know, we do a pre-interview forum. Yeah. I want the guests to feel wonderful. I wait outside for them dressed up like this. When they come up, they're like, what are you doing out here? This is my show. I wear a suit and tie for one reason. Do you want to know what that reason yes. is? Because me broadcasting, me having a conversation with an individual here in the studio is a celebration. It really is. I feel honored to be able to do this. I don't care who you are. It doesn't matter. I wear this because this is a special occasion. Every week is a special occasion for me. And we treat it like that. We treat it like it's a big deal. We stream it on Facebook and multiple cameras. We got the lighting down. You have your coffee. You feel good. That's super important for me. So I prepare, I get butterflies in my stomach. You know, sometimes the guest has 5 million Twitter followers, sometimes they have 5,000 Twitter followers. But I try to give my best. I try to create a wonderful piece of art that's orchestrated in real time. It's almost like a freestyle rap yes. that a hip hop artist would do. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and sometimes it looks bad and we pull it back out and sometimes it's mediocre and sometimes it's a beautiful piece of work. It is something to behold and I always try to get to that perfection every single week sometimes we get close we never get there sometimes we fail but we keep going and we keep going and that's been the history of this show and that defines us who we are and I'll keep doing this till the day I die but yes it's a very big deal yeah and you've had some amazing guests here uh, I've learned so much over the last couple of years watching watching all the episodes 
Can you give us a highlight or two? What were some of your favorites? I know, and I hate to yeah. put you in that position because there's been so many great <laughs> yeah, People ones. ask me all the time, do I have favorite guests? But, you know, it's like having favorite children. Yeah. You know, I don't really have them. They all are special. And sometimes I'll have a special moment with one that you might not have heard of or not mm-hmm. remember. Um, sometimes it's something they said before or after or since that makes them special. That there's pictures all around the studio. Uh, the people watching or listening can't see them now, but there's kind of our MVPs that are on the wall, probably 12 or 15 pictures of some special people and some special moments. Um, you know, it's hard to call out certain people, but if you start looking at the films that we've made, then of course some of those names like Dorian Yates and Ido Portal and, you know, Dan Pena or maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson and some of these names, you know, are people that you know, people remember and I remember. Jocko Willink. These people taught me important lessons and I'll never forget them. I'll never forget them. And I, I emulate them. I, they inspire me. Um, the emotional moments I've had, Chris Eubank, Nigel Benn, um, Kevin Kelly said, Brian, have more kids. They each one's like a gift. You gotta have six. Yeah. So I told Mariana, you know, she's just getting warmed <laughs> up. You know, these little things, they stick with me. And that's, yeah. that's what, transformation is about sometimes it's that one thing that one person said to you at that perfect moment in your life that you'll remember the rest of your life it could have been a parent that said it to you or some episode on london reel or a quote from a movie and that literally changed your life put you on a different path hopefully a better path or a more understanding path and that's happened to me so many times um and there's so many guests and for me, it's like after 400, it's just like, it's just like this collective consciousness. Again, it's like we are all one. And they all come back to these same core messages. They just do over and over and over again, whether it's Chris Eubank or Ido or Dorian or even Pena. They come back to this, cherish this moment. You're a human. Take action now. Do the best you can. What is this? I don't know, but let's honor and respect it by going big. We are all one as humans. As Dorian would say, you, that doesn't make sense to you. That guy on the corner who's yelling and you don't like, how can he be part of me? But he is part of you. Right. And he represents a part of you. And, and we are all connected somehow. What's the, what's the greatest thing that happens in our life is when we feel a human connection. That's why this course is so powerful because people probably feeling human connections for the first time in maybe 20 years. Mm-hmm. Maybe. That's so powerful, and yet we ignore it, and we think, okay, well, who's got the car and the house and the title? And like, you watch MTV video, and that shows you what the human consciousness thinks is important, but back here, we know it's not. What happens when you see a little baby? My boy Caden was walking down the street this uh, this weekend. He's walking on his own, one year and four months, walking on the sidewalk. Everybody's like, ah, they smile, they, they see him, because they're reminded of who they are, they see the future, yeah. they're reminded they were human just like that, and how beautiful it is to be this baby yes. human. Like, doesn't that tell you how we value each other so much in this experience we have? And yet, then we quickly forget it. And we go into this thing of what does she have? What do you have? Who's posting on social media? Who's got more followers? What political leader is saying this nonsense? I'm telling you, as humans, we're, we're, we're kind of stupid sometimes. We, we, we forget core messages. We go off the reservation for a long period of time, right? Slavery is rights. Um, smoking is good for us. Um, you know, all these crazy, we can go down those roads for hundreds of years, thousands of years without anyone snapping out of it and saying, wait a second, racism, you know, all this, st- what, what are you talking about? But like every now and then we'll see the light. It's just like, make sure you f- stay focused on the bigger picture and don't get caught up in these crazy little, you know, these petty 
kind of wars and mentalities. Yeah. And I think also if you keep having conversations, art of listening, have exposure to different types of people, you're constantly reminded that there's a bigger picture out there. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's, that's what I've learned from the guests. And it is uncanny to me that a lot of these thinkers are saying the same things to yeah. me. Um, and uh, I, was on the, I was on the phone with Dorian a couple months ago, and it was about a year after our movie, and I was speaking to Luis, our director here, and he had had a revelation the night before, and he said, he came into the studio, he's like, Brian, Brian, we are being used here as London Real to transmit this message of truth to the world. We are actually being used by the collective consciousness and all this. And I was like, oh, come on. You watch too many episodes of London Real. Come on, we're a media company, and we're using YouTube, and we're building the academy, and we're making a difference, but come on. And uh, that was my initial reaction. And then I was on the phone with Dorian, and Dorian was talking. He's like, yeah, man, I'm down here. you got to come down and see me. We're going to make another movie. This is what I'm thinking these days. I'm getting more of these vibrations. And I love the Mantech Chia episode. And he was telling me all this stuff. And I said, Dorian, uh, you know, Luis had this revolution that we're, we're being used as a conduit for a greater message of humanity. And he said, of course we are, Brian. What the hell do you think's going on here? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. That's cool. Of course we are. And, yeah. it, and it is true. Yeah. But even I can forget it. Yes. But, you know, if you just take a step back, I mean, you know. And again, some also, like, you know, plants intelligence. The plants have this message. Sure. Sometimes you got to look to them and let them remind you what, what the plan is. Mm-hmm. And that's what some of those plant medicines. And, you know, so that's, I think maybe that is what we are here. We're this conduit. Maybe we're something that's going to save us from ourselves. Right. And like I said, maybe the plant medicines are helping us do that, even though we try, or we're trying to kill all the plants in this world. Maybe they're ultimately going to remind us to save ourselves. And maybe we're a conduit for the human race trying to remind itself to clean its act up. You know, and, and save ourselves. And I'm not pessimistic on the future. I'm extremely optimistic. But if you spend a lot of time on Twitter feed, oh, you yeah. can get real pessimistic on the future. So, um, yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. So before I came here, I asked you if anything was off limits. You said, of course not. It's London Real. So I do have one, what I think is a tough question. Hit me. And there, and there's, there is no limits, you know. And rarely does a guest come in here and ever say, Brian, I don't want to talk about this. Honestly, it happened like twice. Yeah. And I didn't realize how special that was until it happened those two times. And I, I just looked at them and I said, really? I mean, I respected it, but I didn't like it mm-hmm. because I feel like it's London real and let's get real. And look, I, I have respect for my guests. So I believe I know how hard to push it. And I don't want to do something for a soundbite. I don't want to, you know, call out somebody and say something so I can get a 60-second piece that'll make... Christian Amampour looks right. stupid right. or make fun of Eddie Izzard so I can get a, something that gets a million views. We could have done that a long time ago. The London Real could be a bigger channel and we would have lost ourselves in the meantime. Sure. But um, I, I want to talk about everything yeah. and, and talk about anything. So I don't know what you're going to ask me about. Well, it's more of but, a- but, but feel free to ask me about anything. And again, you know, I've made decisions in the past that I'm not proud of. I've made some that I'm proud of and I'm always looking to learn. But I, I always want to talk about mm-hmm. the realness of it. I don't claim to be some kind of a great uh, man or a great saint. London Real is not about Brian Rose and the Brian Rose show. I'm a conduit to get you to do the things you don't want to do in order to have a, a better life, a better human experience, to make more of an imprint, to, to do something better for humanity. That's why I'm here. I'm not here um, to get a million Twitter followers. I'm not here for you to say, I want to be like Brian. I'm not here for you to put me on a pedestal. I don't want, I don't want that. So um, if if it takes me talking about my failures and my mistakes and my stressful moments, uh, cool. So 
No, it's more no of pressure a on you, but this better be it's more of a curiosity question. Down and dirty, yes, hit me. As a London reeler, yes. Um, why did you pull Peter Sage? Great question. Okay, good question. So Peter Sage uh, was a guy that I interviewed two years into the show, and um, I never over heard. There? Yeah, over there on the other one, I never heard of Peter. Um, but we had some kind of interns working for us at the time, and they used to kind of volunteer the time because we had no money. We were talking earlier about our camera setup, and we've got lights and ninjas and stuff. But back in the day, we couldn't afford a camera, let alone a employee. So we had people that would come and volunteer their time, like five or ten hours a week. Awesome. And he brought me this guy. I was like this Peter Sage guy, and I look at him like, what is this? And space energy, and like I never heard of him, but I was like, okay. So Peter came down, and we filmed this episode, and it was a wonderful yes. episode. Super inspirational. Peter was talking and just hitting all these great sound bites. And Peter is a great speaker. Yes. And we put that out, and it was watched by a lot of people. And it was a very popular episode. And um, you know, and I was like, wow, okay, cool. Peter's got some great inspirational thoughts. Um, on the back of that, uh, on the episode, he mentioned Dan Pena. On the back of that, Dan contacted me six or eight months later and wanted to be on the show. And I ignored him, ignored him, ignored him. And finally, he had I had him on the show, and that whole relationship started. So. That was that, um, and then Peter kind of ditched his space energy business. I think he had some problems with it. It went wrong. Look, there's still court cases going on about what happened there, but it didn't end great. And um, and so he started doing another business. He started getting into more of his speaking and motivational business, which was always, I think, a side project for him. Came back to England and was doing that, and he's very good at that, mm -hmm. and that's what he does. But he was still dealing with some old problems, I think, in this company. And also, I got emails from people saying, do you know this about him? Do you know this is happening? And my kind of gut response was, honestly, it's none of my business. That's your business. You know, if it's a corporate entity and you want to have a beef with him, then you should talk to him about that. So, but I had some indications like, okay, heard some things here and there, but at the end of the day, I'm not one to judge about this. Um, and, you know, that was that. And that kind of petered along. Um, and it was like, you know, no pun intended. And so, you know, it, it is what it was. And, and so that piece of content stayed up there. And again, I always have this conversation with myself. I mean, we're not a news channel. Um, we are the curator of people worth watching. And whether I like it or not, when I have someone on the show, I am endorsing them to a certain extent. And I've had to say no to people that would have gotten me a million views because I don't really endorse what they're saying. And I wouldn't feel comfortable about having them on the show. And so I'm torn because at one point, this is a piece of London real history and it's a great conversation who inspires people. At the other point in the spectrum, I'm kind of endorsing that this is someone that I back. And this episode was getting hundreds of thousands of views and it was also sending Peter a lot of leads to his program. And people were like, oh, I went to this and I went to this and thank you so much and I'm doing this. And I'm like, okay, you're a human being, you're intelligent, you're mature, you can make your own decisions. And But I had also had a lot of other information in the background, which I wasn't gonna talk about, but it was just had me asking questions. And then I spoke to Pena about this stuff and he had heard these things too and some other people as well. Left it alone. But when finally a lot of this stuff hit the fan and uh, this court case came out and the issues came up about him being sued and all these other things happened, it was honestly the straw that broke the camel's back. And I said, okay, I have to make a decision here. And guess what? Guess what leaders do in positions? They make difficult decisions. Right. And that's what I had to make. And I had to make a difficult decision. To be honest, Roger, mm -hmm. the easy decision would have been to do nothing. Right. I leave it up and uh, some people complain. There's negative comments on YouTube. Like I've never dealt with that before. But like I could just say, well, it's up to you and you're a big boy. But I was like, you know what? I think I'm misrepresenting 
what he's all about and all this stuff, and I just made a conscious decision. And to be honest, when I make a conscious decision about anything, when it comes to London Real, as in, I don't think this person represents our ethos, and I don't think I need to keep curating them, or I want to promote who they are, or when I'm taking the show solo, and I'm no longer going to have my co-host on that originally started the show with me, I make the decision, and I don't do regret, I don't do guilt. I think those are useless emotions. So once I make the decision, it's over. And so I made the choice to private the episode. And, he, and since then, some people said, yeah, I used to watch it once a year and it inspired me. And yeah, for you, I apologize. Um, but I made this decision to basically say, I'm not going to continue endorsing it. And from a selfish perspective, you know, I lost hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube and whatever, potential mm. blah, 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 blah. So it's not really in my interest to do that. But I made the decision that, you know what, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to get a lot of blowback and people are not going to like me and it's not fair and blah, blah, blah. And I got a lot of that too and that's okay. Because at the end of the day, I, I don't really care what you're going to say about me. There's going to be people hating. Right. I'm on this 100-year mission for London Real. You know, we're changing the world. It doesn't involve you liking me right. it, at all. It doesn't involve that at all. Right. It doesn't even involve Peter Sage or Dan Pena or honestly, Ido Portal or Dorian Yates. It's about this ethos about us putting out these ideas and these stories that are going to keep changing the world forever. So I can take the heat on that. Honestly, I, who knows? I could do the same with 10 other episodes sure. at some point. And I, I don't know. I'm just curious. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's why I did it. Um, and again, I didn't explain myself either. I didn't mm -hmm. go back and I just said, look, I'm doing this and that's yep. it. And there was a lot of comments and, and I didn't answer them because that's my decision. Yeah. And, uh, and that's it. So, um, and look, I don't know what's going to happen with Peter. And, or what's going to happen in the future. And honestly, I don't care. It's none of my business. All I know is that as London Real, I had to make a decision that I wasn't going to keep endorsing this message and I was going to take the sacrifice of not having a piece of inspiration that could help someone versus the downside of it telling someone that I endorse this person and I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, at least I'm not confident enough to say that I do wholeheartedly. So now it's off. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything's going to be okay, Yeah, I believe. <laughs> so that's it. Great. Um, one of the things I was really attracted to London Real for was you gave so much away for free. So to watch an episode, all you have to do is, is provide your email address, which is great. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a big trend um, in, in free content, and, and I love that. And I, and I love that now I'm part of that. Um, how important is it to you, the new Brian, to be a giver? I see that you're very giving of your time, your energy, your intellectual property. Great question. First of all, when it comes to free content, you know, when I started back in 2011, there wasn't a lot out there. Right. There wasn't a lot of long-form video content. Podcasts, they were there. It was still quite a novelty. And there were people saying, you got to privatize that content and stick it in a chat room. There was some guy in London doing the same thing. I even think he sent me an email and said, would you stop doing this because I have you know, my content for paid and I'm making a little bit of money here. and Make it look bad. <laughs> yeah, and so for me, first of all, I was inspired by Rogan who mm -hmm. put it out there. And for me, they were great messages and so we were always just going to stick it out there. But I really questioned myself about year two or year three when it was like, all right, Brian can close London Real, which would not be good for global consciousness, and go back to banking, which would not be good for global consciousness or Brian consciousness. Those were my options unless I found a way to turn this into a business. So at some point I had to think about it, but I always kind of knew you had to give this content away for free. You had to get more people watching the message. I always knew that was important. It wasn't 
until the last two or three years where I realized that this is a part of a proper business strategy that I'm going to be teaching you inside the Business Accelerator, which is that you know all all great companies have all sorts of different price points of products, mm-hmm. and that is free products, low cost products, and quite expensive products, and sometimes even more super expensive products. And every company that's successful has them, and this is what we teach inside the accelerator. And I learned the hard way, <laughs> but but in the beginning, I gave away a lot of free content, and it allowed us to expand this huge brand and get all these people on board and to educate people and build the London Real brand. To whereas when I opened the academy, you know, we made ten thousand dollars in a week, and a hundred thousand dollars soon afterwards, and more after that, because we had already set up this funnel, if you will, and now it's part of the business accelerator process that we teach. But so I think every business should understand they're first in the free content business first, mm-hmm. and you better be good at it, or you're going to have nobody that wants to buy your other products. They need to feel your ethos and feel your energy. Um, so that's what we're all about. Now we've modified it slightly to where now 45 minutes of the full episode is free on YouTube. The rest is free on our site if you come and give us your email. Right. So it's still free. It's slightly tiered. That allows us to then follow up with the people that really care. Because only the hardcore London Reelers watch the full episode and come to the website. I'm telling you, there's literally 25 million people out there, or maybe more, that bounce around on YouTube. They watch 10 minutes here and 10 minutes there. They might have watched 25 different episodes of London Reel and never come to the website. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Those people are probably not ready to be empowered. Mm -hmm. They're in the enlightenment stage. Mm -hmm. They've probably maybe tried things, but they're not really empowered. Once they go to the empower, they want to see the full episode. They want to hear, well, how can I take action? Then they come to the website, and that's when we start giving them the opportunity to join the academy. So it's all part of our business model. We teach all this inside the Business Accelerator, and then we have our academy products where we actually transform you, kicking and screaming through really intense, hardcore effort that we only do like once a year. We put these programs on, so take advantage of them. Eight weeks, everybody does it together around the world. You become like family, and then it's over. So, But again, very important to put out free products. So you saw... All of our episodes are free, and we put out highly produced episodes. We spend a lot of money on free product. Probably more than anything else, we spend money on this. Sets, guests, suits, video team. You know, our video team is, you know, between staff and virtual members, six members cranking out video content, right? That's yeah. crazy. So we produce this, and people say thank you, and that, that's good enough, honestly. That'll help my karma anyways. I can already <laughs> die, die a happy man. But if you can pay for it as a business, it's even better. And it doesn't stop there. I have to also put out my other ideas. So for the Business Accelerator course, you saw we put out a three-part video series, 90 minutes, basically opening up the whole curtain and showing you how to turn your passion into a business, how we maximize social media, how to create a digital product, how to even brainstorm your business idea from your passions and your talents and test the market, how to create an end-to-end ecosystem, how to do a a product life cycle. I mean, we gave it out there. And... A lot of people have said, thank you, I'm going to take that and use it for free and work on my own business. And I'm like, great, please do that. But the people that really want to build businesses or they really want to take their shows to the next level like you did, they know they need private mentoring from people who have done the work. Not from people that do TED Talks about the work. I mean, these days, everybody and their mother is a social media expert, right? But who is in the trenches every single day? Who went from one view to 50 million views on YouTube? Who went from one Twitter follower to 130,000 the old-fashioned way? We did. Right. So we teach it because we can, we can, you know, we walk the walk, so we can talk the talk as well. So we do that, but I have to put out free product first. So we constantly give it away for free. 
broadcast yourself, we give away free product. Public Speaking Accelerator, I'm gonna give away three 30-minute videos teaching you everything you can possibly know. But when you wanna make it actually happen in your life, you come to me. And then you will get you that business in eight weeks with revenue. You, you won't do it on your own. Yeah. I know you won't. You'll talk about it, you'll do the first two weeks, but when it becomes uncomfortable, you'll find something better to do that day. You'll go back to your day job, you'll go surf the internet, you'll go eat a donut, or you'll go have a drink. But in the accelerator, you're gonna be on my call, and I'm gonna hunt you down, and you're gonna do the work, and you're gonna post those vlogs of yourself, even though it's uncomfortable, and you're gonna put them on your Facebook page, and guess what, your friends aren't gonna make fun of you, they're gonna say, wow, you've got more guts than I do, and then eight weeks later, when you have a business, they'll say, wow, I wish I had done that. That's what we're all about, yeah. but it starts with that free product. So, look, I'm so glad I didn't think small in the beginning, and there were days where I thought small, well, let's just keep the content back and we'll charge a little bit, but there would be no London Real as you know it if I had tried to monetize early. And instead, I went with my heart and thought, let's just get the content out there. So again, trust your gut on a lot of this stuff. And I try to trust my gut. Look, I'm sure I'll go off course sometime in the future, but hopefully with good people around me, with the viewers, with some plant medicines, I'll be reminded, Brian, it's about the journey. It's about London Real. It's about the 100-year plan. It's about the welfare of others. It's about global consciousness. It's about contributing to humanity in a in a real way and i and i do believe we're doing that here yeah. so uh, that's what it's all about that's my metric at the end of the day it's not the number of people in the business accelerator or our revenues or our views mm -hmm. that's not what's important my metric is the way i make people feel and the changes i make it's one of my affirmations every morning that's great um so we talked about giving and um next i wanted to go to how easy is it for you today to prepare versus it was in the beginning um and, and it sounds cliche I, you know i know this is not easy but you make it appear easy hmm. um, there's a lot of preparation i know that goes into preparing for a conversation but i guess from the standpoint of delivery do you feel you, you know you're kind of hard on yourself uh you, you're constantly saying i could get better i could do this i could do that but it's it's a you know tremendous uh, delivery. Um, I aspire you know to do that. Um, how is it today versus four years ago? Look, today it's so much better. I mean, I feel great talking to you right now. I feel like I can tell you these ideas. I feel like I can you know be myself, which is great. Of course, I'm in the opposite seat. Um, but for me to actually do you know that you know to lead the conversation. Um, look, it's gotten easier to prepare. My anxiety's gotten easier. I mean, the first year, I mean, literally. The day of, I would just have to go take a break and walk through the park and I would be like, oh. really, I would get anxious. I'm an introvert by definition. I don't enjoy performing in front of people. Being on camera is tricky. Mm -hmm. You know, even in the day, having conversations with strangers wouldn't have been something I would have done on a regular basis. So I've gotten better, but also I've gotten worse. And I've had interviews where I over-prepared. The second Dorian Yates interview, I think I over-prepared. And actually, I thought that was a failure when it was done. Turns out it's like one of our most watched episodes ever. Um, same with the Edo Portal, second interview, I thought I failed. That's the reason we did the moving conversation because I was so hard on myself, I thought that was absolute garbage. Now, even though that's been watched probably more than any of our other conversations. Yeah. So, but then again, that led to the moving conversation. So look, like I said, this is a piece of art. 
I get a random person in the door, never met me before. I don't know what kind of day they're having. I don't know who's screwed with their life, if their book's messed up, if their wife is about to leave them, if they have jet lag in London, if they just ate some bad fish and chips. They come in the door, they look at the studio, they don't know who I am. They sit down. I don't know what kind of day I'm having. Technology, boom, go. It's live. You have one shot. There's no edit. Now I have to piece together the most beautiful story you've ever seen in your life. One just like a movie, like a movie that, you know, Soderbergh would take three years to create, you know, where it peaks and you open the characters and you think you know who they are. And then there's a transition moment and a conflict. But is the conflict OK? Do I like this person? I think I hate this person. Well, wait a second. There's more. Where does it go? Are they going to cry? Are they going to tell me something important? And so I have to structure this thing and I'm the ringleader and I and I have to bring it along. Maybe they talk too much as the guest. Maybe they don't want to open up. Maybe they don't trust me. I have to get them open, get them vulnerable. And the clock is ticking. Minute 22, minute 24, Brian. People are getting bored. Step it up. So for me, there's always room for improvement to get that perfect like orchestra, that moment mm. of grace. That's what I'm looking for. To where then we wrap at the end and the music comes on and you just, you watch that London, London Real episode and you're like, wow, <laughs> I feel transformed. I was on the edge of my seat. I didn't like that person at first and then I did like him and I never thought they would do that and then they cried and then they said something nasty. That Simon Mann mercenary guy, he laughed in this crazy insane laughter. Of course we deal with terrorists. And you're like, oh my gosh, this guy is insane. I was just starting to like him. That's what I want, yeah. that kind of drama. And so for me to be able to do that repeatedly, I got to be on my own game, which means I have to be prepared, but not over prepared. If I script that interview too much, I'm not dynamic. I have to have fun. I have to let my own emotion come out. I have to joke a little bit. I have to give you my opinion. I have to disagree. I have to call you out on that. But yes, I, I also have to let you give your message. So, man, I've got a long way to go. Um, I'm constantly learning. I always think I can get better. I'm very hard on myself, but I think that's appropriate. Maybe a little too hard. But it'll just force me to keep getting better. And I watch the greats. You know, I look at someone like Charlie Rose, which yeah. is great. Some of these people edit as well, though, so don't right. be too harsh on yourself. There's no editing here at London Real, so, you know, if there's an awkward moment, it's awkward. I think that's beautiful as well. I've had long silences. What's the best advice you ever received? I had 20 seconds of silence. So, but let it, let it happen, you know? Nigel Ben cried for like two minutes straight. I had to put my hand on his knee. I didn't know if he was going to stop. I was like, oh my gosh, but that's real. So, um, so yeah, the, the truth is I'm better at preparing. Um, I, al I also have, you know, a great team here as well who also give me their ideas before the show. And I'm like, what do you guys think? What's the thing that bothers you about him? What do you think? So we brainstorm a little bit, but I constantly go in. I watch all the videos. I read all the articles. I try to construct it in my mind. And I taught you a lot of this inside the course. So I try to construct the narrative in my mind. I want to ask the questions that bother me. That's right. what makes a great journalist. Why? Wait, something's not right here. This all looks good on the outside, but there's some BS going on here in this part. Like, okay, it looks like your life is perfect, but it's, I know it's not. So how do you get up every day and do the same thing every day? Everyone says you're a genius, but Conor McGregor, you and I both know you're tired of fighting in the UFC, aren't you? How many more belts do you want? You're going to retire soon. Doesn't that bother you? Like, there's always the question you can ask someone. So, um, so yeah, the truth is, is that it's still a work in progress, which is probably why I love this job so much. One of my guests, Ryan Holiday, said the obstacle is the way. He wrote a book called that, and he has it tattooed on his arm. And I'm constantly trying to remind myself of that. The obstacle is the way. So when it came to launching our online products and our digital academy, I didn't know how to do it. What could I do? Try to hire the best in the world? Or could we figure it out ourselves? Right. That's more fun. Yeah. Can we figure out how to broadcast live by ourselves? More fun. Can we figure out how to scale our academy by ourselves? Can we figure out how to teach 
ourselves. That's more fun. And that's where the reward comes, the IP comes. So, so yeah, the obstacle is the way. This is a beautiful obstacle. I'll never get it right. Um, I can always do better. So, um, anyways, I hope it looks good on the outside, but I always think I, I could be a little bit better. And this online coursework that I've been part, a part of, and we're seeing Tim Ferriss and many others do this, what a way to get an education in a short period of time. Right? Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's an amazing way. Yeah, I don't think Tim is doing it. I think actually Tim stays away from the online teaching because I think for him, he likes to do books and invest okay. in businesses, do other things that scale. But I'll, look, what's happening today is incredible when it comes to education. And if you can find the right place and the right mentors and the right experience, you can get an amazing education. I went to the Sloan School of Management, right? One of the greatest business schools in the world. It was part of MIT and I took courses right alongside the MBA students for a year before I graduated. I almost went and got my MBA, but I was qualified like for half the degree. And yet, I didn't learn anything about starting a business. <laughs> and everything I teach in the Business Accelerator, I didn't learn in two years of Sloan. So the problem is, is that sometimes the actionable knowledge that you get on the ground isn't being taught in universities. And the other problem with online courses, and I don't think that's what we do, is that they're purely digital. And that's why I think about 5% of the people that buy online courses complete them. That's five out of 100. That means if you spend $3,000 for an online course, most of that you're just kind of giving away, right? right. <laughs> you know, what is that, 2800 and some dollars you're giving away because you're not going to use it. So that's why with our courses, we have a 96% success rate because we go in there and we make sure it's like a real interactive, interactive experience. Which, how do you do that with an iPad and digital media? We found the way, you know? And you know what it's like. It's incredible. We push you out of your comfort zone, you upload video, you're on live calls, you form teams, you get to know each other, you bleed, you cry, you sweat with each other, you have great successes, you have joy, you lean on each other, you push each other. It's just a beautiful thing and at the end you come to London, you hang out with me, you can give me a hug and you can hang out in the studios and we talk and now you're part of La Familia, as I like to say. And now you're part of the inner circle of London Real and you grow with us, and you come back and take another course. You know, Carmen is now on her third course with us, and like I said, some people get the tattoos and stuff. I'm not, I'm not advocating tattoos. I don't have any. Um, and I'm not advocating you get a London Real tattoo, but if you do, I'm honored. Please send me a video of that. Um, but I'm just saying, I think we found a different way to do it, and I think it's because we care. Yeah. That's it. It's in our company culture. You can feel with the team members. Someone like Julian Bales is amazing. Julian Bales has a proper way of doing things. And they are done properly. Why? Because it's the proper way of doing things. It's very English, right? And that's, that's when no one's looking. Mm -hmm. you know? So when you come to a super focus group, there are drinks afterwards. There is chilled beer and chilled wine. We don't advertise that. We make sure you're, you're, you have a good time and you're satisfied. When the guest comes, you get a swag bag. You get, we send an engraved knife to every single guest at the end of a London Real episode that they get in their kitchen that has something engraved, a special little note from us, from them. No one knows about that. The guest knows. So that's what we do here. And so we took education to this level and we know we're onto something. I, we're, this accountability thing, that's really what we have. Yes. And that's why I know these 100,000 people we're gonna touch in the next five years, they are gonna go do big things because it's, it's a literally like laying hands on someone. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm really excited. But again, that was done with the team here. Uh, Alexander Ziri, our head of product, crucial in that. Really putting together these amazing experiences and all the team leaders around the world Chris Albert, Andrea, Lisa May, Alex Melia. You know, these are people on the ground that are helping us teach these courses. Christina from our last business accelerator. These are people making it happen. So um, 
yeah, I'm super proud of all of them. What makes you happy? <laughs> um, it's a great question. You know, I spoke earlier about this, this difference between pleasure and happiness. You know, I, it's, it's never more obvious to me now, you know. Uh, my life looks like a grind from the outside, you know. I mean, it's, gr it's a grind, it's a grind, you know. It's, it's a lot of hard work. People look and say, when's your vacation, when's your break? But through that grind, I find happiness, you know. Uh, and a lot of times we do it as a team, you know. I'm just so honored to be around this team. And, like, we look at each other at the end of that Ido Portal movie and we know that we have moved mountains. Like, you, you'll never even know by watching that movie how hard we worked on it. But we know, and it's a special moment that all of us have, you know, and that makes me happy. I'm so proud of the way that people grow here. I'm so proud of us. I'm so proud of everything, our guest booking team, our product team, our video team, our um, everything, strategy, tech, technology. They're all just on point. So I'm really happy with those little things. I'm, I'm just proud to come in and lead this team and be inspired. Um, you know, what makes me happy? Uh, you know, just you know, my family, trying to empower them really makes me happy. Um, pushing myself. Um, there's a line in Wall Street where um, Bud Fox, the young trader, says yes. to his father, who's a union worker, um, who's not Gecko, and he said, uh, one day you're going to be proud of me, Dad. And his dad says, it's yourself you've got to be proud of. Uh, and uh, it's true. So how do I make myself proud? Well, you know, by, by, by coming correct, by waking up every morning, by being disciplined, by doing my meditation, by coming here, leading, pushing myself, coming out of here exhausted, going home, supporting Mariana, trying to be there for the kids and trying to be open and be loving and giving and always like not, not fight when there's a confrontation to try to find another way. And sometimes I fail, but that keeps me really happy. Um, I don't know. This is one of the happiest I've ever been in my life. Um, Did you ever think that you would be here? I mean, could you imagine five years ago? Like when we got our, our television deal with London Live here um, and our stuff started being broadcasted in full form, on television here in London in the morning. You could wake up at 6 or 7 a.m. on your way to the city or something. You could watch the full interview of Chris Eubank. I thought if you had told me on the trading floor in 2011, if one day, Brian, you're going to be broadcast on television having conversations with professional boxers, I would have honestly, I, was just, I would have just slapped you. Right. I, would have, I would have rolled on the floor laughing. Because it's just so out of my, it's just so out of my conception that I would have been doing it. And I'll tell you what, five years from now, I want to be doing something that's equally as flabbergasting, maybe even sooner. And I want the whole team to be feeling the same. I want us to all be doing something where we look around and being like, "Are you kidding me? Are we really on the next space shuttle?" And Elon Musk is in the back, and we're going to document from a real perspective, the first journey to Mars. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. But I'm, we're going to be doing the craziest real stuff yeah. where we're going to be like, pinch ourselves. Is yeah. this real? That's the kind of things I want to be doing. And we get there by coming in every day, yeah. working hard, being disciplined, sweating all the little things. Discipline equals your freedom. You know, making sure that everything is by the book. Everything is professional. Everything we've gone all in on. That's one of those things. Also, go... Going, going risk, you know, investing in things you don't know if they're going to pay off. Push yourself to do things you're scared about, not sure of. Have a guest on. It's, ah, I don't know if this is the right guest to have on. Boom, it opens up a, an idea. It gets an idea in your brain. Go do things that are uncomfortable, that are scary. You know, fly to Israel and think you can make a movie. I mean, what, what are you thinking? So if we continue doing that, we're going to find ourselves in these situations. If we pull back the throttle and rest on our laurels and sit in the studio having these same conversations for the next five years, 
and never develop any new products and have the same staff and keep talking about psychedelics and keep talking about inspiration, we're gonna die. <laughs> so kill your darlings, move on. You know, we're gonna leave the studio in two weeks. You know, it, it, part of it, part of it hurts and part of me knows this is the way forward. Burn this place down. I love it, it's time to move on. It's time to leave the old desks behind and go forward. That's great. And so that's what we're gonna do. Yeah. Uh, through the course, you also talked about the importance of publishing. Publish, publish, publish. Wow, that was a great lesson for me. Um, it's not easy to do, but once you do it and you let go and you don't look back like you instructed us not to look back, what a feeling. I, uh, I, I'm, I have not watched. I listen to it once as I publish it and I don't go back. It's a great feeling. Yeah, it's a waste of time to watch your content. You know, I think Jared Leto, uh, the guy who's in 30 Seconds to Mars or whatever it is called, and he's also a filmmaker and he's a great actor, and he's just said, why would I ever watch my own movies? You know, it's, it's, it's water under the bridge. Right. The rear view mirror in your car, like rip it off the windshield. What's the point? Mm -hmm. And as a broadcaster, you have one job, broadcast. Broadcast. Yep. Let other people read and watch it and read the reviews, and every now and then, fine, get one of your close friends to go back and maybe read them and give you a little bit of a little bit of a course adjustment one degree or two degrees for the future don't worry about it don't count the views work on the next piece of content next piece of content MVP minimum viable product it's what we teach in the business accelerator and in broadcast yourself do your best put that episode out move on to the next episode keep a regular schedule don't get too precious about it I love Dr. Dre but he still hasn't published his latest album all right he is a perfectionist he makes great stuff but he probably errs on the side of not producing enough. So yeah, you've got to publish and move on. You've got to put out an MVP. As I say in the Business Accelerator, if you are not embarrassed by your first podcast, your first product, your first vlog, your first blog, your first public speech, then it came too late. Get it done. Learn, adjust, get the feedback, make the next one, make the next one. I'm still not happy with this production process. It could be better. We'll get better, but we're going to publish it because we learn, we learn, we learn. What if I had never published the first episode of London Real? When the lighting's bad and I got stupid hair and I don't even know what to say, I would have never got to the next level. So for anybody listening, you have to, to do, publish, and that can mean anything. That just means pull the trigger. Pull the trigger. Fear, fear stops us all from doing everything. But as Dan Pena would say, it's false expectations appearing real. They are just phantoms. 99% of the time, it's completely unfounded. And yet our human brain makes us stop taking action. Go for it. Pull the trigger. What's the worst that's going to happen? Nothing. You're going to advance. So yeah, make sure it was you great advice. keep publishing. And for a broadcaster, <laughs> it's your lifeline. Right. Publish, publish, publish. Yeah. Do you ever cry? I cry, yes. Sometimes when the guest is talking to me, I get emotional and I get teary. I really do. Uh, sometimes I can barely hold it together. You probably hear me in an episode sometimes. My voice cracks. Sometimes it happens when I'm teaching because I get very emotional yeah. when I teach, uh, especially when I'm closing a class or I'm talking about someone that's very important to me. Um, what else do I cry? Honestly, to be really honest, Roger, lately when I'm doing yoga, and I've been doing yoga since Dorian Yates taught me about yoga a year ago for that documentary. I came back to London. I did what he did, which was put out vibrations and see if I could get a yoga instructor. And actually someone from the London Real Academy, her name is Paletta. She's actually on the Business Accelerator mm -hmm. as well. This time you'll meet her. She's amazing. 
And she said, Brian, I do yoga and I'll teach you. So she's been teaching me and a lot of times in the middle of yoga, I'll just... The emotion. Yeah, and I'll start crying and I'll start thinking about Caden right. and I'll just start crying. I usually hold it back because I'm, you know, in front mm-hmm. of a girl. And so I don't cry or hold it back, but I can get really emotional. Sometimes thinking about my boys and thinking about my family and Mariana will get me emotional. The crew is, is seeing me sometimes when I'm emotional about, I get emotional right now when I think about a documentary or, um, you know, how hard uh, the people work here. I mean, the people work really hard here, you know, yeah. making things out. Yeah, Luis, you know, he puts so much emotion into these movies and he works so hard and just to like see that happen, it's emotional. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes I do. I'm working on my crying on cue though. I can't do it yet. Um, but, uh, but that's okay. And, um, and that's, it's healthy, right? It's, it's healthy. And all great speakers and leaders get emotional. If yeah. you think about it, Dan Pena gets emotional. Um, General Patton used to get emotional. And so any real human has emotions. The, the other side is passion. If I speak with passion and excitement and I'm pumped up and I'm like, let's do this, there has to be an opposite side of emotion, sad, pain, when that doesn't go right, like it's a yin and a yang. Right. So I'm good with it, I'm cool with it. That being said, the tough guy part of me just made me stop crying right now and I, 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 that guy I still battle with. <laughs> and again, the leader can't be crying every, every morning meeting. So. Right. But um, I do get emotional about it because it's, it's, it's very personal. You know, what we do here is personal stuff. So yeah, I do get emotional about that. What inspires you? <laughs> Um, you know, other people doing great things, yes. other great broadcasters inspire me. My guests, when they have them here, I get super inspired by what they do. I'm like, wow, you know, look at Anito Portal and the stuff he does and the criticism he gets and he still goes out there and puts in the work. I mean, I'm telling you, you see anyone at the top of their game, you have no idea the work they put in. Mm-hmm. And when they get in this chair, hopefully we get a glimpse into what it's like. And, you know, people hate on pop stars or actors and they, oh, they got there easy. They got there good. I'm telling you, if there's someone out there with a million Twitter followers, most of the time I get them in this chair and guess what I find? Hard work, struggle, pain, man, brutal. And they might just see somebody that makes happy videos and you think it's easy. No, they're professionals. They make it look easy. There's a story behind almost everyone. Yeah, your tagline. And so... That's another way of having empathy for people. So I get inspired all the time by people like that, by people around me, by my team members who just go the extra mile when they don't have to. Right. You know, they stay late and they work on something. They don't have to. We, we put in three days on a video trailer that will be watched and maybe people will watch it, maybe they won't. Mm-hmm. Maybe the guests will like it, maybe they won't. Mm-hmm. Maybe the guests will say, I don't like it, take it down. You know, sometimes no good deed goes unpunished, you know? You'd be amazed the kind of things that we deal with sometimes on the back end. But again, we're professionals, so you wouldn't know about it. But, you know, sometimes that happens. So right. I get inspiration everywhere. I love uh, great broadcasters, um, great athletes. Conor McGregor inspired me, not because everybody gets on the Conor McGregor bandwagon, uh, but he inspired me because he put it all on the line. Mm-hmm. And we put this in the movie, you know? The Shoshin, the beginner's mind, willing to, to, to go Go to where that fear is. Go to where that pain is. Go to where failure might be, even though it's more safe and comfortable to sit back. You know, get that UFC belt. Make that money. Mm-hmm. You lose to Mayweather, you might get knocked out in the first round and be there unconscious, bloody corpse. Everybody's laughing at you. Why do that? But he did it. Yeah. Why? Because he can. That's the reason. The obstacle's the way. So go out there. Put it on the line. That's what he does in every fight. Put it on the line. Always put he puts all the chips on red number 
15. <laughs> and when he wins, he puts them all on that again and yeah. all on that again. And we sit there and we watch. We watch because we can't do it. Those are the people that inspire me, and I'd like to try to do those same things. So that's what we're trying to do with our movies, with our content, with everything. Put it on the line. And um, those are the kind of people that inspire me, mm-hmm. um, that I can see behind the scenes. Not the people that are great at what they do, but the people that put it on the line. Yeah. And right along those lines, uh, you've, you've talked about in the past that you weren't always a risk taker. Played it somewhat conservative. Today, you're a big risk taker. And I... I admire that, and look, if we whatever business we're in, if we don't take risks, how are we ever going to know? You know. So, uh, when was that shift for you? When when did you say, okay, it's time? I, I you know, I, I I have to do this. As I'm, much as I don't want to admit, I'm it, all in. Yeah, as much as I don't want to admit it, that change came from the fifty billion dollar man himself, Mr. Dan Pena, who I both equally love and hate. <laughs> Yes. I wouldn't have known. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. That's the way I feel about Dan, which must mean there is something there. Yeah. There is a relationship there, and even Dan would admit it. I think we are very valuable to each other. Um, and uh, as much as I do hate him sometimes, I do know that he values me and he loves me somehow. And he might actually even admit to that at this point. He gets older every year, which is a good thing for us. <laughs> right. um, and he will probably outlive me as well, uh, to my chagrin. But um, look... Let's be honest about Pena. He came into my life three and a half years ago when this show wasn't really going anywhere. You know, hadn't really thought about a business. I was broadcasting, but I didn't know where I was going. I was solo, didn't have a lot of people that were helping me, probably because Brian Rose doesn't need any help. Mm -hmm. And Pena came into my life and he offered me a chance to come to the castle. And it was a great experience. I had an amazing time up there. Uh, I wrote a great blog about it. Well, you, we might be making a movie about it. And he said to me, Brian, you're an engineer, which is his term for engineer. And he's like, the good thing about engineers is, is they get his process well. They understand that it works, but they don't take risk. And that's your problem. And no one had ever told me that. Even Mother Ayahuasca never told me that with the reflection on me, and that's why I called going up to the castle drinking the Pena Asuka, because Dan is a lot like a plant medicine. He tells you the things you don't want to hear about yourself that could be true, and then you have to process them. And when you're hearing them, it's not nice. Mm-hmm. Just like when Mother Ayahuasca is beating you over the head saying you're a bad father, you're not a good human, you're not treating these people well in your life, why don't you shape it up? And then she says that about a hundred more times really loud while shaking your brain. You're like, I get it. I get it. So Pena does something similar. Now he's not always right, everything he says, but some of it was right. And so I took that on board and I realized I don't know myself as, I th- as well as I think I do. None of us know ourselves as much we think as we do. We're the easiest person to lie to. I think Richard Feynman said that, yeah. right? We're the easiest one to fool and we fool ourselves all the time, right? We tell ourselves these, exa- you know, these exaggerated stories of what's happening. You're going to see it in the first two weeks of the Business Accelerator. People have been walking around with the perfect business idea for five years. In the first two weeks of the accelerator, I'm going to introduce them to reality and to the competition. And they're going to say, oh my God, that idea is stupid. It will never work. The good news is we're going to show them how to make it work. But they're going to come to that reality. Again, learning at a rate they're not accustomed to, which is not nice, but it's it's necessary and helpful. So the same came with me with that. I got to take more risks. So I came back and I now I try to engineer risks into my life 
and into London Real. Mm. But to be honest, I disagree with you. I am not a risk taker. I need to take more risks. Mm. And if we want to get to the next level, I got to be willing to take some Conor McGregor type risks to put it all on Red 17 more often and get to that next level. But of course, not blow out the show in the meantime. Right. Um, so yeah, that's I'm always on that fine line of doing that. And we and we do take risks around here, but I want to take more. So we we share something in common that millions and millions of men share, and that's fatherhood. Um, I have a wonderful wife, Sabrina, uh, daughter Alexis, son Roger, and um, they make me who I am. Um, you have. Ariana, uh, you now have Damon and and Caden, and of course Gabby. <sighs> What's it like to have three children around the home, and how does the new Brian Rose feel about fatherhood? I absolutely love it. I just love it. It's just so natural. It feels great. I'm carrying these boys around, and it's just like. I don't know. It was like meant to be. I think Tim Ferriss had the similar conclusion when he went and hunted a deer down and he was dressing and he said, feels like I done this before or I've meant to do this. It was just something carnal as a human being. And for me, it just feels right. feels so right. Now, let me preface that by saying, without Mariana, I might be feeling differently because I might be on night duty or diaper duty or whatever duty. And sometimes I am, but most of the times I'm not. And so I think she makes that experience so much different for me. So that being said, let me say that very clearly. (laughs) So, um, but as a parent, I love it. Um, All the things I thought it would be, pressure, responsibility I don't want, all the horrors you hear about parenthood, you're not gonna sleep and never have a life again. It's just nonsense. It's not true. It's just amazing and wonderful. I feel obligated. I feel honored. It's special. It's hard sometimes. But again, I'm just trying to say, what am I learning? I must be getting some IP here when Caden is losing his stuff in the middle of Primrose Hill and doesn't want to get into the pram. That's what I do. But uh, it's, it's amazing. And Gabby was my first child and pretty much adopted her when she was six. Now she's 13. Wow. And um, that girl saved my life. And she knows it. That's awesome. And I've told her that. And without her, I wouldn't be here. She, she made me, I don't know, just take my life seriously. She made me grow up. And that was a big moment for me. And it's easy to forget now with the two new boys. But she's a very, very special girl. And she means so much to me. She's 13 now. I'm not as cool or as necessary as I used to be. But that's okay. And I'm here for the rest of her life. I'm so proud of her. And she's uh, becoming an amazing woman. And the last six months, she's just matured so much. I'm so proud of her. So that's amazing. And then now the two boys, you know, more to do there. Um, but yeah, I love the experience. And um, yeah, it's it's just great. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just great just to watch Caden and just. I'll say this about Caden. Caden reminds me of what it's like to be human because you watch him and he is just. He's excited to be here. That's great. That's it. Right. He's pumped to be here. Yeah. He doesn't need a reason, doesn't need a goal, doesn't need a CV or a degree or a whatever. He's just excited to be here. Yeah. So I, I'm like, why aren't I also excited to be here? So he's a reminder that I need to be more human and not be so involved in my goals and this being red. Just what about just being here? Yeah. He's excited. So it's a beautiful thing to see. It shows you about 
life. It shows you about your mortality and what these boys are going to be and how important it is to raise them in, an, in, a, in a great way. And I want to carry on the family values, to use that word from George Bush, and the traditions of my family and my grandparents that they taught me. And I want them to, to be raised right, but also to be connected with their emotions in a way that I wasn't. I want them to be tough guys and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts, but I also want them to be able to cry. I want them to be intelligent engineers and scientists, but also great businessmen and also great poets and writers. And I want them to, to fail in life and to try. And I want them, you know, all those things, I want them to have a great human experience. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best. And they're going to tell me to do one and, and to go, go that, that I'm wrong. And that's okay, too. And uh, I can't wait. And I just hope I'm a great parent. That's, that's wonderful. That's what I'm trying to do. So martial arts, jujitsu. Big part of your background. You're leaving no stone unturned. Nothing. Okay. <laughs> uh, honestly, how, how, how did that discipline uh, prepare you for your role? Even, even as a banker and now today at London Real, um, I, I've never experienced it. I, I know a lot of people who have, but what was it like for you personally? So great question. So when I moved to London for the second and final time was in 2002. And I was coming from New York City. 9-11 basically happened in my backyard. My best friend sacked me. My girlfriend four years left me. I was slowly killing myself, drinking myself and whatever else I could find to death. That was my end of 2001. My 2002 started in London. And that was my new life. And at that time, one friend from mine in New York City, who used to help me to try to kill myself, uh, said, Brian, I started training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Why don't you try it? And I had come to London and I wasn't, I had a new peer group, let's say that. <laughs> so I was cleaning my act up a little bit over here and I said, oh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, let me try that. And I went to Google. I don't even know if there was Google. Whatever search engine there was, there was Google. And I found this guy and his name was Chris Kiston. And he's a dear friend of mine. And I started training with him at a place called The Third Space in London. And I knew nothing about Brazil or jiu-jitsu or Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I had wrestled one year in high school, three months, and I had gone from a skinny nerd to like a kind of big guy, and that's it. I didn't go back for my second year. It was brutal. It was horrible. I lost every single match, um, but I pushed through, and um, it was an experience, but that was it. And then I went in, and I got taught Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and it was the rebirth of Brian Rose. I became a man through that martial art. And this teacher of Chris Kiston was probably one of my most important mentors. And little did he know it, but he taught me so much about what I should aspire to and how to just clean up my act and how to become a, a better man. And I would anticipate every single week that seven days to show up on that Saturday morning and take that hour of jujitsu. And it was just, it changed everything about my life. It changed my body. I could see my body transform that year because I hadn't really used it in an athletic sense for years. It was just to bring my body around from one party to the next or one experience to the next. And I started getting disciplined and my body changed and I learned about martial arts and jujitsu and about respect and about hard work and it changed me. And I always thought if I was gonna do some nonsense or make some poor choice, what would Chris think of me? And he wouldn't have been very impressed because he's very disciplined. He's a very disciplined guy. Mentally, physically, he's a badass. And he's lethal on the mat as well. And he's a great instructor. And he always pushed me right to the limit. Never would knock me out when we would, we'd also, he trained me in boxing and Thai boxing and everything. He trained me in mixed martial arts. And I trained with him for eight years in a row. 
sometimes four hours a weekend. I always joke I got my PhD from him and we trained like madmen. We would literally beat the hell out of each other in this, in this club every weekend. And it, it was a huge part of who I was. And so Brazilian Jiu Jitsu taught me a lot. And that's why Jocko Willing talks about it and Joe Rogan talks about it. And that's why my two sons are gonna train Jiu Jitsu. And that's why Gabby could choke you out right now even though she weighs half your weight. Um, she trained Jiu Jitsu and it's a beautiful art that teaches you about humility, about hard work, about discipline, about going back to the drawing board, everything, it teaches you. It teaches you that you're fighting yourself a lot of the times. <laughs> it, you think you're gonna go in there and learn how to beat people up and you learn how to not beat people up. <laughs> you learn that you're not fighting them, you're fighting you. And the, yeah, exactly. And the, more, and the more that you can calm down yourself, the more you can be effective. It's a beautiful art and um, I highly encourage everyone to train in it. I was so lucky and fortunate to train with it and it's, it changed my whole life. My first 10 guests on London Real were all the cool guys I knew from jujitsu. And I had them on the show because they were cool. Because they would go into an art every single week and potentially be tapped out and choked unconscious and yet still come back. So it means they're humble, they're willing to learn, they're not about themselves, they're about the process and it's a beautiful barometer for who you wanna hang with. And it, it's a great art and uh, I love it and I love everyone that's involved in it. I now periodically dip back into it um, I went on and did boxing. I broke my nose in Thailand. Uh, I broke my arm in London at London shoot fight. And I'm, a, I'm really not a good boxer, but I try really hard. And uh, I'm decent at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, but I'm not naturally gifted in any of these things, which is why I love them. So again, obstacles the way, and I kept going. Now I'm going off on some body movement, some rhythmicality and dance, and I like that a lot too. But Jiu-Jitsu is a beautiful thing, and I love it. And I love the people involved. The culture is amazing. The people are amazing. I, I don't have enough good things to say about it. Awesome. You've been gracious, so gracious with your time. I just have a couple of more questions. Right. Uh, you talk about your five-year plan. We've talked about it privately. Um, I know it, in, it includes breakdancing, health and conditioning, diet. And you're in pretty good shape, So, but you still have that, that goal. Tell us about the five-year plan. What made you think of this and... How could others start to think about something like this? And do you want me to kind of detail my, my kind of personal physical five-year plan? Please. Yeah, okay, as please. opposed to the London Real Plan, which yes, you Yes, 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 this is personal, yes. So I'm 46 years old, right? And I am in tremendous shape, right? I am in better shape now than I was three years ago, which is hard for me to believe. Like, how can that happen? I'm getting older. And trust me, men and women out there, when you hit 40, it gets <laughs> like exponentially harder every year, especially if you continue with the same bad habits. And I think, as much as I read about nutrition and I knew about you know physicality, I really wasn't applying it or didn't really know enough about it. And so now I move every day. Um, I do something that challenges my brain and my body. And it's a lot of body weight stuff, rhythmicality, break dancing, um, just a lot of things where I explore pain barriers in my body and I don't register pain as bad. I register it as maybe something to do again and see if I can get through it. And it's an amazing physical and mental practice. But I'm just, I feel better than ever. I'm like been fairly injury free for a long time. My diet has gone, gone more plant-based as a, as, as a result of that movement, which I find fascinating. I'm more attracted to salads and greens. I don't want to eat a big steak like I used to when I was doing heavy squats and lifting and listening to the uh, American trader, let's go get a big steak to celebrate. Now I eat it and my stomach kind of hurts. 
I trust my gut. I listen to my stomach now. And when it doesn't feel good, when I eat that piece of steak, I say, hmm, maybe not. And when I eat that piece of gluten, ah, maybe not. And so now I'm much more aware and respectful of my gut feedback. Um, again, more plant-based stuff. You know, the more people I talk to, the more I see that that is a way to go here. I'm not completely vegan or plant-based. Uh, I'm not saying you need to be, but I'm, I eat a lot of vegetables <laughs> and I, and I love it. And so that, that goes a long way. The physical practice, I do a lot of cold water therapy. You know, a lot of that stuff inspired by Wim Hof, the Iceman. I love yes. him. I am in a very, very cold tank between 10 and 15 minutes, two or three times a week. And I go straight into hot sauna. I'm a big fan of sauna and cold. I think enough cycles and you can mimic a psychedelic experience. There is definitely something there. These are things that um, theoretically make no sense to me. So, but in the lab as an engineer, I recognize these have big effects on me. So I'm going that way. That's what I'm doing. I'm going that way. So I feel great um, for 46. I think I look great. Um, and I think I can keep going doing this, you know, and I, and if you look, there are examples of people that keep doing this into their 60s and 70s. Steve Maxwell, 65. Not only is he in great physical shape, he has a twinkle in his eye like a 25 year old. And we have an episode coming out with him in two days. And he's amazing. And he took me through his hotel workout and his daily oh, morning great. routine and he massages everything and he dry brushes his skin and it's amazing. So I am so excited about the future. I embrace my age. I love my age. Um, I feel really good. And my five-year plan is just become a badass, you know, break dancer. And people don't understand that me in the three-piece suit can go do break dancing. But for me, it makes complete congruent sense. Also, I love dancing. I love the rhythmicality, the self-expression. When I started two years ago, I had a really hard time dancing in front of a mirror. Now I can do it and even dance in front of people, and I love it. It's, it's just a different form of communication, just like this is. Yes. The original form of communication is with your body. I do it in front of Caden, and we have an immediate immediate connection. Mm -hmm. I do it with my 10-year-old uh, nephew from Switzerland. You know, We're hanging out, talking to each other for an hour, and all of a sudden I'm like, you got a handstand? He's like, yeah. I'm like, no, you don't. Check this out. Boom. And his, his sister's always doing handstands. I'm telling you, the physicality is the way that humans communicate, and it's, it's also body is the mind. So again, I realize, unless, in, you know, this is, this is all connected. And even while I'm saying that, I probably don't even believe it, because I'm so, so, so far I've been up in this, you know, Descartian space. But it's true. So when I move my body, I think better. Everything works as a process. So my diet's going right, physical exercise every day. Ido Portal would laugh at how much I move. He'd be like, Brian, you need to be moving 10 hours a day. That guy moves a lot. I move, you know, an hour, hour and a half a day. You know, I need to be moving more probably. My diet, keeping that strict, and keeping all those other practices, you know, meditation and the affirmations and then the, and then the relationships and then even broadcasting and expressing myself and mm -hmm. all that is super important. And the dance, I love the dance. I'm so fortunate that as London Real, when I put the vibes out there, I got two of the, the greatest b-boy instructors in the world, and that's Mark Jacob, my man in Liverpool, and Alexander Ziri, who later became our head of product. Go figure. Both of my b-boy instructors, OGs, original guys that have been doing it for 10 years, that when I do it wrong, they say, you're doing that wrong. Your foot should be in this place. Your hand should be in this place. Respect the guys that created this art 30, 30 years ago. And I've had two of them in this guest chair, Crazy Legs and Storm, two of the greatest b-boys ever. So again, honor that tradition. and. So I'm just going to go wherever this journey goes with the body and everything. And um, again, our documentaries kind of say the same thing. So I just hope people move more and people think about their diets as well. You know, I mean, I have people on like McGregor to talk about this stuff. You know, what are you eating? You know, and McGregor, I don't know if I fully believe, but he basically says, 
the top 12 illnesses and causes of death are changeable by your diet. Like, how many people really think about what they eat or really ever change what they eat? Most people have a pretty lousy diet. I even did when I knew better and thought I had a diet that was good, but I was lying to myself. These days, gluten-free, sugar-free, plant-based. Yeah, some days I'll have an ice cream, okay. Uh, you know, and some days I'll have a glass of wine. Yeah, that's okay. You know, I'm okay with that. I have a good relationship with alcohol now. It's okay. And it's functional for me because I'm a functional human being. That changes everything. You know, when I'm dysfunctioning, that's when problems come up. And so, uh, I think all of these are important aspects of my life, but movement's a big one. We move every day in the studio here after our morning meetup, our stand up morning meeting. We turn the music on and everybody moves. In our new space, we got more space for that. We have a hanging bar. We're gonna have a, a wall that you can do handstands on. This is all part of our company culture. We walk the walk here, and we talk the talk, and we really, I believe this is true. So yeah, those are my plans for the next five years. I can't wait. Um, yeah, I'm excited. Uh, what can I say? You know, don't, don't ever hide behind your age. That doesn't make any sense to me. You know, embrace your age. Be who you are, be proud of it. And again, you can make yourself feel 10 years younger at any point. Just start moving, change your diet. You know, I can move. I move at 46 better than a lot of people move at 26. Uh, and that's just because of the choices I've made. That's all. So, you know. I have to tell you, my father is 79. Uh, big guy, 6'4". Um, big bone guy. Um, and a couple of months ago, he decided to change his diet. My sister was a big part of that because she changed her diet. And wow, am I proud of him. Good he, man. yeah, um, no sugar. That's huge right there. Yeah. No, no, it's hard. No, no it's hard. But, yeah. uh, you know, he's dropping the weight. He had a, a doctor's appointment. So, like you said, it doesn't matter how what your age is. He's 79, and he's doing it, and he's moving. You know, we, we brought an exercise bike over there, and, you know, he's starting to move and feel good. And, hey, it could be done at any age. Yeah, change the quality of your life right now in a matter of days. That's right. You know, and, like, some basic, basic tenets. You know, right. in our life accelerator, it's like cut out gluten and cut out sugar. That alone will have it and move every day. That will have a massive effect on there. That will probably 10x how good you feel mm -hmm. in a matter of a week or two. So like, yeah, I'm so happy to hear that. It's never too late to start and it's all up to you. It's your choice. That's right. So it's really empowering to have that knowledge. Um, but it's hard to do, man. And again, sugar's everywhere. Mm -hmm. You just don't know it. So, I don't know, do the research. Read watch. those labels. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what's your relationship with money? Great question, and it's something that I talked about before the Business Accelerator. One of our bonus modules is uh, a talk we had here with Phil McKernan in the studio with about 30 people, some of the early days of the Academy, and he said, what is your relationship with money? And he said, say out the one word that you associate with money. And it was just fascinating to be in a room with people that said, pain, uh, horrible, uh, greedy, and everyone had a strange relationship with money. So. For me, most of my life, my relationship with money drove me to do things. Or as, um, uh, there's another line from Wall Street uh, where uh, one of the Bud Fox's uh, bosses says, uh, that's the thing about money, Bud. It makes you do things you don't want to do. So for me in my life, it motivated me. It was always a big deal. When I was in third grade, you know, a lot of kids bring things for show and tell at school. Some people bring their puppy. Right. Some people bring their pet rock. I brought a $100 bill. And it freaked the teachers out and they called my mom and they said, he can't bring that, what if it gets stolen? And I thought it was cool, right? It was right. a Benjamin. That's great. That says enough about me. So for me, I, don't ha I didn't have a good relationship with money. For me, 
my, my, my mission and my vision was get as much as possible. And that was my mission. And it was, it was a very singular mission. And when you're on Wall Street, everyone has that mission. And it's, you know, you're with your tribe. So it just gets exacerbated and exponentially put. And that's probably why I wrote it out for so long. But like I said, next week I'll hang out with one of my old banker buddies who, uh, I don't know if his life is still about the money, but it's very money involved. And, you know, he might look at me and say, Brian, you, you might be out of your mind. But I think he'll look at me and say, hmm, you found something here, Brian. So for me, it's something I'll always struggle with, but I think I have a different relationship with money now. And now the money doesn't really matter as much. For me, who cares if by the time I die, my net worth is 2 million or 20 million or 200 million? Will it affect the 100 year plan? Will it affect the awesome interactions I can have every day? Will it affect the content we can produce and the legacy of London Real? I don't think so. I don't think we're limited by money. We've done amazing things with this company with not much money. So I think it's about creativity, usually going to where the fear is, taking risk, getting uncomfortable. That's why I tell all the people in the business accelerator, how much time will it take? It's not about the time or the money. It's about you willing to go to those hard places. So for me, I think I have a healthy relationship with money, but then I would say that. So I think it's gotten better. I don't judge people on money anymore. I try not to. I don't judge myself on money. I couldn't have, or I've done very poorly in the last six years. Um, and But I do see it as a tool because it's capital. It's capital that can help me magnify my message. So I don't disrespect money. It's very important. We need it to in order to, to take ourselves to the next level. Also, it's a byproduct of people buying into us. So if I get our biggest and greatest class ever in the Business Accelerator, with that comes a lot of tuition money. So it's a sign you're doing something right, Brian. And like I say in the course, when people vote with their credit cards, it means you're doing something worthwhile. So when you create your first product for American Real and people buy it for $999, you're gonna be like, wow. Not only are people liking my videos and saying, Roger, you're doing a great job, people are spending their money for your intellectual property, that's when you know you are really providing people tangible value because you're competing with all the other stuff they could buy. And that's what separates the entrepreneurs from the entrepreneurs. And so um, I'm still very wary of that. So money is not bad, it's not evil, it can be used to great extent, but as a means to an end, it's horrible and it's not a good way to judge people. I know billionaires, they've come to my live events and they're not all very happy. Mm -hmm. And I know people that judge themselves by their money and it's really, really bad. Mm -hmm. Because also everyone thinks they're amazing. And they're not, they're just like all of us. They need struggles, they need obstacles. So um, yeah, once you start to get to know people with money, you realize it's not a big deal. Um, again, like Ito would say, it's the container. In one container, they were managed to find success. In another container, they might fall over flat on their faces and they probably should explore that other container to be in the Shoshin mindset. So yeah. Hope that answers the question. Oh, it does. I'd like to borrow one of your closing questions, and that is, if you could take us back, uh, and, and if you could talk to the, your 20-year-old self, what would you tell Brian? So this is a great question. You know, it's funny. I might have been asked this before, but I don't remember, and now I'm such a different person now that, that let me just give it to you exactly what I'm thinking right now. So 20-year-old Brian would have been a sophomore at MIT, he would have had the first year not having to choose a major and he would have come back from Ford Motor Company and chose to be a mechanical engineer. He would have been living at Zeta Psi fraternity at 233 Massachusetts Avenue across from the Necco wafer factory that used to make all sorts of weird sugary smells come out. 
He would have had 50 guys in this house. We were living like animals, a lot like Animal House. Uh, and it was a wonderful time to be alive. Uh, we were all going through college. We didn't know where we were going to go. We were studying at the greatest institute in the world. And I'm telling you, I didn't have a gratitude practice back then. But every single day when I walked through Lobby 7, which is the front door on Massachusetts Avenue, I looked up at this big dome. They have a huge dome, like a neoclassical dome. And I look at the top as I walk through, and I'm just like, wow. And I look at the guys on the walls as I walk by, these famous Nobel Prize winning scientists, and I'm like, wow. The place is just epic. And I felt grateful every day to be there, even though after four years, I was dying to get out and go do something. But it was an amazing time, so I would have been in that fraternity. Um, you know, as a brother, I had made it at Zeta Psi. I would have been uh, studying a lot. Um, and this was my test because this is my second year at MIT. This is where you get grades. The first year was pass-fail. And this is going to see, okay, what do you got? And my first semester, I took four courses. It was a, it was a, a course, I think, in, um, in uh, structures, as in how metals and I-beams worked. It was a course in electronics about how capacitors and resistors and all these things worked. Uh, I think I had a, another course. Uh, it was like an elective and uh, no, it was a, no, it was like another calculus course, like a dynamic calculus or something. Four solid courses. And I was like, all right, what's going to happen? And I remember with each one, I got a little taste of success in the first exam. I had worked hard and I got it. And I thought to myself, wait a second, I might be able to get straight A's and get a 5.0 grade average, which is what you get in MIT with an A. You get a five, not a four. Don't ask me why they're so special. And I was like, wait a second, we can do this. And when I saw that glimpse of what I could have, I just doubled and tripled up. And so I just started going hardcore, hardcore. Now, don't get me wrong, on Friday nights, I would hang out and try to finish the keg with all the brothers, and I would go to the parties. But during the week, I would study and study and study, and I'd wake up Saturday morning hungover, and I would go study and study, and just like a madman. It was self-discipline. It was, again, another task that I could go all in on and, and battle myself. That's what London Real was in the beginning. Battle yourself, you know? And I did it, and I ended up getting there. And I remember I, my transcript got sent home to my dad, and it was straight A's in MIT the first semester. And I had a friend of mine who was like, yo, we got the 5.0. Um, and at the time, there was a Mustang that said, like, 5.0, 5-liter engine. And he was like, you got to get one of those around your neck. <laughs> and so, look, that was a great glimpse of, of what I could do, and it was amazing. At the same time, you know, Brian didn't know where he was going, you know, he wanted uh, success. Um, it was probably going to be conquering the world and getting a lot of stuff for him and what was important. And again, I just started partying and, you know, trying to know what was going on with the world. And so, you know, advice to that young man. You know, I guess I'm never about regret. You know, I don't regret doing anything. I don't believe I should have started London Real earlier or stopped banking earlier or done this or done that. I'm very happy with all the choices I made. But... Maybe knowing that certain things were okay, you know, letting humans in a little bit earlier or realizing that the gold out there is inside the other humans and the connections and the relationships. Like those would have been nice realizations to have, you know, and so a little bit of advice that, you know, all these other two-legged things around you, they might be more critical to your, your world picture than, than you think. So that might have been a little bit of advice, you know, to him. To just say, you know what? Open your eyes. The, these people are what it's all about. It's not about you. It's not about how much you can get, how many A's you can get, the job you can get, how much stuff you can acquire, um, the promotion you can get, what other people think of you. 
uh, and maybe just understand it's about the journey and it's about the people and it's about all these human relationships. And that's where the gold is, is, is the humans. Ido Portal said to me that his mother told him once, she said, the most interesting thing in the world are people. More than anything else we could ever create or any story or any technology are people. And he's so right. And when I meet someone fascinating, they blow my mind more so than anything else. And so that's where the gold is. It's in each other. So maybe I would have told Brian that, that maybe do your thing. You got to go out there and kick ass. You got to go out there and conquer the world. You got to go out there and compete. You know, a good friend of mine named Errol Payne, who was a, a, a good friend of my dad's and they did business together. You know, he always used to say, you know, when you're young, you have to go out there and compete, you know, and, and afterwards you have to go forth and multiply. And uh, I think there's a, these are important stages in a man and a woman's life. And so go out there, go balls out, go take no prisoners, you know, maybe offend some people. That's, that's okay. But sooner than later, learn that this is a collaborative experience. This is a long game. We all win by kind of compromising and understanding each other. And it's not about winning or, or making someone else lose. I think it's all about like winning together. So maybe that's the long-winded advice I would have told him. And he would have told me to do one, old man. <laughs> Definitely. He would have been like, I don't know what you're talking about because I know what's up and you don't know what's up. So I always remember that in my kids and when I see young people is that they're going to always think that I don't know what's up. And maybe they're right. That's the beauty of youth. Yeah. They show us that maybe I don't know what's up. That's right. Yeah. And it is about the journey. And it is about not having regrets. And um, you are the curator of London Real. How does that make you feel today? The curator, the creator, or all this stuff. To be honest, I try not to think about it. Mm. Um, again, the rear view mirror has been removed. Even the current view mirror usually is removed and I'm trying to look forward. So again, I'm very bad at um, appreciating where we've come. I'm not a big on the bottle popping. Maybe Julian can get me to pop a bottle tomorrow. Um, and so I'm gonna get better with that, I promise. And when the uh, Vancouver Real guys were here, um, he asked me at one point, he's like, Brian, um, you know, how come you, how come you can't take a compliment? and take credit for what you've done. But look, for me, this is a collective experience. This isn't about me. It's all these people doing these great work, these people that came on and shared these things with me. And um, for me, I have so many things I want to do with the world, and we, wanted, we want to do all these great things. And when someone stop me, stops me in the street, and it happens all the time, and they're like, oh, that London Real. I'm like, yeah, how'd you hear about it? Oh, it was the Edo Portal movie. The thing I say right afterwards is, he's amazing, isn't he? Man, we start talking about Edo. So, it's always talking about an idea or a person and their message and how we can take that to the next level. So for me, it's not about um, being proud of London Real. It's not about looking at what we've done or looking at the accomplishments or the silver button in the bathroom with the 100,000 YouTube subscribers that you might have seen or not. Um, for me, I'm really focused on the future. Um, but hopefully I'm not forgetting to be present. But for me, I don't I don't, I feel good when we do good things. You know, when I make Ido happy that night, that feels really good. When I see graduates do beautiful things in our courses, that makes me feel good. When a guest comes out of here and says, what you guys do is special, the greatest interview I've ever done, um, that feels good. And I know it is too, because that's what I do every week. And in my opinion, I all, more than often than not, produce the greatest interview they've ever done. 
And I know that because I've watched every interview they've ever done. And I think we do do that. So I am very proud of that. I'm super proud of my team, super proud of all the, the men and women here who, who become better versions of themselves every day. They push the limits, they get better, they have their own faults, their own resistances, but they push through. That makes me proud. That makes me super proud. The show, less so. Um, but I am happy with what we're doing. I'm excited to where we're going. And um, I just, you know, I need to step up and make it happen, so. Before I let you go, what advice do you have for me? Now 14 episodes in. Well, first of all, if you haven't checked out American Real, please go watch it. Um, you know, Roger blew me away uh, when I saw the set and I saw the work that you put into it. And again, it's one thing to build a set. It's one thing to like really think about the lighting like we did in here and all of that other amazing stuff. And the trailers that you put together, like you put your heart and soul into those things. And you can't fake that. And that's why the London Real trailer is the reason why most video people don't make it a week through London Real and they go goodbye. We've probably gone through 10 or 20 video people because they can't tell a story in a 90 second trailer, which is what we do. That's our intellectual property here at London Real. You see it in the beginning of every episode. It's hard. And we try to tell this amazing, incredible, short, beautiful story that gets you wanting to watch the whole show. So that's what we do here. And that's what I saw you do. So it's amazing to see you bring your heart and soul to telling these stories and telling those episodes. So thank you for doing that. Um, as far as advice to you, look, you've got 14 episodes in the bag. What I see in you is just amazing. You know, you put so much into it. You're obviously invested into this in a big way. You know, you're building a studio. You're investing in the video production. You know, regardless of what resources you might have, that takes <laughs> skin in the game. You know, anybody can cut a check. That doesn't show in a trailer like the one you did, where it's got the voiceover and the drone shot and that. You know, it's different. And that's why... That's why I will always beat the BBC and I will always beat Channel 4 because at the end of the day, that producer goes home because he's paid to do that job. I live and eat and breathe it. This is me, my reputation. I feel personally indebted to everybody on this show to put their message out in a beautiful way. That's why I came in on Sunday to tape Michael Greger because it was a message that had to be told. So we all took time away from our families to come in here and tape it. Not just me, video team. We do it because we give a shit. And that's why my product will always be better than anybody's product with a billion dollars behind it. That's the truth. So when I see you do what you do, it's amazing. So I'll tell you what I told you in the course. Don't stop, you know? You think you feel great now after 14 episodes, give it a year, 50 episodes, 100 episodes. Keep pushing yourself, go to where the fear is in yourself. There's things that make you uncomfortable, I know. I'm guessing you're on our business accelerator. When it comes to your relationship with money, we probably have some things to talk about. When it comes to charging people money that are American real people, you're gonna have some issues with it because you're like, no, Brian, I'm about giving them the content. I don't wanna ask. So we're gonna talk about giving them more value. So there's gonna be a lot of hurdles. You're gonna get hate, but you haven't felt yet. How could anyone hate me? I'm doing beautiful things. Wait, it's gonna happen. And it's not gonna be fair. And you're gonna have to look yourself in the mirror and say, why am I doing this? Am I doing this because I like praise? Or am I doing this because I have a higher purpose to get this message out by any means necessary, right? Malcolm X. And I get hate here sometimes. I get people that say nasty things about me. And I have guests sometimes that say, take that down. And I mean, it hurts. I'm like, don't you know what I'm doing? I'm Brian Rose and I'm trying to give you everything in my soul and make your day better and inspire you to take action and you get kicked in the face. Well, guess what? Welcome to broadcasting. This is what happens. And it separates the suckers from the people that are in it for the ego. And you're gonna to come to these confrontations and you're gonna have resistance. 
People are going to not like what you do. They're going to call you out. You're going to have things fall apart on you. People in your team that walk away from you and say bad things. Technology failures, et cetera, et cetera. And you are going to find out what you're made of. And if you really are true to this higher power mission, if you really do think it's about the journey, about the content, if you really think everyone has a story and you're a conduit to this greater message for humanity, then you will make it and you will rightfully so, you know, be a proud member of someone who's changing the global consciousness. And if you don't, then you'll have a story about how you once had a show and there's plenty of those that have reels about them. LA reel gone, Dublin reel gone, tons of them gone, Wichita reel gone, nice people, but they couldn't make it through the hard times because this is not an easy business. It's brutal, brutal. And to make it, you have to be willing to go <laughs> to where the fear is. And guys like Vancouver Reel have done that and, and you're gonna get there. And I think you will make it, but they're gonna be hard times. So push through those. Always remember your why, Simon Sinek, start with why. Go back to it the whole time. Why are we doing this? And that's what I always go back to. So when I'm having a hard time, when some things are going wrong, you know, if in any way, I always think, why am I doing this? I'm doing this because we're doing the right thing. And then waking up in the morning, it's no problem. Who cares? You're making money this month? Great. You just lost a chunk of money? Great. Who cares? I'm doing what I love. I'm doing the right thing. Who cares at the end of it? How much money I have in the bank? It doesn't matter. So um, that's what I would always say. Go back to that why. That's what I do on a regular basis. Sometimes I forget. Go back to it. I got people like you that can remind me, people like the team, all the London Reelers in the world, every person that's ever watched even two seconds of a London Reel episode keeps me on point, right? They keep me inspired. They make me feel like, man, I really owe it to these people to give them my A game every single week. I can't disappoint them. I can't bring in a mediocre guest. I can't bring in some BS artist. I got to come on point. My courses have to be amazing. So they all hold me accountable. So I have to thank them and all the guests that come in here and trust me, and those are the people that, that really empower me. So that's my advice to you, and it's, it's really advice to me in disguise, and maybe advice to anybody listening who also just wants to step up their game in their life, you know? Just you know, go out there with a big why, and if you have that higher purpose, you are unstoppable, you know? There's that line the Blues, the blues Brothers have, and they're, they're like, what are you guys doing? Like about, about 20 minutes in the movie, they're like, we're on a mission from God, and that's what I think. Yeah, we're on a mission from God. And so we're unstoppable because we know we are doing the right thing. What are you going to do? Are you going to take away our money? Cool. You want to take me off YouTube? Cool. You don't want to put me on television? Cool. I don't care. We're going to keep doing this. Can't stop, won't stop by any means necessary. We are going to take London Real in the next hundred years to the next level and bring the whole world with us. Global consciousness goes up a notch. We can all feel it and then other people will do it and other people will do it. And a hundred years now, a thousand years from now, we'll look back to these days of savageness when we weren't treating each other right and our bodies right and all of these things. And we'll think, wow, look how much we've evolved. That's what we're going to see. I love it. And thank you for that. That's, that's, uh, that's wonderful advice. And look, Brian, thank you for this opportunity. This has been incredible. It has been a dream come true. It came true. We did it today. You have been so gracious. I've learned so much from you and your team. I can't thank you enough. And my family thanks you and my friends. Everyone's just rallying around this. And, and wow, I owe you big time. You don't owe me a goddamn thing. Uh, it's my pleasure, Roger. And again, you don't owe me anything because you earned this and you deserve this. And 
I knew I was setting you up for a big one today. And you asked me if you could come in yesterday and meet us in the studio. And I said no, because this is a beautiful moment in your life that you're going to remember. Because all those endorphins came down to that minute and you walked into the studio and you're here for the first time and you're interviewing me. And, you know, this is the kind of moment, as they say in Wall Street, life all comes down to a few moments. And this is one of them. What are you going to do? And you stepped up and you delivered and you made it happen. This has been one of my most incredible conversations. I knew it would be. And uh, I knew I was setting you up for one of those moments. And I love it. I love empowering <laughs> someone to go ahead and do that, to that make or break moment, because it, it teaches you something about yourself. You know, and this goes back to what we teach in the academy, action and accountability. Now you know your next level. So that way, you know, when the Neil deGrasse Tyson comes on American Real, you'll be like, I crushed it with Brian Rose. This is going to be easy. So each one of these things is just a stepping stone. And it, it shows you that, you know, you're easily worthy of all of this and more. Um, so thank you for coming on here. You really crushed it today. It's been an amazing conversation. You left no stone unturned. <laughs> and uh, it's been a lot of fun. And I got to talk about this. I forgot how much I like doing this. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll probably have to do it more often. But look, from that very minute I met you on that live call, I knew there was something special about you. When I watched your content, that's when I can tell what was inside of you because you really put yourself in there. And that shows, and that's going to live on forever. And uh, you said you're getting all this feedback from your friends and family and the local people around where you are because they can feel your energy. And they're like, wow, this is special. This guy is special. So, you know, keep doing that stuff. Um, expect setbacks and resistance. It's going to come. It's all part of the job. If it didn't come, something's wrong. You're not going big enough, honestly. If it didn't come, then there would be everybody doing this. So... That's, that's not only part of the job, it's, it's a necessary part and sometimes a great part. You know, the times when we get knocked down here, when we come back stronger, it's like, oh, we feel amazing. So, uh, again, thank you very much. Thanks to your family for uh, supporting you and for doing that amazing video about this whole experience. You documented it and, uh, you know, I want everyone to go watch that stuff and, uh, and check you out. I'm going to be watching you. I expect incredible content. I expect you to step your game up every single episode. I want you to make us look bad. That's what I want. I want me to be thinking, guys, have you seen what the American Real done? I actually did when I saw your trailers. I forwarded <laughs> it to the video team. Um, so, so that's what I have to say. Thank you. Um, so as we say on London Real, it's about the journey. Yes. Uh, it's controversial. Uh, it's also, it's about the people. And uh, thank you so much, Roger. You know, you've really crushed it today. I can see you're on this incredible journey. I'm so happy you've, you've, you found this art, and uh, I think it's going to define your life, change a lot of people's lives. And um, yeah, you're an inspiration that's going to create the next 100 or 1,000 reels or shows or whatever they are. So, you know, you're doing God's work. I think we both are. So Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, can I get that hug? Absolutely. <laughs> thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. behind my back. Maybe I want to hear them remind me he's back, the great pretender. I hope this time he gets hurt. I love these guys. They give me fuel. You want to, to reach your objective. You want to achieve it. You're going to have to be obsessive. You're going to have to be obsessed. Feel what you do. Feel it. 
If you're not feeling it, it doesn't matter. It's Chris Eubank Jr. Hmm? How do you explain his prowess in the ring? Junior has that obsession, that genius, that magic. Genius is obsession, but it's in one area. You studied the sweet science for so much of your life. How do you walk away from it? Do you miss it? Mm -hmm. you, you can't walk away from it. I am it. And even when I dance, really, I'm boxing. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, the one who strives valiantly. What was the worst day of your life? And how has it shaped you as a, a human being? When I fought Nigel Ben, I stood like this. It was to mask this. The risk must be taken. That's why you are London Wheelers. That's why we're here. We're tired of sitting still, watching it happen, happening for others. Let's do it.